Okay, all flight controllers, go no go for landing. Retro. Go. Fido. Go. Guidance. Go. Control. Go. Telcom. Go. GNC. Go. Econ. Surgeon. Go. Capcom, we're go for landing. Eagle, Houston, you're go for landing. Over. Roger, understand. Go for landing. 3,000 feet. You're listening to the David Feldman Radio Program, you sad, pathetic hump. So there's a debate tonight, and they're going to be talking about Iran, and most polls show that a majority of Americans cannot recognize Iran on a map of the Middle East. Interestingly enough, Republicans, more Republicans, can identify Iran on a map of the Middle East than Democrats can. That's probably because the Republicans have had an eye on Iran since we invaded Iraq back in 2003. It has been reported that when George W. Bush invaded Iraq in 2003, he didn't know that there was a difference between Sunnis, Shiites and Kurds. And we all know how well that war turned out. Donald Trump's assassination of Iranian General Qasem Soleimani has some people convinced that America may be going to war with Iran. I doubt that. I don't think we're going to go to war with Iran. Right now, Iranians are taking to the streets to protest their government accidentally shooting down a Ukrainian airliner last week, killing all 176 people on board. Many in Tehran are calling for the Ayatollah Khomeini to step down back in November. Iranian security forces have reportedly killed 200 Iranians protesting the cost of fuel. The Trump administration puts that number at 1,500. So are we about to witness World War III or Persian Spring? Could the assassination of Qasem Soleimani unleash the winds of change in Iran? For more on this, we are joined by Professor Dina Abdel-Khadr. She's the Associate Professor of Politics at University of Mass Lowell. And her piece over at The Conversation is entitled Killing of Soleimani Evokes Dark History of Political Assassinations in the Formative Days of Shiite Islam. I will link to that over at our website. Thank you for joining us, Professor Dina abdel Khadr. Thank you for having me, David. Thank you for your piece, because it's a primer on Iran. And with the debates tonight, I'm worried that a lot of Democrats are like George W. Bush was with Iraq, and they don't know who lives in Iran. You say it's primarily a a Shiite nation. Yes, 95% of uh, Persians are, uh, of Iranians are Shiite. And what does that mean? What What does Shiite mean? Shiite uh, comes from uh, uh, originally uh, an Arabic term called Shiite Ali, uh, which is basically the partisans of Ali, uh, who was the cousin of the Prophet and uh, his son-in-law. Ali, Ali. You're saying Ali. Yes. Right. And uh, the Shiites uh, thought that Ali deserved to be next in line uh, leading the Muslim community after the death of the Prophet. And uh, but that didn't happen. 
So they believe that it should be a hereditary title, the leadership? They believe that the house of the prophet has, uh, um, uh, has basically they're more entitled than anybody else uh, uh, to, to hold this position. And, the, and that is what the, the Shiites believe? Yes. And so the Sunnis are whom? Most of the Muslim population is Sunni. Uh, the Shiites only highly are, uh, uh, exist in uh, Iran primarily, and Iraq, uh, and Yemen. Uh, and then there are scattered minorities throughout the Middle East. Um, but the rest of the Muslim world is um, uh, Sunni. And I believe Islam, I think you wrote this, it's the second largest religion in the world, correct? Yes. So of the two, you're saying Sunni, the Sunni sect is larger than the Shiite sect? Yes. And looking at the Middle East, thank you for this, and this is so important. You know, here in America, we... We don't care. It's this this willful ignorance. If it's not America, it's not important. And then one day we're sending our kids off to fight uh, a nonsensical war. Uh, Can I just sure. say something about willful ignorance? Yeah. It is the natural disposition of a hegemon, of somebody who is powerful, not to know about everybody else. It has historically been done that way since the Roman Empire. So it's natural that we don't know about those little other countries. Is that a top-down phenomenon where the, the Caesars don't want us to know what's going on in Libya? I, I don't think it has, uh, you know, I, I'm not talking about the current situation, but generally speaking, it, you know, even people in high positions uh, in hegemonic countries or hegemonic entities do not really know that much about uh, the, the rest of the world. Uh, one, one thing that you will see, historically speaking also, is uh, the ability to learn languages. So languages are usually learned by uh, the people who have less power in order to access some sorts of power. Uh, but, so language acquisition, for example, in the United States is not as rampant as in other places because wow. the U.S. is a hegemon. Right, right. English has become... I don't know if it always was, but now Americans don't have to learn another language. Isn't English now the the international language of commerce and industry? I think I once wrote a joke that English is now the lingua franca. Uh, yes. <laughs> so that's a joke I wrote, I think, before you were born. It used to be French, and uh, <clears throat> so... Let's keep it serious, Professor. I, 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 enough with these jokes. Uh, <laughs> the, so the, the split in the Middle East, as we understand it on this show, is between 
Saudi Arabia and Iran, Iran being Shiite, Saudi Arabia being Sunni, mm -hmm. and Iraq being primarily Shiite with a much larger Sunni population than Iran, Saddam Hussein and his Revolutionary Guard in Iraq, they were Sunnis. Yes. But they were um, dominating a, a sh primarily Shiite nation? Yes. You have this across the Middle East where members of a minority yes. are, uh, um, you know, in charge of the majority. Um, and unfortunately, it is one side effect of uh, colonialism. Uh, so the, the policy of divide and conquer has always, you know, uh, superseded even after the colonial powers withdrew and each nation or each new nation state or the semblance of that uh, basically um, got their sovereignty. They They still had those strange splits and this is why uh, majorly, this is an area uh, that conflict is uh, almost synonymous with um, when we talk about the region. But in reality, it is the creation or the the you know the side effect uh, of colonial policies and uh, the way the land was even divided um, after uh, um, the colonial powers left. Syria, Assad, is an Alawite. It's a tiny, tiny sect in Syria. That would be a, a Shiite religion, the Alawites, but Syria is not anywhere close to being called an, an Alawite majority. No, no, it's still a minority. Again, it's the, the belief that uh, the, a policy of divide and conquer um, is uh, the way to control uh, the Middle East. But um, the phenomenon of a minority, the post-colonial minority ruling over a majority, isn't limited to the Middle East. We've seen this phenomenon throughout uh, Indonesia, I believe. The, the same thing is happening there, I think. I, I know that here in the United States, when they say this is going to become a minority-majority country, that doesn't necessarily bode well for people of color or, or Hispanics, that white people may end up with more power in America, even though they're I mean, a minority, right? Yes. You know, the demographics basically say that by 2020, uh, things will majorly shift, uh, and thus uh, sort of the... the um, uh, kind of xenophobia that, or the fear uh, um, that this society is, I think, currently living in. Um, however, uh, you know, you're right about Indonesia because uh, post-colonial societies, the pattern is the same. It's not just the Middle East, but it also is uh, the Far East. Um, and uh, any country who has that has experienced colonization, uh, this is pretty much, you know, the symptoms of post-colonialism. 
So the colonial power will isolate a tribe that most resembles them in either their physical appearance or thinking, nurture them academically, and use them to exert power over the rest of the the colony. And then when they become free, that hand-picked tribe will emerge as the as the ones most capable to be the caretakers of the nation, even though they're a minority. Yes, and I'm, I'm suspicious of even nurturing them academically. They, they just, you know, are brought into power uh-huh. um, and, and given military providence, and, and, and so that's how they maintain themselves. I see. And a a frightened minority is going to be much more dogmatic, much more militaristic, more totalitarian than a majority who think, you know, you're you're, if you're if you're a minority and terrified of mob rule and you're given power, you're going to be far more draconian. That's absolutely. Did the colonial powers did they know this, or was it just instinct? I I think that there was this was intentional. Wow, I said a Persian spring in Iran as opposed to an Arab spring. Is that correct? That that when you talk of Iran, you're you're not talking of an Arab community. You're talking of a Persian community, which is distinct from Arab. Yes. So um, what is the very much so, so. for an American? Uh, who can barely speak English? What is the difference between the Persians and the Arabs? Um, it's, they're just different races. Um, they're not, you know, they're not the same race. When you talk about Persia, you're talking pretty much about the Silk Road and, um, you know, another part of of the um the world basically um okay so so and, saudi and, arabia is primarily sunni and that would be an arab nation with saudi yes. arabia right yes does the split between shia and sunni take on a racial component is it purely theological it's theological to a certain extent it's a, it's more of a power struggle. Um, but the enmity between Iran and Saudi Arabia, I, I, we'll get to the power in a second. Is there racial prejudice? Is that playing a part in this? Where it's like the Persians versus the Arabs, as opposed to just the Shiites versus the Sunnis. Persians have always seen themselves and they've always manifested themselves, historically speaking, um, in a in a um, more academic um, way of approaching things, one one element that might come into um, you know that might provide an example for this is that the Persians had to make a lot more effort in learning uh, uh, Islam uh, because it wasn't in their mother tongue, and so they are the ones who came up with. Um, uh, the rules and regulations of 
Arabic language, of Arabic grammar, not the Arabs. Well, they, so it, it had not been codified before that. Exactly. Um, so the, they see themselves as sort of um, in a higher position. Because I see. A lot of their uh, authors and linguists have spent more time analyzing the language than the Arabs themselves. So there is a racial component to this. There might be. There is nothing, you know, uh, nothing uh, um, overt or mentioned overtly. Yeah. yeah. But there might be. Yes. Right. How do the Sunnis fare? In Iran, are there Sunnis in Iran, and how are they treated? Very small minorities. They're on the so they're they're away from all, you know, centers of of uh, Iran. They're mm-hmm. just uh, on the outskirts uh, of Iran, uh, and they're they're treated as minorities. You know, they they do they serve? Do you know if they certain, serve in their assembly? Because I know that the Jews have served in the uh, Iranian assembly. Yes, but that, that is a minority that is given, even if it was less than the Baluchis, for example, uh, that is a minority that is visible in the world and that, you know, has a lot of political weight. And, mm-hmm. and therefore, um, they, they do, you know, ascertain and they do... Uh, bring that into light that, you know, look at us, you know, we're inclusive. Right. Um, but not a lot of people know about Baluchistan or the Baluchis. So, and, um, and who are the, who are those? The, the, you're saying they're analysis. Jewish or are they Sunni? No, they're Sunni. Oh, and they do serve in the assembly. I'm not quite sure about that. But they're not banned uh, from, in other words, there's no, they're free to vote and they're, they're not in a ghetto, right? No, but like I said, uh, it's an arid piece of land. Uh, they're originally of Pakistani origin. I'm not quite sure whether they serve or not. So let's talk about Iran as a theocratic police state. That's what we're convinced that ever since the Shah fell, <laughs> it's, it's, that Iran is a police state with the the, the glory days of Savak are over, and now the Iranian people are no longer free. Are they freer? I mean, I would think if you compare Savak, which was trained by Norman Schwarzkopf's father, uh, we trained Savak. Are they better off? Do we can we quantify this? Do we know if it's a freer society? as a theocratic police state, or was it freer under the Shah? I, I would assume it, it's freer now. It's, it depends on how you want to define freedom. Right. So if we're to talk about the Shah's time, modernization was shoved down uh, uh, the throats of uh, Iranians. Mm-hmm. Um, people had to, you know, uh, change their style of dress, uh, people had to um, uh, basically abandon their faith uh, in public, uh, if they're public servants especially. Um, the, 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 there's a little um, 
uh, sort of comic uh, image that I draw to the students' attention uh, when talking about modernization in the Middle East or in the Muslim world, uh, for a person, and that is the father of um, um, Riza Shah, uh, if the person... Were you uh, talking about the Shah of Iran when you say that? Yes. Right. Yes. Uh, so if the, the uh, person was to conduct official business, it was required by the Iranian government that the person wear a western-rimmed hat. Hmm. So for people in the villages, for example, if they want to switch their kids from one school to the other or something like that, and they needed to go to town to do that, they would go to the head of the village, rent a western hat for the day to conduct business, and then come back. Is this after the CIA coup? Oh no, no, no! This is this is before that. This is mm -hmm. before Reza Shah um, and before Mossadegh's time, uh, which is in uh, the fifties. Um, so this was sort of the image of modernization, and that this is the kind of control that the state had over uh, uh, the people whether we talk about Savak in Riza Shah's time or whether before that with modernization and how it, you know, it uh, um, overthrew basically the, the belief system that the people had. Um, this is the kind of control that Savak had, uh, watching over everybody, uh, knowing everybody's little details. Um, that's different from the current quote-unquote theocratic state, which also has control over, you know, uh, how women walk on the streets or what they're wearing, etc. But it's a different kind of control. The first kind of control uh, was very vicious and very um, outreaching in terms of a big brotherly way. Um, and uh, basically what you had at the end and why the coup happened in 1979 was that the people were um, uh, mistreated, they had no dignity, they, they, um, there was huge injustice in how uh, uh, wealth was uh, divided, for example, everything uh, politically, economically, militarily was really uh, uh, sort of your elite and then the rest of, of the Iranian population. Now you have a little bit of um, wiggle room in terms of uh, changing uh, your status, right, uh, it, whether it's political or economic, but then you have uh, um, the non-acceptance of uh, anything that diverges from the uh, vision of uh, the mullahs uh, who are leading, or the, uh, um, sorry, the, the religious scholars who are leading the country. In America, anybody who cloaks himself in religion is a fraud, primarily. Certainly, the evangelicals' support for Donald Trump is you know, makes no sense. He's a fraud. I guess the evangelicals think uh, even a sinner can be redeemed and blah, blah, blah. But are we projecting 
the the fraudulent nature of American religion onto the Ayatollah Khomeini. Could it be possible that Khomeini and the mullahs are genuinely religious men who want to follow the teachings of the prophet and that a theocratic state, while it is totalitarian and they do enforce, I guess, Sharia law, but they are genuinely committed to the Koran? Is it conceivable that, unlike Donald Trump, the Ayatollahs are genuinely committed to their book? You know, I um, will refrain from talking about the evangelicals and Donald Trump. But well, I mean, in America, but, uh, you know, this is as old as the it's as old as the country to use the Bible as a cudgel to get people to get in line and do as they're told. That's as old as yeah. as the Judeo Christian tradition. Is it conceivable that a theocratic state like Iran, they're not necessarily using the Koran as a cudgel to control people. They're using it as a way to unify the nation, and they believe in the Koran. They believe in the teachings of Muhammad. Is that possible? That Yes. I mean, this was the whole, the essence of Edward Said's Orientalism. Is the, the professor the from Israeli, Columbia, Edward Said. Yes, the, yeah. the past. Yes. Um, uh, so uh, this was his proposition, uh, and there is an element of truth um, about that because if you follow travelogues uh, since the colonial days, you'll very you'll see more vividly that uh, uh, Europe was reflecting its own issues. For example, women's suffrage. Uh, onto uh, uh, the the Middle Eastern uh, region, um, so it, it is definitely a reflection. Uh, whether we talk about Sunni or Shia, uh, religion is held in very high regard, and it's not fake, and it's not an attempt to cuddle per people. Mm-hmm. It's a way of life. This it's a way of- is the, you know. Yeah, because it's a, it's a set of mores, and if if you want to think about how uh, we, for example, in our constitution, uh, there's a there's a strong Judeo-Christian uh, uh, moral behind all of this, uh, or set of mores, sorry, uh, behind all of this, and um, you see that uh, justice is usually. Uh, um, put in or phrased uh, in in very uh, religious terms, even right. if one decides to separate church from state. But then the the language, the uh, meaning, the uh, goals of what one is is putting in that uh, legal document is basically very much in line with uh, a, a, an idea of faith. I see. So if you're Uh, a colonial power, if you're a hegemonic nation, and there's oil in Iran, and you want to extract it, religion would get in the way? You you would want to take the people away from their religious beliefs, so perhaps they'll work seven days a week. So would religion be the enemy of commerce? 
for international commerce in Iran. The Shah was not a, a religious leader, right? He was pro-Western, working with Great Britain and the United States. Yes. Religion is the opposite, I think, of capitalism, because any faith commends its people to be equal, and capitalism is the opposite of that. You need to be competitive as an individual. Right, right. Somehow that hasn't taken hold in the United States, even though more and more Americans are becoming less religious. Fewer and fewer Americans are showing up to their churches, mosques, and synagogues. But we're convinced that this is a, a very religious nation. This is fantastic, and we're almost out of time. I just wanted to ask you about the current freedom to dissent in Iran and the possibility of a Persian Spring. I mean, I was shocked that people were calling for the Ayatollah Khamenei to, to step down. Is it conceivable that, that Trump could take credit inadvertently for triggering a, a Persian spring? Because this maximalist pressure on Iran, I mean, is it conceivable that it'll work? You know, and by work, I mean, it will get what Trump and the neocons want. Well, I, I don't think that history will put it down that way, nor will the Iranian people. Uh, the Iranian people uh, demonstrated a hike in price uh, uh, for oil and are demonstrating uh, um, the killing of, um, uh, I can't remember how many Persians on that Ukrainian airline. Right. Um, and, it, and it was the responsibility of uh, the regime uh, to, to... Yeah, it was 176, uh, I just looked at it. 170, yes. Yeah. Um, and, and so this is what they're protesting. Um, they're, it has nothing to do with uh, the killing of uh, Qasem Soleimani. So I don't know how that would link the American system or American foreign policy to um, any uh, resistance that the Iranian regime and Ayatollah Khamenei is uh, experiencing currently. Bob, the, the thrust of your piece over at The Conversation is that Iran is a divided nation, but there's one thing historically that has brought the Shiite community together. What has that been? Uh, it is the feeling of being uh, treated unjustly. Uh, it is um, uh, basically the, the legend very, you know, uh, historical legend of, of uh, martyrdom. Uh, those are all things that when, when push came to shove, and we can see that in 1979, where um, uh, uh, upper classmen and uh, uh, the, the uh, sort of usual left of the center academics all came together um, in 1979 for the Islamic Revolution because they could see how unjust uh, the Shah's regime was. Mm -hmm. And I, you know, the piece basically uh, uh, says, is this likely, could this likely happen again? Because here we are, we're seeing 
you know, this little divide of the students rising up because of the oil prices, uh, uh, and and then the the airplane uh, uh, event happened, uh, and and that brought on a new set of grievances against the incumbent government. But I wouldn't say that it would push the country to um, a full revolt against uh, Khamenei. Right. Had the Ukrainian airliner not been shot down, I, I I suspect from reading your piece that the entire nation of Iran would have solidified because of the outrage over the assassination of Qasem Soleimani, right? That that would have been the unifying spark, yes. right? Yes, yes. Yeah. Uh, you know, they would have left their differences kind of solidified behind uh, the leadership of their government. Kind of like after 9-11, we were united until George W. Bush squandered all the goodwill in this nation. Well, thank you so much for taking the time. You're very welcome. This is, this thank is, you for hosting me. Oh, are you kidding? This is an honor. It's just, uh, and your piece is... Incredible. We've been talking with Professor Dina Abdel Khader. She is the Associate Professor of Politics at UMass Lowell. Her piece over the conversation is entitled Killing of Soleimani Evokes Dark History of Political Assassinations in the Formative Days of Shiite Islam. And uh, again, thank you for taking time to be with us. I hope you come back. Thank you. Can you stand on the line for one second, Professor? Yep. You're listening to The David Feldman Show, you happy, self-actualized hump. Joining us, he's back, is Howie Klein. He's the founder and treasurer of the Blue America Pack, which raises money for progressive, some socialist candidates. He also writes Down with Tyranny, which everybody should read each day. Welcome back. Welcome back. Welcome back. It has been at least three weeks, right? Two weeks? Uh, well, about three weeks, a little more maybe, I'm not sure. I was, uh, as you probably recall, I was in uh, Thailand uh, while I was there, and it was funny because uh, when we were going back, Roland said to me, so what was the best thing about your trip? Um, because our trips weren't the same. I mean, he, I was just in Bangkok. He went wandering around in the wilderness. So he asked me what was the best part of my trip, and I said, I know it sounds really funny, but going to the dentist. You went to the dentist? and I did. I went to the dentist. They, they have really good uh, medical care there. And the, the dentist was better than any dentist I've had uh, work on me that I can remember in my life. He was really, really good. And the cost, I mean, a deep root cleaning, what does that cost in where you, where you live? Do you know? A deep root cleaning? The gutters? Yeah. The pipes? No, your mouth. Yeah, the your teeth. Yeah, I'm, I know. I'm talking about the whole thing. I yeah. I don't know. Uh, I would say hundred dollars. 
A deep root cleaning? No, it, I'm not talking about a, shining your teeth out. I'm talking about going in uh, under the gums and uh, under the bone. In any case, in L.A., it's $5,000. Some people have told me that they found uh, discounts and they've been able to get it for two grand, but it, it cost me about $130. Wait a second. What and, is a deep root cleaning? I've never heard of a deep root cleaning. You're talking about... What is do you go to the dentist to get your teeth cleaned? Yes, I do. Good. Well, if the dentist hasn't said to you that you need a deep root cleaning, then you don't. So but I never good. said to the dentist that I ran Reprise Records for 20 years and don't have to work <laughs> for a living. That's no, how dentistry you know, works. We'll tell you if you need a deep root cleaning. It's it's, it's when you, um, you know, don't uh, take care uh, enough, and then you you get um, you get some uh, bad stuff under your gums. And that had been my that my dentist died, and uh, they were that bad. Replaced. Your teeth were that bad that you, <laughs> it killed the dentist. <laughs> I didn't kill the dentist. He was good. I liked him, but uh, somewhat. But I don't know how effective he was. But I, I kind of liked the guy. But he died. He was all very old. And um, and then the next dentist I went to was just so terrible that I, I stopped going to dentists after her. She was just the worst. <laughs> and um, and then this guy is great. He's now my dentist. I can't pronounce his name. It's very long and has like twenty syllables. But he's my dentist. Okay. But what about your dentist in, in Bangkok? That's my dentist in Bangkok. Oh, the, he's so your new dentist. The guy with his syllables. So whenever I need dental work, I have to go to Bangkok, which isn't the worst thing to do anyway. Now, okay, that's interesting. By the way, there's a great piece. It was written a year ago in The Atlantic about dentistry. It may have been Harper's. Dentistry is not medicine. They've they've never established uniform treatments. You can get twenty different opinions from twenty different dentists. Is that yes? Is, are I you getting a you call? Get, and it's you know when I was very very young. I think I may may have told you the story. I'm not sure, but when I was very very young, I. Um, went uh, with my, my father took me to an eye doctor and the eye doctor said, you know, I'm practically blind and I, I, I need this and I need that. It was like a, uh, a whole Megillah uh, that was going to cost a fortune. And my father didn't believe it. And he took me to another eye doctor who said, my eyes are perfect. Mm -hmm. And that experience really soured me on uh, the medical profession uh, and uh, they're pr and, and that's why I always think it's good to get um, a second opinion. All right. Can I ask yeah. you for a favor? Like American dentists have a tendency to tell to, to tell me anyway that uh, you know my teeth are horrible. I've not taken care of them properly. I'm disgusting. <laughs> they hate me. Uh, you know, I mean, I mean, they make me feel so bad that I don't want to go see them. Yeah. Uh, and this guy uh, in Thailand was so good. He was such a great dentist. He was just amazing. And you know, I mean, when I first got in there, I said to him, "How?" First, I said. Which one of you is the dentist between him and the dental uh, clinician who looked like she was older than him? Uh, and he said, I am. I said, how old are you? Thinking, you know, I have like a 19-year-old dentist. But it turned out he was 26. I asked him if he had ever done it before, and he said yes. But And he was really good. He was just great. He was great. And, you know, in, in, I don't know how it is where you live, but in, in, in L.A., when you, you go for deep root cleaning, they, they 
divide your mouth into quarters, and they do one quarter a week for a month. They they don't ever do the whole thing. But in Thailand, it's not. They don't do that. They don't do it that way. They just do the whole thing. I mean, you're there for hours and hours and hours. But, uh, you know, they just, you know, they just do it and, you know, but you're exhausted and, you know, afterwards. But he had a really good hand. He was very, very, uh, gentle. It never hurt me. Wow. You know, I've never been to a dentist that didn't hurt me, ever. Wow. I, I always thought it was like part of their thing to like hurt the patient. And this guy didn't hurt me at all. And like now when I smile, I just like, it's just dazzling. Wow. <laughs> and it was so cheap. All right. Anyway, I have to ask you, you ask me about my vacation. Yeah, but I have to ask you for a favor. Okay. Okay. Stop talking about my vacation. No, 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 no. I I have to get a joke out of my system because my listeners are going to email us and say, "Why didn't you make this joke about how?" Now, I I'm just doing this be, because I have to. Uh, how is it going to be worse than the uh, killing my dentist with my my breath? No, no, no. I, that you had you went to a dentist in Thailand. What time was your appointment? Tooth hurdy. That's a old joke that somebody is going to the tooth hurdy, tooth hurty joke. It's a, okay, it's that's kind of lame, but I know. But it's it, if I didn't say it, I couldn't. The trick to doing the show is staying in the moment and hanging on your every word. But that two thirty thing was like bothering me. So I got it out of my system. Okay, so you were in Thailand for three weeks. It was. It was great. It was wonderful. I had a good time. And I just got a um, an email from Alan Grayson. Just a second, which I opened while you were telling your two thirty joke. (laughs) And. He, he wants to talk, and I'm just uh, writing him back saying I'm doing an interview with you on the radio, and that we'll talk later. Okay, so thanks to Howie Klein, we have Congressman Alan Grayson on the show, who is an absolute genius. The man is an absolute genius, and one of the things that is kind of annoying is that he's also funnier than I am. So he wrote this great book about the impeachment, the history of impeachment that everybody should go by. And he's this this is how brilliant he is. He says to me, why don't you accuse this? So we do the interview. He says, why don't I come back next week and you accuse me of ghost having the book ghost written and you quiz me on the facts in the book. Isn't that a great idea? Absolutely. Very, very, very smart. I, I have a friend who did have a ghostwriter, and uh, he was going on a, and he didn't write the book. And I don't, I kind of suspect he didn't read the book. Similar to Trump, he didn't write um, right. Schwartz, his book right. either. So, uh, but my friend started a book tour, and then he was horrified when people started asking him things about the book that he hadn't written or, or read, uh-huh. and he ended the tour. Okay. Uh, anyway, so uh, let, let's discuss the debates are tonight, and you have been saying that Elizabeth Warren is not your first choice. Bernie's your first well, she's choice. She's no longer my second choice, and I uh, unsubscribe from all of her um, email lists, so I, I won't be getting any more emails from her. I'm very much over her now. Hang on. There. 
Okay, go ahead. Did you hear I'm that? Very disappointed. I, I, I'm when very, you told me, te- are you, t- tell me what again you that drag me. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry. Are you going to drag me through the mud now? No, no. Tell me. You told me that you no longer support Elizabeth Warren, and I played. Yes. What happened? I heard it. What happened? Oh, she. Uh, she. You know. I can understand, you know, not, you know, disagreeing with Bernie and in the beginning of their little fight, fine, what is what it is. But then, then to, so anyway, uh, okay, I want to preface this with something. A, a political operative who doesn't work for Bernie or Elizabeth told me he had it on very, very good information that that CNN anonymous story that didn't come because some CNN reporters dug it up. It came because the Warren campaign told them to run it. And tell and, everybody and what the it. tell everybody what the story is, please. Was which was bullshit. Uh, was that Bernie said a, a woman could never run, a, a woman could never win. Right. But what Bernie did say was that uh, she, Elizabeth Warren, should expect Trump, if she's the nominee, to unleash all of his ugly misogyny against her. Right. Now that's very, very different from saying a woman can never win. Right. And I'm very, I was very disappointed in Elizabeth Warren, uh, you know, playing right into the hands of Trump and Biden uh, and smearing Bernie like this because she's desperate. I mean, she, you know, she's falling and falling in the polls. Iowa is coming up. New Hampshire is coming up. She's not going to win either one of them, and she's not doing well in other states either. And suddenly, I mean, instead of doing what I thought she was going to do which was to form a joint ticket with Bernie, uh, she instead decided to uh, uh, attack him and in, a, in a dishonest way. So that's what happened, and that's why I unsubscribed to everything and why I uh, wrote a post about it and why I'm so disappointed and angry and you know, horrified that I, I actually donated money to her campaign. If you did. We, we don't know if you did. I did. Oh, you did? I did, I did. Yes. And what about her stance on the public option and not Medicare for all, the way she prevaricated on Medicare for all, telling people that she's... Oh, look. Oh, she's a co-sponsor of Bernie's uh, Medicare for all bill. So, you know, she she maybe has a preference, but she's a co-sponsor of his bill, meaning if, if it comes up, she's certainly going to vote for it. So, you know, I don't want to be defending her now on the day that I'm you know, pissed off at her. So that isn't a good question to ask me. So unask it. I'm unasking it, but I'm just observing that I find the allegations. It hurt her to be, you know, waffling on, on these things. And that's why, that, you know, when she started waffling is when her numbers started falling. Right. You know, so people don't know where is she on Medicare for. People don't know. Right. I don't know. I, she's, not, she's been in several places, several different times, and says different things to different audiences, which is why she's not going to be president. Right. As I understand it, she has said that we're going to try the, the like a public option for the first three years, and if we really like the public option, then we'll vote on Medicare for all, because that's what we do in a democracy. We vote. And so a public option... Uh, is health insurance. It's not health care. And it's deceptive. So she's preying on low information voters who don't know the difference between Medicare for all and a public option. 
So I, I anyway, the debates are tonight. Bernie will be the target because he's in the lead before it was Buddha judge and Biden and Elizabeth Warren. It's Bernie. Well, Buttigieg was never in the lead on anything. Well, he was. But, a, uh, he was coming but up. Bernie will definitely be the target because he has been sparring with uh, Biden, and I'm sure Biden wants to hit back as hard as he can. And I'm sure uh, Biden, who's basically uh, intellectually a robot, is being uh, fed all this, all these attack lines against Bernie. So we can expect that tonight. And uh, and Elizabeth Warren, who is kind of has been, uh, you know, part of a tag team with Bernie. Until now, uh, I, I'm sure she's going to go after him as well and infuriate progressives. Uh, she's, she's making she's making it very hard on herself. And, you know, I mean, I wound up, you know, so angry after reading all that bullshit from her today that I, I actually tweeted that how disappointed I was. And that after all, uh, you know, I had to tell myself that a Republican is always a Republican. Once a Republican, always a Republican. And she was a Republican. And, you know, I've used her in the past as an example of a Republican who uh, actually abandoned the party and and took the right path. And, uh, you know, I don't know that I'll ever be able to do that again. Could it? I, I don't mean to traffic in conspiracy theories, but, you know, the ratings are down for the Democratic debates. Nobody's watching them anymore. Is it possible they're going, you know, WWE World wrestling, and they want a little drama to go into tonight. He always wants drama, and they always, you know, uh, kind kind of, uh, you know, spark this kind of stuff and play it up. I mean, in the post that I wrote this morning, you know, I, I talked. To, I started it by talking about what, how great it was that Bernie was endorsed by the SEIU of uh, New Hampshire, mm-hmm. and what a big deal it is, especially with the SEIU nationally. Uh, being neutral and telling their locals to stay neutral. This really important SEIU uh, in in New Hampshire endorsed Bernie in a very loud way. And I I said, you know, this is not what you're going to hear uh, Rachel Maddow talking about or or uh, Anderson Cooper talking about. Neither one of them is going to mention this, even though it's really important because all they're going to want to talk about is the fight between Bernie and Elizabeth Warren. That's it. And uh, yes, so I mean, don't you don't have to get into a conspiracy theory to 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 recognize that the media flames these, uh, I mean, uh, fans these kind of flames, and and they will be doing that. Absolutely, tonight, I guarantee you, the representatives of the media will be doing everything they can to uh, to, to see a fight. Actually, I thought it was being orchestrated by the Democratic Party. I thought that Bernie and Elizabeth Warren get along, and they figured they need a little drama to get eyeballs, that it would be good for the party for a little fight like this. Remember who, who, uh, who started this was um, the worst journalist that the New York Times employs, a woman named Sidney um, Ember. Yeah, she lives to to uh, attack Bernie. She, I don't want to start using filthy words. about. I, I can't. I'm trying to control myself. But she is a Wall Street shill. Right. Her husband works on Wall Street. They are horrible, wealthy, etc., etc. Yes. I, I don't. I'm, I, I just. I'm trying to control myself from using filth language. I don't want to offend your listeners. Right. Well, so, 
And she's the one that got this thing going. She was the one that did everything she could to spark this fight. Um, so I don't know. I mean, yes, it could have been the Democratic Party. I doubt it. But yes, if I find out it was, I'm not going to be in shock. It could have, it could have been. Um, and it could have been, uh, it could have been a media thing, absolutely. And it, it, it could have been, you know, the Biden campaign. That would be pretty smart. Or the Bloomberg campaign. So, so we don't know. Or, or maybe it was none of the above. Would it surprise you tonight if Bernie and Elizabeth Warren don't go at it? That they are actually. No. That would not surprise me. It would make me really happy. Right. I, and I don't think we're going to see them going at it. I'm not so sure, but uh, you may be right. I think she will attack him. Does she attack, you know, Klobuchar attacks and Buddha judge attacks? Oh, my God. She went after Biden like a mad person. Oh, that's and, right. And, oh, that's right. I'm and sorry. May so she attacks. You're, you're yes, right. She does. You're absolutely right. And she is. You're absolutely right. Well, I think pick... good at it. I'm sorry. She attacks and she's good at it. Right. 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 Going after Bernie is not a smart move because he can defend himself. Right. You know, he's I don't think he wants to fight with her and he can defend himself. But, uh, you know, I think it's a bad move for her. But she's as I said, she's desperate. She feels like, you know, she wants that progressive lane. And Bernie is Bernie's got it. And not only has Bernie got the progressive lane, it's growing at her expense. Uh, when you everywhere uh, in the country, you see his numbers going up and her numbers going down. And if she really wants to to be the nominee for president and doesn't want to just be Bernie's uh, vice president, which is what I thought was going to happen. Right. But if she really wants that nomination, she it has to knock him off. And uh, she won't. There's no. There's no path for her if Bernie is 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 winning among progressives. I mean, there's there's two lanes. She's not going to get the conservative lane, so she's got to get the progressive lane. You wrote about this yesterday over down with tyranny. Biden still has strength with the African American registered voter. Forty eight percent of Black registered voters who lean Democratic say they're going to vote for Vice President Joe Biden. So what is that about? Why are African-Americans not flocking to to Bernie? Uh, one word, Obama. They, they, they don't know Biden's history as a racist. They don't know how he got started in politics. And apparently they don't care. Uh, all they want to think about is that Obama picked him. Uh, to be VP. And I think most of these people don't, I mean, <clears throat> this is not a majority of African American voters, it's a plurality. And, and most of them, I don't think, understand that, um, uh, uh, that, that Obama was doing ticket balancing. And, and that's why he picked, uh, Biden. Obama, you know, was painting himself at the time as a progressive. And he needed someone who he thought would be a, you know, a conservative. And Biden was certainly one of the most conservative Democrats in the Senate, if not the most conservative. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and the other thing is, come on, Obama was black and uh, uh, Biden's a racist. Right. I mean, Biden's Biden's entire the, his career, his the early part of his career 
was based, it was just based on racism. That's it. That's all he was, was a racist. He was, uh, he, he ran a, his campaigns based on stopping busing. That was it. That was his issue. Right. Uh, now he, he, he's always, and then when, once he got into the Senate, who did he hang out with? Strom Thurmond. Spoke, uh, spoke in his memorial. Uh, uh, Jesse Helms. I mean, those were his pals. That's who he hung with. He hated progressives, like really hated them, and gravitated to to, to, to other racists like himself. He, he, you know, a lot of people don't really have a clear understanding of who Biden is. You know, they just know, yeah, he was, he was, uh, and this isn't just black people, this is white people as well. They just think, yeah, he was Obama's, uh, VP and he, he seems to be pretty good. And, uh, that's it. You know, I have been denouncing Biden since the first day I started my blog and I've hated Biden since the early seventies. And basically I've hated Biden because he was a racist. That's the reason I hated Biden. And I've never liked him for one second. And any time he ever did anything that looked good, I always tried to look behind it to, to see what was really there. I mean, he tries to claim, you know, he was the, uh, you know, the, the father of uh, the civil rights movement, even though he's a racist. He tried to claim he was the father of gay, uh, gay liberation, even though he was a homophobic slob for his entire career until Obama said, you know, why don't you float this trial balloon and let's see how it goes. And he did. And now he claims and, and he's so senile. He believes his claims. Right. Right. So he's terrible. He, he would make such a terrible president. It, it, it just it just sickens me to think that people are going to have to choose between him and Trump. Right. I, I, I actually believe that Trump can, can beat him. Oh, yeah. It's horrifying. Oh, of course. Horrifying. Of course he could. Biden is the weakest candidate the Democrats can could possibly put up. He would do much worse than Hillary. Hillary, I mean, Hillary is better than him in every way, uh, and I'm no Hillary fan. And on top of that, Hillary had a huge base of women who didn't care about anything except electing a woman. That's what they cared about. Biden, who, who's, who's going to care about Biden? Is his vote to authorize the war in Iraq, is that... Which he's now lying about. Is he? He's running up and down and saying he was against the war. He, he's been. There are tapes all over the internet of him saying he was against the war. And I mean, how hard is it to find the tapes during that period of him saying, you know, uh, denouncing Democrats who were against the war? He did denounce Democrats who were against the war. He and he he was the chairman or the ranking member of the Foreign Relations Committee, and it, it was his job to round up, it was like a Judas goat, mm-hmm. it was his job to round up votes in favor of the war in Iraq, and he did. And lots of Democrats didn't go for it, but lots of Democrats did go for it. He, he's just awful. He's always been awful. He's awful on anything. He has terrible judgment, and he is a reflexive conservative. I mean, we, he shouldn't. Have, he shouldn't be. He should be driven out of this race the same way he was driven out of every other time, every other race he he ran. You know, people say, well, he's run two times before, or three times before, or but he had. He's run seven times or six times before. This is the seventh race. They haven't all gotten to the point of him actually. Uh, going for it, but he has tried seven times to be president, six times before this, and has been each time laughed off off the ballot. 
Right. He's never gotten anywhere. He never had anybody, anybody who liked him, including all of this 48% of African Americans who didn't have anything to do with him. Now it's strictly because they associate him with Obama. That's it. Tonight during the debates, how much conversation will be about Iran? And Bernie can take a page from Obama's playbook because Obama didn't support the war in Iraq. He didn't have to vote on it. He wasn't in the Senate, but he could he was on record being opposed to the war in Iraq. And he ran on that. Bernie was opposed. I believe Bernie did not vote for the war authorization in in the House. Is that correct? Absolutely correct. And so So one that Bernie ever made was when he was in the House and he voted for the Afghan war with every single Democrat and every single Republican except one person, Barbara Lee. And he now says that Barbara Lee was the only person who got that right and he got it wrong. So at least he admits it, unlike Biden, who's trying to tell people he was against the war in Iraq when he was, you know, if you have to find 10 people in the world who caused that war, he's one of the 10. Uh He wasn't just some passive voter. He was one of the people that caused the war in Iraq, which has been the greatest foreign policy disaster in American, in contemporary American history. And now they're studying 2016 and they're finding that a lot of the swing states went to Trump because places like Michigan, Pennsylvania and Wisconsin bore a heavier brunt when it came to the wars that a lot of the kids came back to uh, Ohio, Michigan, to the swing states. And they believed Trump when he said Iraq was an example of why interventionism is wrong and we shouldn't be fighting these senseless wars. Do you think I don't know that Trump can do that again, but uh, well, let me ask you. Do you get a sense that, you know, I we hate Trump, obviously, but he's he's gotten us into less fewer wars than Hillary would have. And the American people pick up on that, especially those who have kids in the military. Um, I, I personally doubt that he that Hillary would have gotten us into more wars. I think they both probably would have done about the same. Um, Hillary. Um, do you, th- do you think Hillary, Trump really wants a war in Iran? Do you really do you think Trump wants to say I'm now a wartime president rally around the flag? I don't. I'm wrong on everything, but I don't think he Trump wants. Afraid. I'm sorry. He's afraid of both alternatives. Uh, uh, he's afraid of being seen as a wimp and he's afraid of leading the country into war. He's just he's mixed up. He's confused. He's getting different advice from different people. But, uh, you know, he's very, very lucky that the Iranians didn't decide to uh, to really go for it. Uh, he's really, really lucky and it had nothing to do with his skill. They just did, didn't do it. Uh, I mean, you know, uh, killing one of their top leaders when we're not at war is an act of war. Uh, and they, you know, they certainly could have taken him up on it, but they they wisely didn't. I don't know. I'm and tr- I don't know how many of his uh, supporters see it that way. I, I did see, uh, uh, polling that came out even before, 
I, I mean, yesterday on Face the Nation and several other shows, some of his, uh, uh, well, especially his defense minister, minister his de- I mean, defense, Secretary of Defense, made it clear that he's full of shit, that he was dancing around uh, all these excuses for what happened were lies. And, uh, it, it, you know, I don't know how many of his own supporters will care about that one way or the other, but what is um, clear is that they are... Um, that, that more Americans think that we're less safe now, and more Americans think he's botched, um, he, he's botched Iraq, I mean Iran. Okay, you, you have to go, and uh, I, I, my gut tells me that as much as I hate him and want him locked up and sent away forever, I don't think this is going to lead to World War III, and I think if anybody could stand up to the military-industrial complex, it's Donald Trump. He won't, but he's, he's, taken, he's taken on the CIA, the FBI, the Constitution, the majority. Well, I'm sorry? He's taken them on. He's just defended himself. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Uh, Tulsi Gabbard, who you don't like and I've been suspicious of, She's committed to ending the, the these wars, right? That that seems to be the thing she's running on. I, she's another one that has confusing um, confusing stands, uh, you know. From from and yes, she tries she tries to come across as someone who's anti-war, and at the same time, she try, she tries to come across as someone who's also very very tough. I don't know where she is and and what she's going to be. But I do have to go now. Okay. Howie Klein is the founder and treasurer of the Blue America Pack. Read him over at Down with Tyranny. We'll talk to you next week. Talk to you next week. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. Bye. You're listening to The David Feldman Show, you happy, self-actualized hump. Let us now go to Kennebunk, where Peabody, an Emmy Award-winning comedy writer, author, and yes, musician, Jim Earl, is standing by. Hello, Jim Earl. Lot to talk about. The debates are tonight. Lot to talk about. Oh, what in the hell do you want, David? This uh, is Senator Susan Collins. Yes, I, I forgot. You, you and Jim Earl, still, still going strong. Jimmy can't come to the phone right now. He's very busy reorganizing my Neil Sedaka collection of cassette tapes. You're a big fan of Neil Sedaka. I love Neil Sedaka. Yeah. Music's a little little spicy for a conservative woman like you, but you like to let your freak out occasionally, right? I hear laughter in the rain, uh, walking hand in hand with the one I love. Uh, what a beautiful... Oh, thank I, you, David. David, let's get right to it, yes. Dave. Yes, Senator. As you know, Jew. I, I'm sorry, what did, what did you say? You said Do as I you... stutter? Yeah, I, I think you said as you know, Jew. Is there an echo in here? 
I'm sorry. Go ahead. I'm a moderate. Yes. Do you know what that means, David? You tell me. It means I'm an old crow who loves Jim Crow. (laughs) By the way, I had occasion to listen to your last podcast, David. Oh, thank you. My interview was an integral part. And I cannot believe you had the audacity to put my very important and timely segment on Maine's endangered birds, like the turd-covered butt thruster, (laughs) between a segment on Iran and some professor of philosophy or something. I've never been more offended and disappointed in all my days. Have you no sense of decency at long last, David? Have you no sense of decency? Who edits your show? You're pathetic. And your podcast sounds like it was cut with a rusty pair of hedge clippers. Wow. I demand an immediate apology, David. Well, I, I do admire the the forcefulness of your statement. Oh, fuck off, David. You're wow. pathetic. Wow. Nobody this is, this tells is... Susan Collins she's had too much to drink. <laughs> Are you? I'll have you know, goddamn you all to hell. She is not a sexual predator. Susan Collins has paid top dollar good cash money for every single twink who's gone down on her bone dry whisker biscuit, and she's not afraid to say it. Senator, you're you're up for re-election. Are you day drinking? Oh. David, that's why the people of Maine respect and admire her. I mean me so much, so very much. And that's because they're so bone jarringly stupid. (laughs) The people of Maine. Yes, David. Are are bone jarringly stupid. Yes. David, what do you call a smart person in Maine? Uh, What? A visitor. These are your constituents. You're running for re-election. Yes, David. It's a tough one. This is one of your tougher campaigns. Of course it is. Okay. And, David, as you know, I'm sponsoring many bills, and I'm the proud sponsor of the lower prescription drug prices, but not really, Bill. Oh, the lower prescription drug prices, but not really, Bill. Yes. Good for you. That's. Thank you. How do you remember? Is there an acronym? Usually you have an acronym for your bills. Well, it would be. (laughs) Leave me alone, for Christ's sake. What's wrong with you? Well, I need a prescription. I have this cold. And thanks to the lower prescriptions bill for. What is it? The lower. It's called. The lower prescription drug prices, but not really, Bill. That sounds like you're finally addressing a serious problem. Well. We all need fixing. 
how does my bill lower prescription drug prices? How does your bill lower? Aren't you? How does your bill lower prescription drug prices? Well, I'll tell you. But first, mommy, mommy needs a little sip of 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 liquid courage. (laughs) I'm I'm deeply concerned. Oh, yeah, I love the way my Jack Daniels slides slippery and suggestively down my throat. It's warm, spreading smoothly throughout my grateful and awaiting belly. Hmm. Your your grateful and undulating belly. Hmm. Oh, get your mind out of the gutter, David. I'm talking about the way my next-door neighbor's grandson, Jack Daniels, slides his hard-shafted man-nozzle in and out and in and out of my larynx during palatial. Not, not drinking whiskey. Now, now, where was I? You were talking about your bill that will lower the prices of prescription drugs, but not really. How in the world did I run out of Quavassier this early in the morning? (laughs) You know, you are running for re-election, and we have listeners in Maine, Senator. I'm just saying, I'm just saying. I know. And you know what else, too? I haven't had a town hall meeting in Maine for over 20 years. But do you know the real reason why? No. Because I hate every town in this fucking state. <laughs> and you can quote me on that. But these are these are your people. You You need their votes. Poland, Belfast, Norway, Lisbon, China. You know why all these towns in Maine are named Poland, Belfast, Norway, Lisbon, and China? No. Because people here would rather be in Poland, Norway, <laughs> Lisbon, Belfast, and China than in fucking Maine. <laughs> Did you know the great state of Maine also has many amusing town names? No, I didn't. Some enterprising Mainers have even written amusing limericks about them. Oh. Like the town of Leeds. Yes, Leeds. Would you like to hear a limerick? About Leeds, Maine. Yes, there once was a fellow from Leeds... Who swallowed a package of seeds. Great tufts of fine grass sprouted out of his ass. And, and, why won't anyone fuck me? (laughs) Oh, David. I love sausage. I really do. That's a great limerick. That is a great limerick. Thank you. But I digress. Uh Have you ever been to Greenbush? Greenbush, Maine? Yes, Greenbush, Maine. I I found out why it's called Greenbush. 
Why? Because mommy's got moss growing on her coos was already taken <laughs> by New Hampshire. <laughs> Fuck New Hampshire. Mommy needs her courage juice. Okay. <laughs> Okay, Senator. Are you, are you, David, yeah, are you, have you ever been to Friendship, Maine? Friendship, Maine? Yes, no. Friendship. I, no. Well, I found out why it's called Friendship. Oh. Nobody there wants to fuck me. <laughs> Not even the alpacas. Oh, the alpacas don't want to have relations with you. That's... That's mean. David, David, have you ever been to Allagash? <laughs> Allagash. I don't believe I've ever had the pleasure. Do you know why it's called Allagash? <laughs> uh, because I don't know. Something to do with gas. <laughs> Leave me alone already. <laughs> I, I don't know. We have listeners in Allagash, so I'll uh, hopefully they'll write oh, in. Hello, Allagash. As you know, David, last week America celebrated two very important holidays: mm-hmm. National Bean Day yes. and National Law Enforcement <laughs> Appreciation Day. And I did my part. By crapping on the Bill of Rights. <laughs> Diarrhea. <laughs> Baking up, David. Oh, uh, yes. I hope you know there's a flu epidemic happening right now in Maine. And Mainers naturally look to me for medical advice. Yes. Yesterday, for instance, one lady asked me, if it was possible to take a bath with diarrhea. And I said, only if you have enough. (laughs) David, I've had my medical problems, too. It used to be that every time I went to Taco Bell, I'd get diarrhea. My husband said, try ordering tacos next time, you asshole. <laughs> but you learn. You learn uh, yes. from adversity, David. Yes, you, you do. Learn. Yes. It's yes. a learning, learning yes. instance. Yes. For example... Yes. I found out what the difference is between a turd and diarrhea. Oh, good. Yeah. Do you know? No. Well, you can't gargle with a turd. (laughs) Boy, you really are dating Jim Earl, aren't you? Thank you, David. Hey, David. Yes, Senator. Why do you call a person in Maine who doesn't have explosive diarrhea? I give up. A visitor. (laughs) 
I love you, David. Uh, You're pathetic. Thank you. Ah, <laughs> 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 oh, well. Senator, it's, it's, that's really all. <laughs> All I have time for today. I have to go now. Besides, my bottle is empty. Well, you you have work to do. I'm sorry. Pompeo. Who? Who? I I didn't hear what you said. Pompeo. Mike Pompeo. Yes. Jimmy, Jimmy, come quickly and call the Humane Society. Something is hatching on mommy again. (laughs) I'm Susan Collins, and I approve this. (laughs) Oh, you're pathetic. Jim? Yeah? Wow, you've got your hands full. With the senator. Well, she's got, uh, Senator Collins is uh, having a hard time with this re-election. Uh, she's got to get a lot of blowback. I mean, she's got a lot of pushback. Yeah. From a, a lot of pissed off people. Well. Yeah. Sounds like, sounds like she's on a bender back there. Oh, she just likes her ice cubes. There's nothing, nothing out of the ordinary about that. Okay. I wow. think Colossier. Okay. She has work to do. I just hope you're helping her. I don't. This feels oh, like yeah, a Sid and Nancy to, uh, thing going on. I'm helping her with her contributions. Okay. A lot of out of state contributions and uh, avoiding citizens of Maine, mostly. Okay. Most of whom are white and pudgy and uh, too old to leave the house. Okay. I, you know, it's none of my business. I just hope she's okay. I know you can drag people down with you. And, you know, some of your relationships have been notoriously self-destructive. So I'm hoping that uh, she doesn't pay a political price by being enmeshed with you. But listen. Oh, I'm going to ruin her. Yeah, what? Huh? Uh, Jim. That wasn't me. That was a... Yeah, that's a United States senator. I know. You'd think she'd have a better attitude towards her constituents, but it's... uh, You know how it goes. But you should be protected. You need to protect her. Yeah. Familiarity uh, breeds contempt, I guess. Yeah, but you you have a responsibility as her partner to make sure... I know. I'm I'm doing a pretty good job. You ought to see her when I'm not around. Jim, we'll come back to you later in the show. I think you need to tend to Senator Susan Collins. I, I can't sit idly back and talk to you until you've taken care of her. Why? Well, okay. Yeah, I, I don't, I'll clean up and uh, I'll get back to you. Okay. You'll be back later in the show. Thank you, Jim and Senator Susan Collins.
Mark Breslin joins us. He is the founder and president of Yuck Yucks, the largest comedy chain in North America, perhaps the world. And we're going to get some insight into Megan and Harry's move to Canada because, as we've mentioned before, Mark Breslin is royalty. He's got a pipeline straight to Buckingham Palace, so we'll find out all about that, as well as Justin Trudeau's facial hair. Welcome back, sir. Hello. How are you, David? Good. We were trying to figure out how to record this, and you said technology is not for Jews. Then we try to figure out who amongst Silicon Valley's royalty is Jewish. You said Zuckerberg, right? Well, Zuckerberg is an obvious one. Um, you know, it's interesting, especially with virtual reality, when that started to come out um, just prior to the, you know, the Internet revolution. I looked at it and I thought, there's no Jews involved here. No Jew, no good can come of this. Um, because virtual reality is about as trafe as it possibly can get. Um Jews like the real world, where and and our religion is a real world religion. Oh, that's interesting. In, in so many ways, the right? here and the now. And so I've always. It's all about the here and the now. There's not a lot of stuff about you know what happens in heaven. It's a very vague description compared to other religions, which actually is the center of most religions. And for us, it's a bit you know out there and not really spelled out. And I thought the same thing was true. That's why probably a lot of Jews. Hardly any Jews were involved in virtual reality, and it seems so. It seems so wrong to me. I watched my child uh, play uh, this this virtual reality with this virtual reality set on his tenth on his ninth birthday. We brought all his friends to an, uh, this place, and as they were you know wandering around with these goggles, shooting at nothing, I thought this is not Jewish. <laughs> all right. Well, the glasses are. Yeah, maybe the glasses are. Yeah, and they're and they're also tinted. Like they all look like a bunch of ninety year old uh, right. ninety year olds in nursing homes. Speaking of which, I've got to read you something. Um, it's an item out of our local paper, Toronto Star. It's a good paper, but uh, let me read you this. <clears throat> when Shane Morrow went to visit his uncle Larry at Glendale Care Center in Toronto's Swansea <laughs> neighborhood last week, he noticed something strange on his head. Shane said he and his mother initially thought his uncle had some sort of accident and that the black marks they were seeing were stitches. However, upon closer look, he realized they were very wrong. Someone had drawn a swastika and a happy face on his uncle's head in black marker. I couldn't believe my eyes, Shane said. <laughs> He questioned the staff member on duty who allegedly told him this was one of two swastikas that were drawn on the 65-year-old body by a younger dad. Come on. He then attempted to scrape off the swastika with his fingernail. Come on now, Mark. And it goes on and on and on and on. And, you know, I'm thinking, well, uh, there's a number of possibilities, neo-Nazi being the most obvious one. I thought it could be somebody who's Hindu and yes. to wish um, his, the uncle continued good luck because you know um, the swastika is a sign of the swastika means good luck in sanskrit yes um it was good luck for everybody but the jews it was rather bad luck for them all right there is no truth by the way there is no truth that if you draw swastikas upside down it means that you're hunting germans uh whatsoever so there was i saw that i we're 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 laughing we're laughing so we don't cry and 
personally, I no, find I'm laughing because I'm punching down at some sixty-five <laughs> year old idiot. Unless somebody said, "Can I see your head?" I do so. An outbreak of lice uh, here in the hospital. Let me just run this little piece of wire on the back of your head. So it's on a bald spot, like a keeper. You know, like some sick, weird keeper. <laughs> it's we, we can't. We can't. We just can't. And, and by the way, I think the happy face is more offensive on somebody's forehead. Well, it could be. It, it, it could be. It could be, especially oh. when you're in a nursing home, which is it's not just, a very happy place. But it's anyway, just the worst. You can probably it is find the, this if you go online. It's the worst. Sorry? It's just the worst thing you can do to a senior. I mean, it's just so abusive. <laughs> want to talk about elder abuse? Well, there's your elder abuse. Plastic and happy face. Oh, as you said, I don't know which one is more. Oh, uh, how old was the senior okay. citizen? He wasn't that old. He's 65. I mean, I'm 67. I got a little bald spot. I don't want to wake up and <laughs> going that on my head. And why is my son running away from from me with a magic marker and a big gleeful smile on his head? Right. And now a Hitler you know, mustache. If you woke up with a Hitler mustache, that would be okay. But a swastika. Well, I think actually what you should have said is when, not if, <laughs> when you wake up with a Hitler mustache, um, that would be okay because I was in university and had, you know, fell asleep at parties and woke up with all kinds of stuff. I, you know, I had the cock on my mouth, the, on my face, and uh, as many do. Yes. Well, speaking of swastikas, Jojo Rabbit yes. got six nominations by the Academy. I... Uh, yes, and I was disappointed in it. Me too. Thank you for saying that. I thought it was fraudulent. I was disappointed at it. I thought it was fake. Yeah, it, 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 the tone didn't work for me. Um, it, it just didn't work. And without the gimmick of the, you know, his, the gimmick of being friends with Hitler as having a, as, uh, him as the imaginary friend wasn't really central to the plot. It really quite didn't quite connect. It was kind of a, a sidebar. And if you took it out, Anything interesting in the movie was gone. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't much for me. Um, but, you know, I'm looking at the nominees for Best Picture. Well, go back to Jojo Rabbit for what, one second. Let me, do you mind if I stay yeah. with Jojo Rabbit? I found it incredible. I'll stay with Jojo Rabbit. I found it disappointing because it really had no message other than dance. They used popular music to punch up weak cheese, you know, the use of the Beatles and the use yeah. of David Bowie. Yeah. I thought, you know, as you subscribe to Dogma 95, right? Where movies should not quite, not, not quite. No, but, um, but it's a cheat no, to rely on popular music, right? Well, it's a cheat to, well, yeah, in the sense that if you have any of those women's pictures where they all get together at one point in the script just after they find out they might beat cancer and start singing uh, to um, Dancing in the Street, yeah, yeah, I know what you mean. Yeah. It, it, so it had, the, it had a whiff of controversy, but it was totally innocuous, anodyne. Yeah, no, I have... I, now, I haven't seen the most controversial picture of the, of the bunch that's nominated, which is Parasite, and I'm hoping to see that this week. Okay. That's, the, a- that's the Asian horror film. Yeah. No, not a, well, not a horror film exactly. It's about a family, a very poor family in Korea that, um, or I think it's in Japan, sorry, that uh, insinuates itself into a wealthy person's house. Hmm. Um, they pose as 
uh, they pose as, as service people and they wind up running the household. And so it's kind of like a, a dark version of, of upstairs, downstairs. And it's, it's supposed to be great. Okay. Because I haven't seen that one, but I've seen most of the others. Well, um, Joker yeah. leads off with 11 nominations. Which surprises me because I think it's only going to really win for one of them. And that's going to be, uh, uh, Phoenix in, uh, as best actor. It's a, it's a bravura performance. But I'm not sure what else it would win. Let me go through the list and you comment, because they announced okay, the sure. Oscar nominations yesterday morning. Once Upon yeah. a Time in Hollywood got 10, came in second place with 10 nominations. Now, it's interesting. You've seen, have you seen? Oh, the movie? I, that's one of the best movies. I remember I just walked oh. out of it saying it's one of the best movies I've ever seen in my life. All right. And, and I had a different sort of take on it. Um, when I was watching it, I went, I love this guy. I love Tarantino and I love this time period and I love all the stuff I'm seeing and where the hell is it going? Where the right. hell is it going? And I had to wait and wait and wait and wait for 40, uh, two hours to get to the last 40 minutes where, uh, it becomes very clear where it's going. Right. And it's extremely exciting, but it's a uh, kind of a shaggy dog story and it meanders and you have to really enjoy the meandering. The meandering of the movie is equal to the meandering that they do in the car where they drive up and down in LA mm -hmm. all the time. They're just driving, 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 um, with not that much happening. But I have to say this. I think it's an extremely, if you're interested in woke issues, an extremely reactionary film. How so? Because it really says that if the Manson gang had wandered into a place where the tradition, where traditional masculinity reigned, which was Right. Um, uh, Leonardo DiCaprio's house, they would have been slaughtered. Instead, they went to this place which was filled with feminized hippies, and that's what, um, why they lost the, that's, that's why everybody got killed. And I think it's a lament for a traditional masculinity. Oh, that's, really uh, yeah, that's really interesting. I'm, I want to be careful not to tip the end, because, you know, it's a. Uh... I think most people know. Well, he, yeah, and in defense of the meandering, I walked out of the movie and I said, well, I understand the extra hour because it's it's alternative history. And he had to lull you into complacency before you get reminded that this is a Quentin Tarantino movie. That's what I thought was really right. genius about it. I let my guard down. And I forgot about Inglorious Bastards. I forgot about alternative history. And it's quick. I knew that was going to happen because I saw it late. Um, I saw it like a, when it was eight weeks into the run. I see. So I kind of knew what was going to happen <laughs> anyway. Um, I, don't get me wrong. I liked it. I'm a huge Tarantino fan. It was one of my favorite movies of the year. But I, I just had a, some problems with it, as I have with problems with everything I love. So, you know, right. including people in my life. Right. So, uh, by the way, I'm not a big, I'm not a big, I'm not a big Quentin Tarantino fan. I mean, I, 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 I know that's sacrilege, but I find his movies to be, uh, they're not about anything other than movies. I don't, I just, I know people are going to complain and say, like, I didn't think Pulp Fiction was really about anything other than style. Well, am I, I wrong? I thought it was about. Well, I thought it was about time and causality, um, because that's what he's playing with. And it was extremely entertaining on top of everything else. It was just extremely entertaining. And, you know, he comes from a background, but not an ugly background, but kind of like a raw pop, pop culture, 
bad video B movie background, and somehow he finds in in that world um, some significance. Yeah. Um, but we all live in that world of of bad movies. We all live as if we live in a bad movie. You pick up the headlines; it's a bad movie. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, the 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 plane going down is Michael Bay this week. Right. Right. I'll get to that in a second because you're from Canada, and it's tragic here. All the all of all of the flags are flying half mast. So how big? Okay, let's let's pause on the Oscars for a second. We'll get to that tragedy. We'll get back to that tragedy of the Oscars in a second. And not a tragedy this year. Sorry, can't make that statement. Actually, I think it's they're very good movies. It's a very good year. No female directors. No host. Uh, which, which is great. <laughs> which is uh, really sad, and uh, I don't know how that happened. Greta didn't get nominated. Minorities in, Ho- minorities in Hollywood, it's a bit cyclical. I mean, there uh, there's are there any black movies nominated that I can, none that I can see. Well, no. Jojo Rabbit sounds like it could have been a black movie. Like a, well, it sounds like a hip hop uh, <laughs> yeah. act, actually, doesn't it? Yeah. But um, there's no there's no black there's no black um, pro- major black presence um, no. in the Best Picture or. or but Obama got a actresses. Obama got a, a nomination. President Obama nomination for the documentary about the, the factory. He made that great oh, movie oh, about right, 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 right. And he got nominated yeah, for an Oscar. I'm sorry. That hasn't played here yet. Well, I think it's fantastic. It never here. I think it's fantastic that Barack Obama promised us he would never stop working for the American people. And I don't know how he finds the time to have that Netflix deal. Build that home on Martha's Vineyard and still, still carve out days upon days marching with the Immokalee workers in Naples, Florida, and fighting for Medicare for all and the unions. He's it's such good a... to be young. Good to be young. <laughs> uh, I don't think he's. No matter, it seems to, it doesn't really matter um, who's going to win. The presidential your presidential election. Um, there's not going to be a lot of time after the president those persons' presidencies to do much. It's going to be like retire, die. He's just going to be talking underwater. We're going to be yeah. drowning from climate change. Talk to me about the downing of the Ukrainian Boeing jet in Tehran. It's very, it's very sad here because there were so many Canadians aboard. Um, I, I I find the whole thing so strange. About, I wonder if they um, if they knew there were. I'm not really necessarily accepting that. Oh, we made a horrible mistake. Uh, explanation, although it's an interesting way of approaching it for them. Um, but I'm wondering if they didn't make a mistake, but they, it was done deliberately because they knew how many Canadians were aboard. Are you making? I t- I, no, because the, Canada has no invol- has no real involvement in the Middle East. Right. So why would anybody want to kill Canadians? That's right. It makes no sense. So maybe it was a mistake, like they said. It's possible. Khamenei. 63 63 Canadians. Now, really. Flying to Ukraine? No, flying from the Ukraine to Canada. Um, And this plane was supposed to go to, I don't know, London or something where they would change to go to Canada. But... The 63 people aboard, the Canadians, were coming from... Uh, they were doing some work-study thing. Mm-hmm. Perfect confluence of stories. Ukraine, the Boeing story, yeah, Iran. Yeah, that's true. That's true, yeah. 
Well, you don't want to make any jokes about this. So no, no, you don't want to. No, no I feel uh, but I, I understand uh, they found somebody with a swastika on their forehead. No, I'm kidding. Just, I'm sorry. Just, uh, okay, so there you had to do it. You did it, and I'm glad you did. I'm glad I didn't have to do it. Okay, good. Yeah, it's very, it's very sad. What, what do you think the true story is? Do you think that? I know that one of the top CEOs of Canada blamed Trump for this because I guess he feels that Iranian military was on such high alert, they shot the plane down for fear that it was an American bomber, right? Yeah, I, I, I think that, well, that's the Occam's razor. You know, you, you pick the most likely scenario, um, and the most likely scenario might be that it was an accident. But the accident was, you know, uh, precipitated by Trump's actions by killing uh, the general, and, and everything has, has an effect. You know, we're trying to teach our, ten, our nine-year-old that now, that everything he does has an effect. Right. So Occam's razor, the first blade pulls up the probability. <laughs> the funny. second blade yeah. pulls up the effect. Likes it off. Yeah, I see. Okay. Yeah, something. Yeah. Okay. Let's go back to the facial hair on Justin Trudeau. When did this start? I don't know. Um, I'm, I'm wondering whether it has something to do with... Uh, you know, Mexit. Um, I'm not sure how they're connected, but I'm going to try to find out. Mm-hmm. It, it, it feels <laughs> okay. And and with Mexit, as somebody who has a, a a direct line to Buckingham Palace, since you are you're an I earl. I don't want to put down the royal. What, what are you? Are you family. an earl? What, what is your title? No, no, I'm not an earl. I'm not the Duke of Earl. Uh, oh. Nobody's singing about me. Uh, no, um, I, I'm, I'm merely uh, an Order of Canada winner uh, member. I'm a member of the Order of Canada. Okay, so you're you're up there. It's you know you you hear about things before we no, do. Let me tell you what the let me tell you what the Queen said to me the other day. Okay. <laughs> She said, my idiot grandson, only an idiot would go to Canada as a business move. That's what she said to me. Meghan Markle has a Canadian home, right? Doesn't she have ties to yeah, Canada? Yeah, somewhere. Yeah, she's, yes, definitely. And do you think this is the truth, or do you think they're being downsized i've heard uh, that that yeah. william and charles have decided it's the civils list is too expensive and we have to start streamlining and we have to start getting rid of dead weight my i did that with my my sister and i did that with our other brothers and sisters just start getting rid of family members smart yeah do, do you think it was a preemptive challenge on Harry and Meg's part no. where you don't fire no, us, no, we fire no. you? No, no, you can't leave me, I quit. You can't yeah. fire me, I quit. Yeah. That kind of thing. Yeah. Um, no, I don't. No, I don't. Because the royal family I mean, I, I'm in Britain is just too inviolate for anybody to touch these, the structure of them and to do anything to them. No, I think they left of their own accord. Um, I don't understand why exactly, but I think the fact that Megan is partly as part black may have something to do with it. And she uh, feels that they can never get a proper hearing because she is such an outsider in that world. That may have as beautiful and as classy as she might be. She will always be the half black uh, granddaughter.
Yes. Do you think being a member of the royal family is hazardous to your health? Do you think that after Prince Andrew, who, by the way, honeymooned in Canada? Yes. Yes, he did. Uh, do you think that looking at how Prince Andrew turned out and how his daughters are turning out, that they said, Harry and Meghan said, we don't want this for Archie, but there's no way to get through this life Un, unscarred. Well, it's a bizarre, it's a bizarre life when you know you go, you travel, and you have your royal handlers carrying your toilet seat for you because you don't dare use a regular commoner's toilet seat. Mm-hmm. It's not a normal life, right? So right. you know, in that sense, um, you really wonder. It's not like some rich people who make their kids go out and you know work at McDonald's so that they can know what the real world is like. The royals don't do that. So as long as you're a royal, you will never know what real life is really about. And maybe that's part of it. It's possible. It's a show. The whole thing is a show with costumes. It's not a real family. They call it the firm. So I think they Jews do not understand. And that's another thing. Jews do not understand a monarchy. We don't get it at all. Do you? My wife is, is, has a British passport. Her mother's British. She dines out on all these stories about the, about the royals, and I just look at her like, who cares? I'm fascinated by the royal family. You are. Yeah, and okay. I disagree with you, with all due respect. All right. I, I think, personally, I'm a prince without a kingdom or a title. I was raised to, I should have been uh, a royal prince somewhere. Well, some people do call me the king of comedy of Canada. You know? <laughs> so I, I kind of so, get... I so kinda... I do understand the, the, the trappings of, of some level of royalty, but the fetishization of it, if that's a word, um, is what I can't quite understand. And right. look, there are a lot of countries that still have a monarchy, but they, um, they mean nothing, like Denmark. You know, Denmark has a, has a, has a queen or a king. You never hear about it. They're irrele- they're kind of irrelevant in the country, and I'm surprised they they even keep them. But um, this is where it's going in Britain. I'm, con- I'm con- well. I also think to- the problem is they used to marry off the princes and the princesses to other royal families throughout Europe. There's no place to send the royal family. They're stuck in Great Britain, so they have to streamline. They can't get rid of them. Possibly, but it might also be just an attempt to try to um, uh, curb the hemophilia. Yes, yes. <laughs> they're they're bleeding hearts. Well, speaking of hemophilia, bombshell, yeah. Roger Ailes was a hemophiliac. He was a bleeding heart yeah. conservative. Roger Ailes, bombshell. That's three funny. three uh, Academy Award nominations. I thought the Russell Crowe series. Me too. Was absolutely too. phenomenal. Was, Brilliant, and uh, that's why I haven't gone to see Bombshell because it's essentially the same material. Mm-hmm. So, um, and and the uh, the one on TV, the eight parter, really let them stretch out and really look at a lot of sort of minor players. And uh, I thought it was great, and I thought Russell Crowe was amazing, 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 amazing in it. Yeah, yeah, uh, he was great, and he won a Golden Globe, I believe, right? Right, right. Little yeah. Women. Now, yeah, I don't. I love Little Women so much. I didn't even have to go see it. I know it's perfect. I know it's phenomenal. I love Little. I love Little Women as well because when they go to blow me, they go right <laughs> up onto my my crotch level, and I think Little Women are fantastic. 
Their knees never hurt uh-huh. uh, because of that. They, you don't need knee pads. God bless them. We should do this uh, for all the award shows. So did you see Little Women? I didn't need to see it. It's a perfect movie. I, I read the review and I thought, you know what? You go, you all go ahead and see it without me. I don't need to see something that I know I already love and am not allowed to criticize. So why should I go see something that I love already and wouldn't dare, dare say that there might be something wrong with Little Women? Did you? So did you I, see it? I have not seen it because I saw the two earlier versions of it. I read the book. I'll eventually see it when it shows up on on TV and stuff, and I'm sure it's a great. Winona Ryder. Little, sorry, what? Winona Ryder. I know the writer. Yeah, I know the. We used to hang out. No, uh, no, no, no. What I'm saying. No, no. Winona Ryder. (laughs) Oh, Winona Ryder. Yes, I saw the one with Winona Ryder. It was pretty good. Uh You know. Um, uh, Now, let me ask you a question. Let me ask you a question. Yeah. You before you were married. You told me you dated Winona Ryder and that you knew. Do you remember her? She changed her name for show business and you gave her advice, as I recall. When, her real name is Hor- the real last name is Horowitz. And you told and her to um, shorten her last name instead of changing it to yes. Ryder. But I told her to change it to Hor. Yeah, and Winona Hor. That was not <laughs> Winona Hor because as a Hollywood actress, I felt at the time I thought that was most appropriate. But she changed it to Ryder. Um, and I could, as someone who dated her, I didn't tell you why. Um, but uh, it wasn't horses. But uh, well, actually, once she told me it was. This. But anyway, um, that's irrelevant here. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's uh, I. I love that story that you've you know before you settled down, you you sowed your oats with, and I don't mean horses, but uh, let's yeah. move on. Marriage Story. That's uh, best movie of the year for me. But yeah. I haven't seen Parasite yet. But I loved it. I thought it was so smart, so well acted, so full of humor and pathos at the same time. I really felt for those people, and I thought that the supporting roles, all of them were magnificent. Laura Dern, um, uh, Scar- the... Um, uh, well, Scarlett Johansson in Marriage Story plays a uh, a woman in a doomed, failed marriage, which... Uh, and Why didn't Colin Jost star in it then? I don't I'm see sorry? the... I don't see the Colin Jost, Scarlett Johansson marriage lasting. Do you? I don't see a lot of marriages lasting, and I certainly don't see a lot of marriages in Hollywood lasting. But, you know, they're all kind of existential marriages. They're great for now. They're not about for, forever. That that world doesn't exist there. I, 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 to me, the way I test a woman to see if she's marriage material is I give her a fully loaded bedpan. Uh-huh. And, and so will you clean this? Will you... Are you here for the long run with with right. your with this bedpan? I do wed thee. Yes, I get it completely. Because if because you're not even look, I've got a I've got a wife who's twenty years younger than me, and uh, when she told an ex girlfriend of mine that the, that the, she talks to um, that she, we were going to get married, um, her response was. Mark doesn't really need a, a wife. She, he's going to need a nurse. Hope you're prepared. 
And, um, you know, there's some truth to that, I guess. I'm looking for a woman who, in bed, will go, wow, the, you have the biggest bed sores I've ever seen on a man. Ooh. <laughs> wow. I've yeah. seen, I can't. All right. Let's uh, go to uh, 1917. Haven't seen it. Yeah. And I understand it's brilliant because it's one. It's, it, it looks like it's one shot. Um, but I wonder if it ha when I see it, if I think, well, what if he had just directed it in a conventional way? Would this be any better than Saving Private Ryan or any number of war stories which we've seen before? So I don't know. Haven't seen it, but that's a question. Well, what do you mean one shot? Like it's the assassination of Joe Colombo? What do you mean one shot? It's one tracking shot? One shot. Yeah. Really? Yeah, the entire movie. Two hours of it. Yeah. It's like rope. Um, it, like it, rope? It looks like it. Sorry. Yeah, that's right. Really? Which is almost impossible when you think about it. It's a Herculean effort to do for a war movie. It's one thing to do it for rope with, you know, two guys in a room. It's quite different to do it with, uh, as a war movie, which, where they, which is all about them moving from one place to another yeah. where bombs are going off and all kinds of stuff. Wasn't there a movie? You know, it sounds that, like. There was a movie that took place in the Hermitage, something's Ark, the Russians yes, made. That's it. right. And it was all done in that's one. Right, and it's one, one shot. Yeah. One tracking shot, yeah. Um, but this is a little more difficult, I think, than a you know a movie shot in a museum. So yeah, I'll, I'll, I'm going to watch it this week and, and see what I think. Yeah, something's arc. I can't remember. It's not no. Yeah, I can't remember it either. It came out 20 years ago. And it's phenomenal. It's a Russian film. Yeah. Finally, I've seen it too. Finally, and this is yeah. almost true. Almost true. The Irishman got 10 nominations, and 10 is the number of times I've watched The Irishman. I cannot stop watching The Irishman. I well, am addicted to know, that movie. I, I, to me, it's The Irishman and two Italians walk into a bar, <laughs> and three and a half hours later, they walk out dazed, but not as dazed as us. Um, I, I I appreciated the movie. I understood what uh, what um, Scorsese was going for, which is let's take away all the you know action sequences that I've always done in these mob movies, and let's reduce it. And I don't mean in a bad way to Hannah Arendt's comment about the banality of evil. <laughs> yeah, because that's right, what yeah. it's really all about it's you know talking it's like the vonsi conference when you want to hit him i don't know if i hit him then this is nunzio's not going to like it well okay but what if we get nunzio's guy to come no that won't work because he has a he has a peanut allergy oh, okay well what about <laughs> and, and it's a lot of that yeah but that's the reality uh, that's the closest probable reality to what it was like being in the mob and ordering hits and doing hits. it it isn't it isn't flashy it's kind of um it's kind of like a bank job. Yeah. Which is interesting because that's how it starts uh, with the, in, in the book, it's called, I uh, Hear You Paint Houses. They take something very, very, um, you know, taboo and edgy and try to turn it into something very uh, quotidian, very everyday. Yeah. Um, and, and that's what the movie's about. So I enjoyed the movie. Did I think it was Scorsese's best? Well, it wasn't Scorsese's most exciting film. But um, great acting. I didn't mind the fact that they were de-aging people. I, I didn't really even tell you the truth. I barely noticed that part of it. I right. didn't even really care. I was too busy listening to the dialogue. Right, right. 
I loved it. You know, speaking of Tarantino, because we talked about him earlier, the scene, I don't know if you remember the scene where they're on their way to pick up Jimmy Hoffa in the car, and Jimmy Hoffa's son is driving, and there's this dialogue about fresh fish. You know, you put, yeah. that, you put that fish in the back seat. You're, what kind of fish? And, I, and that dialogue reeked of Tarantino. It felt, you know, that, like you yes, said, the banality. Too. It's the Royale. It's the, it's the, you know, yes, and yes. you know what they call it in, yeah. in Europe. It's called the Royale, really. Right. You, know, you know, as they're as they're getting their guns together. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, Tarantino flipped the script years ago, and you said you didn't like Pulp Fiction, but you know, there's. I'll go back and, and how important it is. Yeah, I, I think the Irishman is amazing. I, I I just think at some point you cannot criticize just personally. I, I think you either love Joe Pesci and Robert De Niro, and you know, there aren't going to be that many more movies starring Robert De Niro and Joe Pesci. Why not make it three hours? I could have done without. No, and I don't have a problem with, you know, and I, it's all, always, also always funny when I hear people complaining about the running length. Only in film would people want to get less for their money. Right. Um, but as a Jew, I look at it as, well, it cost me $14 to get into the movie, and it's three and a half hours. I divide 14 into three and a half hours, and then actually I get a really, I'm getting a great deal here. It's kind of like when people go to rock concerts and they resent the opening act. I think, well, I'm getting more for my money. Well, let me ask what you a, a question. Deal. You are the president yeah. and founder of Yuck Yucks. Why don't, yes. why are movie prices universal? Why don't they charge more for a movie based on its length, based on how much it costs to make, based on the reviews. Why does every movie, why does it cost uh, the same to see? I agree. I couldn't. I have been asking the same question for a long time, including um, to people who own movie movie chains. Why don't they move towards a variable pricing mar, uh, model? And for for us Canadians here, there's kind of an extra reason for it because um, we don't have a film industry that makes expensive films. It's all indie films. And you want to get more people to see Canadian films. Well, if they only cost you know $500,000 to make as opposed to $100 million to make, why can't we price those films at $5 to get in um, and and encourage people to go see them and but, and and charge three dollars to sneak in. Yes, three dollars to sneak in is a good idea. You ever, have you ever sneaked into a movie? Uh, well, no. Maybe as a no, as a kid, I would stay. Like if a Woody Allen movie was out, I would just stay in the theater. And see it. I go in there at nine in the morning and stay till midnight. Just watch it over and over again. I don't. I never sneak into it. I know uh, that it's baked into the price of a movie ticket. Well, yes, sneak just in. as just as shoplifting is baked into the price of um, of a of a supermarket. Right. They right. know that four percent of the uh, of the merchandise is going to go. And so they just build it in. They build in the price. I've I've done double bills and and paid single prices uh, over time, and the, and it's hard for me to do that, of course, because I grew up with a lot of friends who, I, as I say, were in the ex. The parents were in the exhibition business. You know, Joel, my friend Joel. Oh, right. They, they, father. That's what they did. His father was an exhibitionist. Uh, and yes, and and Joel and Joel talks about it now, um, which I think is great. <laughs> didn't Joel like drive-in movies? What didn't Joel's parents do drive-in movies or something? Well, that's what they 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 had a lot more than that. They they had the forerunner of Cineplex, 
Um, but, and then they sold it out. Herpes, it Herpes Simplex, I think it was called. Herpes Simplex is excellent. I went to school with Herpes Simplex, actually. Um, <laughs> I couldn't get, you couldn't get rid of him. He just he always he came to every reunion. He always showed up. And his career was his career was bumpy. Um, <laughs> but, uh, he, um, hey, before you go, am I interrupting you? You're going to say something about Joel's. Well, I was just going to tell you where the money is in 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 distribution in uh, sorry in exhibition. Um, I went uh, when the first one of the first times I went over to Joel's house. And Joel lived in a big, beautiful stone, eh, like mini mansion. And I met his father, and I said, "Wow, you must have sold a lot of uh, tickets for the to be in this house." Uh, and he said, "Nope." He said, uh, "Popcorn." And then he pointed out at the pool in the back, and he went, "Butter." <laughs> Well, yes, because you have a captive group of people. Yeah, can... that's where the that's where the real money is. The money is in the is in the concession stand. Wow! And most people don't know that um, in terms of the because so much goes um, to the um, to the to the distributor. Right. The distributor gets seventy percent off the top right away, and it can climb as high as ninety. Now, Robert Balaban, the actor who wrote Gosford Park with Robert Altman. And he played the yes. network executive on Seinfeld. His father or grandfather was in the distributing business. Like, where, where, didn't they found an arm of Barney Paramount? Balaban? Barney Balaban. Yeah, Barney Barney Balaban. Um, and I think yes, it was he founded the uh, distribution arm of Paramount. I think you're correct about that. And is he Canadian? No, not Canadian. And nope. before you go, I had Neil, Neil Gabler on the show. Oh, yeah, okay. Just wanted you to know. Great. So you have this Order of Canada, and I had the author of uh, the Jews who, is it the Jews who invented Hollywood or created Hollywood? Invented Hollywood, I think. Yes. And we had, when we first met, we were both reading the book. And you had an uh -huh. interesting theory about why the Jews went into movies, what they found so, why it was so understandable to them. Do you remember what your theory was? No, but I'd be happy to hear it again. I think I actually told, I have to look up the interview that I, did I mention I interviewed Neil Gompler? The, uh, yeah, author? I think we, actually, I think we went into this once. Yeah, so I, I told him your out. theory, uh, and he laughed. And I said, my, my friend Mark Breslin has a theory about why the Jews took to filmmaking. They were all tailors. They were all furriers. Yes. And they wanted to take it in a little. <laughs> they, were natural, they were natural editors, right? Yeah, that was because your... Because what is film but, but editing? Film is editing. Right. <laughs> it's cold. Hang on. But it's... I remember you... T like, I had just... I just met you, and that was your one of the first things you ever said to me. And I went, wow, that makes perfect sense. They, they are able to look at a product and say, we'll take it in. If you don't like it, we'll just yeah. get rid of this, get rid of that. Now it's a suit. Yeah, you like it? Uh, yeah. Anyway, last thought, the Vonnesey yes. Convention. Have you seen yeah. the movie Conspiracy on HBO about the Vonnesey Convention? Do you remember this? I'm wondering if I. Well, I'm wondering if this is the American version of the German film. Well, it is. No, no. Is it, that it, what it is? Oh, there, I didn't know that so there was the a, one. There's. I didn't know there's yeah, a. Originally, it was. Yeah, it was originally in German. 
Oh, I didn't know with that. The actual, with the actual exact dialogue in German that they recorded from the, from the conference. You have to see it in German. It's even better in German. All right. I, it has a kind of you-are-there quality. Yes. For for those of you... <coughs> excuse me. <coughs> um, uh, the Vonnesey Convention was where they came up with the final solution. And my son is obsessed with... I, I have to tell him now that there's a German version of this because he speaks fluent German. But he's obsessed with... Seriously? Yeah, yeah. Why did... Why does your son speak fluent German? Uh, he's, it's not something that people often take in school. Right. He lived in Germany for two years. After Why did he live in Germany for two years? Because... Uh, What's in Germany? It was when Merkel was taking in all the immigrants, all the refugees, and kids of oh, his and age. Oh, your son was a refugee. And your son was a refugee. I get it. Right? Well... Because you kicked him out of the house. Yeah, that and, you know, yeah, that he was told that this is like Prague after the fall of the wall. But you 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 had to be in Berlin at, at this time. It was like four years ago. Anyway, he stayed for two oh. years. And and uh, anyway, the he's told me he's he's, he's seen conspiracy now. Kenneth Branagh stars in this. I guess this is the. That's right. Yeah. And. and Anybody who's ever been in a corporate meeting, anybody who's ever had to suffer through a meeting will love watching this movie because they they really come up with the final solution because everybody just wanted to go home. Sure. Yeah. You know, there, there were some people who said, hey, really, you want to do that? I mean, is this legal? But hey, you know what? It's five o'clock. I got reservations for the theater. Good. Let's it, just kill them all. Let's just kill them all. It really was just dotting some eyes. It was that, as you watch say. It, watch it in German. Watch it in German. It's even more chilling. Right. Even, but, it has subtitles. But the, my, my favorite line from that movie, and I laughed. I was watching with my son again, and Kenneth Branagh says after uh, the meeting, they've just decided that they were going to exterminate all the Jews. And Branagh says... Well, good meeting. We got something done today. <laughs> yeah, no, I know, I know, I know. It's 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 about again. It's a Hannah Arendt, you know, thing yeah. about the banality of evil. But do you know why uh, it was called the Vonsey Conference? It's I think it's the city of Vonsey or Ivonsey. The Jews no. dead. That's right. Exactly. <laughs> okay, I, I step on your joke. I'm sorry. Yeah, you did, but that's okay. That's all right. Don't well, worry. It just means we think alike. Yeah. Uh, Disease minds think alike. Mark Breslin, as always, fantastic, is the founder and president of Yuck Yucks, the world's largest comedy chain. And when are you going to be in New York? Uh, sooner the better. Oh, I thought you were coming. Weren't we talking about... Greatest city, greatest city in the world. Uh, uh, maybe for my next birthday. You're coming for your next... Okay. Can you stay on the line? And how do people follow yeah. you? Or what, what would you like to plug? Any any special shows? I'd rather, well, I'd rather people not follow me, frankly, considering uh, <laughs> my past. But um, it's actually, I prefer to follow others. Uh-huh. Anybody, who's at the clubs? Anybody you want to promote? Um, nobody that people 
would know? It's all Canadian acts. But we have, we have listeners um, in Canada. Thanks to you, we have listeners in Canada. <laughs> okay. Um, I don't have my, my schedule in front of me, but right. it's, uh, just go online, www.yuckyucks.com. We have a beautiful new website, okay. and it really highlights the, the talent now. So, David, you should take a look at it. It's really nice. Now, is this the site that Paul Krugman went to, and then they accidentally found child porn on his site? Did you hear about the that? The word accident. Yeah, but the word accidentally <laughs> with yuck yuck does not really apply here. Um, I would call it in, it's embedded um, so that we can get a wider demographic of, of people to the club, and uh, we don't want to miss out on the on the, the you know the child porn demographic, the which craze. is significant. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Stay on the line for one second. Great job. Great job. Okay. Thank you. You called in your backup ecoms now. See if we can get some more brain power in this. We thing. got one here. Roger. Fly to Inco. Go and go. Uh, he's never mind. He's straightening up a little bit. Okay. Okay. Now let's everybody keep cool. We got the limb still attached. The limb spacecraft's good. So if we need uh, to get back home, we got a limb to do a good portion of it with. Okay, let's make sure that we don't do anything that's going to blow our CSM electrical power with the batteries or that will cause us to lose the main or the uh, fuel cell number two. Okay, we want to keep the O2 and that kind of stuff working. We'd like to have RCS, but we got the command module system, so we're in good shape if we need to get home. Let's solve the problem, but let's not make it any worse by guessing. You're listening to the David Feldman Radio Program, you sad, pathetic hump. All right. Do you think we can do it now, Professor? Yeah. Okay, because you're throwing me. You got me <laughs> off my game. Got me completely right. off my game. Let us now go to Georgia, where philosophy professor Ben Burgess is standing by. He is the author of Give Them an Argument, Logic for the Left, you can see him tonight and every Tuesday night on the Michael Brooks show doing the debunk. He teaches philosophy at Georgia State Perimeter College. And you should sign up for his newsletter because the man writes for Jacobin. He's a columnist for Jacobin. You can get two of the professor's essays delivered to your inbox each week by going to patreon.com forward slash Ben Burgess. Hello, Professor. Hello, comedian. One of the most valuable experiences I've had is deconstructing articles from the New York Times with you. Now, I like the New York Times. We had Noam Chomsky on the Ralph Nader show, and he was asked, well, what do you read? And he says, well, you know, I have a lot of quarrels with the New York Times, but it's still the paper of, you know, still an right. important paper to read. But sure. occasionally they print columns by their editorial staff. And there was a piece written by Michelle Cottle, who is on the editorial board. And when I read it, it reminded me of a piece from McSweeney's that you had sent me. Yeah. Written by Cohen. I forgot his first name. I have to have him back on the show. 
This article is entitled, Can We Please Stop Fighting About Medicare for All? And uh, she says, yes, the Democratic candidates need to talk about health care. Polls show that it is a top, if not the top policy concern for their for their voters. And the issue was a pillar of the party's successful platform to win control of the House House in 2018. But, you know, talk about something else. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. I don't know why Democrats would spend their time talking about uh, a a popular, exciting, bold proposal that would uh, save a lot of people's lives. Uh, that would, you know, clearly, you know, that clearly differentiates the candidates. Uh, I mean, it would be much better if they spent all their time talking about like dry technocratic details of like incremental plans nobody can quite keep track of or <laughs> even better yet if they didn't talk about policy at all they just sort of you know they just sort of vaguely talked about how they wanted everything to be better well bernie's leading in the polls or he's up there elizabeth warren is falling behind and there is a headline in the new york times that bernie sanders told Elizabeth Warren in a meeting last year or two years ago that America will never elect a female president. Now, that sounds like something Bernie would say. I'm oh, yeah. I'm kidding. No, definitely. Like, I, I, I'm trying to imagine the scene, and I think he was probably chomping on a cigar, you know, said, uh, <laughs> like talking, you know, talking like a uh, somebody from the movie from the 1930s, you know. Now, nah, Dave can't be president. Right. <laughs> Tame camp. This this is an example. That, that, that sounds very realistic, and I'm sure lots of people very sincerely believe that. Yeah. Um, and and it's and I, I'm actually proud of American journalism that um, you know CNN waited until it had like a couple of people who wouldn't go on the record and didn't even claim to be in the room who mm -hmm. said that they'd heard that this happened. Right, and it's it's a headline story in the New York Times. Because there's this consensus among Democrats that Bernie is cruel and unfair and his supporters are nasty. And so they have to claim now sexism against Elizabeth Warren because she can't argue the issues. Her, her Medicare for all flip flop is a disgrace. So when you discuss policy with Elizabeth Warren Sanders, it devolves into Bernie Sanders claims a woman can't be president. Because you cannot discuss policy with Bernie. And Elizabeth Warren is just flat out wrong on Medicare for all. And she's not proposing Medicare for all. She's proposing a public option. Yeah, I mean, and this is really important. Like, I know we talked about this before, but this is just something that uh, there's so much effort to obfuscate this. It really is important to uh, to talk about this because it's a very simple distinction that people try to muddy up. They say, well, you know, Bernie's got a transition plan. Elizabeth Warren's got a transition plan. What's the difference? Mm -hmm. But Bernie has a bill that includes 
a phase rollout, which is the way that every major, uh, every major reform always works. You know, Obamacare mm-hmm. had a phase rollout. Um, the, uh, so, you know, in the first year, everybody up to a certain age is covered. In the second year, third year, you know, fourth year, everybody's covered. Uh, but that's about when the bill goes into effect. Elizabeth Warren is proposing to do a major Obamacare level push for a public option, just like all the centrist candidates like Biden and Buttigieg are advocating, and then insulting our intelligence, frankly, by claiming that after that major push is somehow successful, she's going to come back just a couple years later for a second major push, which is when she'll start pushing for legislation for Medicare for all. And it's a bizarre, it like, it's taken. It's a literally. lie. It's a lie. It's 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 it, deception. It's a bait and switch. And so when it's we a crit- parents attempt at triangulation, uh, you know that she's pivoting to try to pivot to the center without having to say that she gave up on Medicare for all. Right. She has given up on Medicare for all, and she didn't finesse it. She claimed to be an ally of Bernie's Medicare for All bill that was introduced in the House by Pramila Jayapal. During the debates, she stood with Bernie, and then she tried to differentiate herself from Bernie by claiming there will be no middle-class tax to pay for it. She thought she could outmaneuver Bernie and be smart, and she revealed that she's... A technocrat who's trapped in a, in a maze of papers, white papers that signify nothing. Yeah, absolutely. That, like, that, look, even before this pivot, it, uh, like seeing Elizabeth Warren in those debates, like I could understand the first time, right? The first time somebody asked her, uh, will there be a middle class tax increase, uh, as part of this? And she just didn't want to play the game, right? And she just wanted to emphasize the most important point, which is that, uh, which is that people's overall costs would go down. Fair enough. But when it became like every debate had half an hour of her evading the question, mm-hmm. like just straight out refusing to answer, um, then like it got more and more ridiculous to believe even before her pivot, uh, it got more and more ridiculous to think that she was actually going to have some sort of all hands on deck fight for Medicare for all as president. Because if, if, if she's so terrified of the word taxes, right? Like she thinks that this is a permanent, you know, like Mondale versus Reagan election, mm-hmm. that like that's what politics is forever and ever. And if you if you ever say the you know the the cursed word taxes, right? Uh, then you know that you're going to lose as a Democrat. Right. To refresh everybody's memory, during the 1984 debate with Reagan, Walter Mondale, the Democrat nominee, said, "I'm going to tell you something that President Reagan won't tell you, and that is, we're going to raise your taxes." And Ra- <laughs> Reagan raised. Our taxes, but he didn't tell us. Yeah. There, there are ways to move money around in little shell games. And that kind of is how Elizabeth Warren and Andrew Yang and Biden and Mayor Pete play the Medicare for all game. Let me read you. Let's dissect a paragraph from Michelle Cottle's piece 
entitled, can we please stop fighting about Medicare for all? I just keep thinking about Michelle Cottle in 18, uh, the 1864 election. Can uh-huh. we please stop fighting about slavery? Uh-huh. The 1964 election, can we please stop fighting about Medicare? Right. Like, yeah, just, just like, you know, in, in general, you know, the, uh, the 1936 election, can we please stop fighting about the New Deal? Right. Right. Like, you know, it, it's just a, a generally, like, you know, if, uh, look, she has good health insurance, uh-huh. you know, and she's on the New York Times editorial board. I mean, I, I, I'd be, uh, <laughs> I'd be shocked if she didn't have good health insurance. Sure. And she's sick of hearing about this. Yes. Yes. She's absolutely sick about it. And she admits that it's the most important issue that Democrats care about. But let's talk about something else, she says, because it's it's driving a wedge between Bernie and the other candidates. All the other candidates have stopped talking about Medicare for all because they don't support Medicare for all. Let's dissect this paragraph. She writes, most recently, the businessman Andrew Yang faced scrutiny over his position on the idea of creating a government run health insurance system that essentially would eliminate private coverage. Okay, so Andrew Yang expressed support for Medicare for all. But in the fall, she writes that he ran ads that advocated moving towards such a system, but his actual plan turned out not to even include a public option, much less an overhaul of the whole system. Let's go back to <laughs> let's let's go back to this for a second. So at first, Andrew Yang expressed uh, support for Medicare for all, uh, essentially eliminating private health insurance coverage. Right. Yeah, that is what Medicare for all means. Right. And then she's saying that he he got this unfair scrutiny. They went over his plan and he, he didn't even include a public option, much less an overhaul of the whole system. So she's saying, why should candidates have to be? treated this way put under such put under a microscope yeah just because he said that he supported medicare for all and then when asked to produce the details turns out he doesn't even support medicare for some right uh you know he's he's being treated as if he uh he were being disingenuous in some way i don't know okay now the debates are tonight and i i have a sneaking suspicion this is going to be the medicare for all debate because Bernie's been laying low. There are not too many candidates on the stage. And he's now the target. He's got the bullseye on his back. He's leading in the polls. They're going to come after him on Medicare for all. And he's going to have to defend it. And I want my listeners to know what the terms are, because a public option. We talked about this. You were the first one to point this out on my show. A public option is not anything close to Medicare. Please explain to the listeners, I don't care if we have to repeat this a hundred times between now and tonight's debate. What is the difference between a public option when Mayor Pete says, I believe in Medicare for all, but I think you should be allowed to opt in to Medicare for all. (laughs) 
<laughs> what does that mean? How do you, is Medicare anywhere close to a public option? Yeah. So, uh, so Medicare, at least, you know, the, uh, the main, uh, part of Medicare, uh, that, that kicks in automatically, uh, turn 65, you don't have to, um, uh, that you don't have to pay for, um, that's, you know, is very unlike a public option and certainly Canadian Medicare, right? Which is the model for, which is really what people have in mind when they talk about Medicare for all is reproducing something like that system. Um, is, uh, did not, like one of the key features of it is the Canada's Medicare law, uh, forbids, uh, charging people at the point of use. Right. In other words, uh, you can't have copays, you can't have deductibles, uh, you know, you can't like the, the hospitals aren't allowed to charge money <laughs> right. to patients. Um, and uh, they and charge the government. Yeah, they charge the government. Exactly. Uh-huh. Uh, so we, we all pay for it. Um, you know, everybody, we're all Canadians, you know, pay for it out of taxation uh, and and everybody, everybody benefits from it. And this is fundamentally different from the idea of what most people mean by public option, which is a vague and slippery phrase. But we usually when you pin people down in the details, what they're talking about is the government selling a health insurance plan along with the private health insurance exactly. plans. That's a fundamentally different thing. All right, I, stop. I'm gonna, with all due respect, Professor, you have a Ph.D. in philosophy and you know more than... 99% of the people watching tonight's debates. So let's repeat, because repetition is important. Let's, you were the first one to discuss this on my show, and it's really important. If you're 66 or 67, yeah, Medicare, you automatically go on Medicare. So is the government running a health insurance company giving you coverage, health insurance coverage, when you're a senior citizen, and they're selling you insurance? No. No, they're not. They're, so the no. government, Medicare, has nothing to do with health insurance? Well, uh, it's it's uh, public um Public insurance, it's the, uh, it's the, it's the entity that's being charged, um, for, for your medical bills. But there's a fundamental difference between a taxpayer funded service and the government selling you something. Right. So let, let me just, I, I, it's, I know that some of my listeners are, are rolling their eyes. We get it. We get it. We get it. But you don't get it. Most, this is why Biden, Judge, Warren can lie and Yang can lie about their Medicare for all policy because Americans don't understand their health care system. So Medicare is the doctors don't work for the government, but right. they get paid by the government when senior citizens go in for their treatment. Yeah. Correct? Yes. Okay. Now, there is some supplemental insurance right. to cover 20% of Medicare. That's a whole other conversation. But the thrust of Medicare. Yeah, the yeah basic Medicare, right. Basic it, Medicare uh, is a senior citizen, regardless of what's in their bank account, walks into a doctor, gets treated. They don't get a bill. 
the doctor then defrauds the United States government. That's a whole other issue. That's why doctors should be working for the state. But that's a whole other issue. That's what Medicare for Medicare is. So Bernie and and Pramila Jayapal want to spread that to everybody where doctors bill the government. And you don't pay insurance premiums. You don't have a deductible. If you're on Medicare right now, you don't have a deductible and you don't have a copay, right? Uh, yeah. So, and, and the, um, yeah. So even, even American Medicare for, for senior citizens, which is roughly what, um, I mean, the, uh, Canadian, Medicare covers a lot more, uh, and it's also for everybody, uh, and that's, that's the, that's the model, uh, for Medicare for all, uh, although, uh, the, the Sanders plan for that would also cover some extra things that, uh, like dental, uh, for example, that, uh, the Canadian, uh, you know, doesn't, although Canadian leftists advocate that. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but the important, but, but yeah, there's a really crucial distinction here. Is, I mean, like, by analogy, right? If, uh, there's a, there's a crucial difference between saying that, uh, like, if we didn't have public schools, right? If public schools didn't exist as a concept, uh, and, uh, let's say maybe that, you know, there were public schools in Canada, but there were no public schools in the U.S., and we were talking about introducing public, you know, public schools, and Bernie Sanders would say we should have free Public education from from kindergarten through high school, uh, and uh, and somebody else, uh, and then one of the other candidates would say, "Well, what we should have is we should have some government run schools, uh, but they would still charge tuition, mm-hmm. right? That like, but they would charge more reasonable tuition than the private schools, right? Exactly, that's the, exactly. That's the, Thank that's you." The, that's the difference. Okay, so let, let's. I, this is really important. So, when uh, Mayor Pete says he supports Medicare for all, but people should have a choice to opt in to Medicare for all, that means, and I, and we will not have a reporter asking Mayor Pete this question. But the question that I would ask Mayor Pete, and maybe you can answer this for me as Mayor Pete. You say that people should be able to opt in to Medicare for all. So the opting in would mean I choose to use a private health insurance company, but I also have the choice to opt in for Medicare for all, which is free, right? That means Medicare for all would be free just like Medicare is. Is that what you're saying? So Americans will have a choice between free health care, Paid for by the government or going through the health insurance companies. Is that what you're saying, Mayor Pete? Well, uh, not exactly. They, they would, they would still, there would still be, um, you know, there would still, there would still be premiums, but, uh, but they would, you know, they'd be much more reasonable. But, but, but that's not Medicare. You're, you're opting in and paying premiums. Would there be a deductible with the opt in for Medicare for all? Uh, look, these are all good questions, but wouldn't you rather I just have said some vague platitudes right now? (laughs) 
But you're calling it Medicare for all. You're saying that that we should have a choice on Medicare for all. So is it really Medicare if I'm paying the government premiums and deductibles and essentially buying health insurance from the government? Wouldn't shouldn't you call it a public option instead of opting into Medicare for all? Why don't you call it a public option? Uh because my, my pollster said that Medicare for all who want it sounded better. I see. Well, public option, the public option is how we improve upon the ACA, Obamacare. That's what Amy Klobuchar says. That's what Joe Biden says. Let's build on what's working. Let's and let's give the American people the public option. And the public option, when people get a taste as Elizabeth Warren says, of how great the public option is, then they're going to say, my God, why don't we just have Medicare for all? So a taste of the public option, and I'm being serious here, tell me what a taste of the public option tastes like. What is a public option? And how, again, I'm being repetitive, but this is, this. I want people to understand the difference. You get a public option. That's just like Medicare, isn't it? So my my answer is as me or as Mayor Pete. Still? Uh, go as uh, Joe Biden this time. Oh, okay, okay. Uh, Nineteen seventy nine. <laughs> I was in Harlem. Uh, there was there's a group of tough looking kids, yes. but uh, back then, you know, you had to you had a straight razor. Uh, <laughs> you, you, you shaved with it, but you also fought in the streets with it. Uh, uh, yeah. Uh, 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 okay. Okay. So oh. yes, I, I I understand your point, uh, Mr. Vice President. But you say the public option will be the logical transition to Medicare for all. So explain to me how the public option is would naturally lead to Medicare for all. Explain that to me, sir. Look, I've explained a lot of things about that. <laughs> I've done a lot of explaining. That's why Barack Obama picked me. All right. Um, no, I. Right, Bernie. What was going on? Bernie. My, my Joe Biden. My Joe Biden got totally lost there. But it's okay. Uh, uh, Bernie, but, uh, what's the difference between the public yeah. option? Because this is what this is. You know, he wrote the damn bill. What is the difference between Medicare for all and the public option? I know yeah. most of you get it, but this is how you teach repetition. What is the difference between the public option, Bernie, and Medicare for all, and do your best impersonation, Bernie, of Professor Ben Burgess. Okay. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, actually, I do a really good Ben Burgess. So um, you know, Robert Smigel is such a genius <laughs> that he could imitate Bernie Sanders <laughs> trying to imitate Ben Burgess. But go ahead. Nice, nice. I'm not quite that good, okay. but uh, but no. I, look. Um, a taste of a public option would probably not taste that great because uh, it would retain all the things that people hate about Obamacare. That uh, if you're that if you're not getting your insurance from your employer, then what you're doing is you're trying to window shop insurance plans from uh, the market you know, health insurance marketplace. Uh, you're buying. Health insurance. Yeah, you're buying health insurance. You're looking at a bunch of confusing details that 
almost nobody uh, as as a as a customer of health insurance is really in a position to evaluate. Um, it's bureaucratic. It's cumbersome. Uh, you and uh, you and like this would be just another option in the list of uh, health insurance plans that you could buy. Let me put on my Frank Luntz toupee. Okay. All right. Hang on for one second. Yep. The Joseph Goebbels of the Republican Party, Dr. Frank Luntz, has taught the Republicans how to frame arguments, how to simplify things so Americans can understand it. Democrats, we think we're too smart. We got this. So, you know, we don't need things simplified for us. But it turns out we do. The fact that Biden and Warren and Buttigieg and Yang can get away with this proves that the Democrats don't know what the F they're talking about when it comes to Medicare for all. So I'm wearing my Frank Luntz toupee now, and it's this simple. Public option is health insurance. Medicare is health care. Medicare for all means health care. Public option means health insurance. That's what you get. You get health insurance from your government when you use the public option or when you improve upon Obamacare. Are you hanging yourself? Uh, yeah, yeah. All this obfuscation about Medicare for all has gotten to me. And, and, and Medicare for all is health care. You get health care from your government yeah. paid for by your government. Just, 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 just real quick. Uh, it is also worth mentioning one other reason that uh, that taste of the public option wouldn't actually taste very much like Medicare for all, um, which is that if you have a government-run health insurance plan that's competing with private health insurance plans, um, then. Uh, it's still going to be the case that not everybody gets the same service. That if you uh, that if if you've got like the really expensive private plan, uh, then you know then you have uh, then you're getting you're getting better service. You get to go to different doctors than people who have uh, the public plan, which is pretty much how it works now with Medicaid. Exactly. Uh, whereas if you have um, if you have me- Medicare for all. Uh, paid for by all, used by all as the single payer, right? That's, mm-hmm. um, that's what that means, that it's, it's as the single entity paying for, uh, healthcare, um, then, uh, then it's one tier of service for everybody because everybody's on the same plan. Yes. Yes. The problem, now that you, I think we've done a great job explaining the difference between opting into Medicare for all and Medicare for all, the idea that there's a choice. Well, there is no choice. You're either paying an insurance company, you're either paying the United States insurance company, or you're just getting health care from America. That's what Medicare for all is, health care for America. Here's the problem with our health care system. Doctors. Doctors are liars and cheats and they game the system. Medicare fraud, which is not rampant, but it exists. Medicare fraud takes place in this country because doctors do not work for the government. They're not salaried employees. They are incentivized to overcharge 
and bill for things that never took place. Nonprofit hospitals, but most hospitals are nonprofit. They are incentivized to rip off insurance companies and the federal government because they can pay their doctors more. The doctors, even though the hospital is nonprofit, the doctors, the administrators, they're all working to make as much as they possibly can. And they're really smart and they game the system. And, you know, there are people who get degrees, masters in public policy, and they go to work. They use what they're taught in our schools to go work for hospitals to commit billing fraud. You become an expert. You get hired by your ability to commit fraud. And that is the fault of doctors because they are guilty of fraud. They're the ones who run the hospitals. They're the ones who are gaming the system. They're the ones who are billing for things that never took place. Well, I mean, to be fair, uh, there are lots of hospitals that are being, uh, you know, like the doctors run the hospitals in a sense, but, um, you know, the hospital might be, you know, might very well be owned by some, I mean, financial institution or, you know, there's not, um, but I mean, I, I think that the, I mean, the problem, I mean, the best solution to the fraud is to minimize the number of different rent seeking entities right. in the picture, right? That can, that are interacting with each other. Um, I mean, ultimately, you know, what would be, what would be best is if we just, uh, if we just adopted, um, you know, the, uh, the British model and, exactly. um, and had, uh, had, you know, nationalized the hospitals. Uh, but, you know, meanwhile, if we could at least, if we could at least nationalize, you know, the, the insurance, you know, have, uh, have single payer, uh, I mean, that, that really doesn't seem like too much to ask. That's, uh, uh, Canada has had that for decades, uh, and, and it, it, it just, uh, and it used to be something that, um, that liberals very commonly paid lip service to at least. That, you know, that they, that they really like it. It's politically impossible, but, you know, but, but, you know, in theory, in principle, as, you know. So as when I, somebody says to me, do you want your medical decisions being made by a government bureaucrat? What's the answer? Um, do you want yours being made by a, a, a private bureaucrat who has a profit incentive to deny you life saving care? Uh huh. Exactly. Um, yeah. So it's, it's, in fact, um, you know, when, like, if you wanted, uh, if you hate, if you hate gatekeeping bureaucrats, uh, in healthcare, then that actually gives you a reason to support Medicare for all because you actually have fewer of them in the system, uh, with Medicare for all than you do with the current system. Because right now we've got a bunch of, pro, you know, competing private insurance companies that all have, um, that all employ tons of these people. Uh, and in fact, this is sometimes used as an objection to Medicare for all. People say, oh, what about, what about the health, what about the health insurance company administrators who will mm-hmm. lose their jobs? Which by the way, you notice that when we're supposed to hate these people, they're bureaucrats. Right. Uh, when we're supposed to feel bad for them, they're administrators. Right. But, um, but yeah, you would lose all these redundant bureaucrats if we had Medicare for all. Yeah. It's okay. There's, you know, all the Medicare for all bills that are proposed have, uh, some sort of retraining program for, uh, for them. Uh, you never hear of VA billing fraud, do you? 
No, and actually, you know what's interesting? Because because they're they're salaried employees. They work for the government. The doctors work for the government. They're not incentivized to charge more. Yeah, and you know what's interesting? Um, Like centrists love to talk about uh, these polls where most people say they're satisfied with their health insurance. Um, And, of course, as we talked about before, uh, inferring from those polls that people like the current health insurance system as opposed to just they think that it's they're better off with their current health insurance than switching to a different company or just not having insurance is ridiculous. But what's also interesting is that the same polls where most people say they're, quote, satisfied, unquote, with their private health insurance um, – Actually, seniors on Medicare are even more likely to say that they're satisfied with their right. current health insurance. And, and and I think the same polls that we're talking about, people who say they're satisfied with their current health insurance would still prefer a nationalized single payer. Yeah, I mean, at, at the very least, if you look at like if you look at the polls saying that um, that people are satisfied with their current health insurance system, and really any of the polls on Medicare for all, right? Not all the polls say the same thing. It's you know, it's all over. You know, some of it depends on how you ask the question, but any of them really, there's no way to make the numbers add up without lots of people both describing themselves as satisfied mm-hmm. and supporting Medicare for all. But yeah, so seniors on Medicare are even more likely to say they're satisfied. And you wouldn't think so, but the group that's most likely to say that they're satisfied are um, veterans and active duty members of the military uh, who actually are on the British system, essentially. They, they get their right. health care from government-run hospitals. Right. The VA, despite the horror stories, is a shining example of what the government does magnificently well, just like the post office. But, of course, Republicans you know, want to demonize anything that's state run and prey on low information voters, low information voters. And this is the purpose of this segment. They don't know what Medicare or Medicaid is or what the public option is. So when you poll them, you know, of course, they're going to get confused and say, well, I'm going to lose my health. I mean, you can move a poll any way you want, as long as you push it in the right direction. Before you go, do you have five more minutes? Uh, yeah, absolutely. And, and by the way, I want to say, um, I, I want to make sure we're not burying the lead on this New York Times story. Cause oh, yes. you say people are confused. Um, and one would think that a uh, member of the editorial board of the New York Times would be helping alleviate the confusion. Yes. Uh, but in the second to last paragraph, we finally get the healthcare debate that, um, that we that Michelle Cottle wants us to have instead of arguing about Medicare for all. Um, so she says, yes, the Democratic candidates need to talk about health care. Polls show that it is a top, if not the top, policy concern for their voters. And the issue is a pillar of the party's successful platform to win control of the House in 2018. By the way, I love this technique where you shove all the stuff that undermines your point to one paragraph <laughs> so you can say you said it. Yeah, right. Oh, that's I didn't know that. Oh, thank you. So you can say you said it. That's interesting. Okay. Exactly. It's, it's, it's very um, – uh, do you know the, the movie uh, Donnie Brasco? Yeah. Um, so I was actually watching that with our uh, mutual friend Michael when I was in Brooklyn and um, uh, the other weekend, and um, 
and there's a point <laughs> where uh, one of the mob bosses is is getting him to like abandon uh, the um, the gangster who'd taken him under his wing mm-hmm. and just like work directly for him instead. And he, and he's describing like this, uh, the gangster, the, uh, Pacino's character who he wants him to abandon. And he says, uh, you know, look, I love him. He, he took care of, you know, my family while I was in prison. I'm never uh-huh. going to forget that. And I just, I just had this moment where I turned to, to Michael and I was like, oh my God, this is the exact technique that people use in shitty hot take Vox articles <laughs> where they just, <laughs> Cram all of the things that undermine their point into one paragraph, right? So they can say that they said it. But okay. anyway, she says, "But there are other healthcare matters that could use more attention." All right. So, what are these other ones that could use more attention? Such as surprise medical bills, reproductive rights, and the Republicans' continuing efforts to wow. dismount Obamacare. Wow. So let's talk about those. Yes. Reproductive rights. Um. That's if, I mean, that's fully covered in the Sanders uh, Medicare for All bill. It yes. actually includes uh, undoing the Hyde Amendment, which prevents government funding for reproductive yes. rights. And by the way, even if it didn't, it would still be a huge gain for reproductive rights because money is fungible. Right. If you have, if you save money in one area, you have more money to go in another area. And... Um, even if the government wasn't funding abortions, uh, if you aren't paying health insurance premiums every month, uh-huh. uh, you are more likely to be able to afford one anyway. So that's just a side note. But um, what about uh, billing? A surprise yeah, medical what about bills? Surprise bills? Yeah. What would be a solution to getting rid of surprise bills? How do we fix that without? How do you do that? Eyes bills. Hmm, yeah, that's tricky. Hmm. No, we, we we should probably come up with some incredibly complex technocratic Goldberg yes. contraption <laughs> that uh, incentivizes doctors not to surprise us. Yes. Or we could just have Medicare for all. So now there's no such thing as going out of network. Uh, which is one of the most common causes of these surprise bills. And in fact, there's, since there's no such thing, there's no such thing as a deductible copay. Right. You, you, uh, you're not like, as in Canada, you can't be charged at the point of service. You, uh, you're, everybody's paying into everybody's healthcare through taxation, but you're not paying more depending on what services you use any more than the taxes that you pay. Uh, to fund your local police department depend on whether you're a victim of a crime that year. Right. Before you go, so we, yes, we're angry that Elizabeth Warren has lied to the American people and said that she supports Medicare for all when she doesn't. She supports some kind of government-run health insurance policy. So now, because we've challenged her policy, Bernie supporters are being accused of trashing Elizabeth Warren personally. And she tweeted out, where is this? She wrote, uh, I was hurt that, uh, where is it? Where is it? Well, tell us, I can't find the, oh, Elizabeth. I was disappointed to hear that Bernie Sanders is telling his volunteers to trash me. Democrats want to win in 2020. We all saw the impact of the factualism in 2016, and we can't have a a repeat of that. 
Yeah, so she's doing a couple things there. One, so the thing that was so objectionable, and it's not, by the way, clear where this even came from because it doesn't seem to have been authorized by the Sanders campaign. Possibly some volunteer stuck it in a, you know, um, like was improvising. But the thing is, even if it did come straight from the campaign, it's just a pure statement of fact. What she's describing as trashing her is this talking point that uh that that Bernie Sanders uh is uh has a lot more appeal to lower income non college educated voters who would otherwise be less likely to vote right which is just true i mean look at any poll that's a that's a fact mm-hmm. Uh, so I, I would think that just accurately citing polling information right. <laughs> shouldn't count as trashing her. It's, it's, and she's she's also spreading the fucking lie about the 2016 election that uh, that Bernie Sanders undermined Hillary Clinton by uh, you know by factionalism. Right. When uh, during some of the key months of the election, uh, Bernie may have campaigned more for Hillary than she campaigned for herself. Right. Exactly. And and. Just to go back to what the Bernie canvassers are being told to say, they're being told to say that Elizabeth Warren attracts Democrats who are going to vote Democrat no matter what. They're baked in to the election, the Elizabeth Warren supporters. They're not going anywhere. But she's not bringing in a new base, whereas Bernie is tapping into the 100 million Americans who could vote but don't. That's trashing Elizabeth Warren. We, we've had to put up with a year of Bernie not being electable. That's all we hear is, yeah, I like Bernie in principle, but he's not electable. So when we push back and explain why he's not only electable, but he will win, we're trashing Elizabeth Warren? Yeah. So even if that are, even if that was an instruction to canvassers, which apparently it wasn't, but whatever, what they're being accused of, of like, of giving as a talking point to canvassers is actually a completely reasonable argument. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Uh, it's, 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 it's incredible. Um, and I'll also, um, I, I, I also just really, really want to uh, point out that when the, um, uh, Michelle Cottle is not a, is not a uh, outlier on the New York Times editorial board in terms of her level of seriousness about this stuff. Uh, these are just a couple of quick quotes from the, since the New York Times published their transcript of, uh, of their conversation with Bernie Sanders, and they really used it to like, to, to get into the important policy issues that people care about. Yeah, it's, it's a great interview. It really is. Yes. So here's one of the questions. I hope you don't mind if I ask you a couple more personal questions. Can you give us an example of one person who's broken your heart? Bernie, after a long pause, what, at a personal level? Yeah. No, I won't. Uh, even candidates for president of the United States have a limited amount of privacy. Oh, yeah. here's here's a good one. Are you an Amazon Prime member? Pardon me? Are you an Amazon Prime member? No. Um, even your cat's getting pissed off. <laughs> fair enough, fair enough. What's an app on your phone that you have that might surprise people? Nothing. Yeah, I, I I love the I love like just in the transcript you can get Bernie's like mounting irritation uh-huh. <laughs> that the New York Times is asking him this incredibly asinine series of nonsense questions. Yes, 
you know, like he he's talking, you know, every single opportunity that he gets, he's talking about Medicare for all. Uh, he's talking about a Green New Deal so we can switch to an energy infrastructure right. that's less likely to lead to mass death. Uh-huh. Uh, he's, you know, um, he's talking about, uh, he's talking about free higher education. Um, he desperately wants to talk about these things. Even the 2016 election, the one that really happened, not the fantasy version that Elizabeth Warren is tapping into. Right. Not only did Bernie not like, undermine the, you know, Hillary Clinton's election with factionalism. Even during the primary, he famously said that he was sick and tired of hearing about the damn yes. emails. Yes. All he wanted to do was talk about policy. Right. And they can't. And there's this sense of entitlement from the Clintons and the Elizabeth Warrens and the Harvard people that if you challenge me on policy, you are trashing me. Because... I'm entitled to be right because I'm always the smartest person in the room. And, of course, it must be sexism. I'll end on this. This is from today's New York Times. As of May, the Bernie Sanders campaign staff was 71 percent female. The staff is majority non-white. Forty seven percent of members are white and nearly 10 percent are black. And briefly in that New York Times interview, they did mention that Bernie Sanders staffers voted to turn union. That's like a passive sentence, isn't it? They voted to turn union. What the New York Times didn't point out is that he's the only candidate with a union staff. Yes, that's still true. That's amazing. I'll double check that, but he was the first candidate. Yeah, certainly the first. I, I didn't believe it. I'm just I'm, I'm just surprised. I mean, I, if that's true, I'm surprised that um, I, I'm a little bit surprised that the rest of them are, are quite that oblivious that they haven't at least, uh, you know, stood aside and, you know, let that happen for the sake of the optics. Well, here's the thing. They won't report that over at CNN because they just CNN just paid out like $120 million in wave theft, uh, again, in, in allowing his campaign, Biden allowed his campaign workers to unionize. He said he would welcome it if the campaign staff formed a union, but said the campaign, you know, in principle, he would have nothing against, you know, like John Stewart used to say to the writers, <laughs> ah, here it is. Here, here. This is this is this is John Stewart uh, when the the writers wanted to unionize. Former Vice President Joe Biden, presidential campaign, says he would welcome it if campaign staff formed a union, but said the campaign aims to offer good enough pay and benefits to make it unnecessary. T.J. Ducklow. A spokesman for Biden said, we are confident that the work environment, pay and benefits will meet the standards that a union would normally have to bargain for. That is straight out of the Amazon Walmart playbook. Yep. I'm for unions in principle. I just don't <laughs> think it's necessary here because we're family. Ben Burgess is the author of Give Them an Argument, Logic for the Left. 
one of the things he's taught us here on the show is how to really dissect pieces in places like the New York Times. You've really uh, upped my ability to think critically and my listeners. So thank you. This has been these have been great exercises in futility and the uh, because there's I was an insult. You didn't laugh. (laughs) He teaches philosophy at Georgia State Perimeter College. You'll see him tonight doing the debunk with Michael Brooks. And he is a columnist for Jacobin. You can get two of his essays delivered to your inbox each week by going to patreon.com forward slash Ben Burgess. I got to get to our next guest. I'm running behind. So thank you very much. Can you stand the line for one second? Absolutely. Thank you. You're listening to The David Feldman Show, you happy, self-actualized hump. Let us now go to Los Angeles, where the David Feldman Show's favorite guest is standing by, Brian, I don't know his last name, Brian Ongo Boingo. <laughs> Swartz. Brian Swartz. Swartz. What happened to the H? Oh, House, you took it. It's not a, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Laura House is here. Hello, Laura. Hello, David. Brian um, has a story about the lemon thing. Okay, can I apologize to you first for keeping you waiting and not being able to do a longer segment with you? That's okay. Can I tell you what happened? All right, tell me what happened. Can you keep a secret? No. So go ahead. All right. So. It's just the two of us. Okay, so what I do when I'm cleaning is I fill the sink and I pour a little bleach, just a little bleach into the kitchen sink, and I let it fill up, right? And then sure. I let it sit there, and the, the bleach eats away at the the germs, the blood, mm-hmm. the brain matter, whatever, uh-huh. whatever I might have in my yeah. sink, right? Mm-hmm. And I thought, well, the, the sink is, <laughs> this is, you know, I can run downstairs and put some stuff into the dryer in my apartment. And yeah. I, I run into somebody and I start talking. And next thing I know, oh. yeah, yeah. Oh. So, yeah. So the person down below, not happy. <laughs> and I'm trying to blame the person down below, but I haven't figured out how yet. Yeah. Have you ever done something like that? Uh, I'm sure I have a lot. Um, I'm embarrassed. It's like, because, you know, I'm thinking maybe it's, you know, am I becoming forgetful? Jim, how long have I known you, Jim? (laughs) Well, Daryl, I feel like uh, we're good friends. Um, No, I mean, it's one of the, I wouldn't make too much out of it it's one of those it's like just a silly mistake i don't think it has bigger ramifications but 
And it's I know the, that it, feeling that it feels bad and it's embarrassing. And, and it's their fault downstairs for... For gravity. For, <laughs> exactly. It's gravity's fault, if nothing else. Well, and why didn't you tell me? Why weren't you home to see the drip start? Yeah. So, so the problem was... So you, not that you left it in the sink with a little bleach, but you, it was, it was running. You ran. My sink runneth over. You, yeah. So don't, d- don't do that. Okay. Let me write that, do that down. Part. Let me write that down. <laughs> and it was, a, so you, you know, left with the water running while I was putting that clothes in. That I don't get. Because you, you just thought, like, you know what, this is going to be fast. Was it just the idea that, like, this sink takes forever to fill up? Yeah. So I've got, I, I got, got time to run down. Or something while I'm waiting. I'm going to go to the laundry room in the apartment oh, okay. building and just put the clothes in the dryer. It's a giant, rich guy sink. Yeah. And, and I ran into a neighbor um, and had a conversation. That a what was old not- neighbor who you were trying to kiss? Yes. Should we go that way? <laughs> and, and and we just started kissing and and everything runneth over. Well, in life, it's so bad. But if that were like a Hallmark movie, everybody would be like, ah, oh, love. Mm-hmm. And and we're still kissing, even though the flood is just it's now it's my mm-hmm. water just now pouring. it's raining on you like yes. a romantic rain in Paris. <laughs> In movies, stuff like that is like, it's so forgivable yeah. because you're not the downstairs neighbor and uh-huh. you're just like, you know what, who who cares a little flooding? L- love, love mm-hmm. wins. But in real life, people are like, what is your problem? <laughs> Old man. Turn off the sink, man. Old man. Well, if you can help me, if you can come up with some reasons, it's the people down below's fault. I like gravity. That's a good idea. Yeah, it's for sure. It's gra- I mean, gravity is the culprit here. Yeah. But um. Okay. Hey, uh, I told you something last week about trumpet players. What about you're vegan and so you're too weak to turn off the valve? I like that. So then you can blame health and you can blame the landlord. Like I've told you about this sink. Mm-hmm. Faucets. I've told you about this. And right. they're like, no, you haven't. And you're like, I thought about it. I wanted to tell you. You know what? I wanted to tell you I didn't want to bother you. They should have a sensor in sinks. That oh, they set off automatically? Yeah. I, you know what? Now I'm pissed off. Why yeah, don't they have so it, sensors? It's, a, it's basically Elon Musk's fault. Why don't we have more futuristic sinks? That's science's fault. Because it's big water wanting to... Mm-hmm. Make sure that we have Wanting to, fl- to flow. We have it to f- is. It's big water. Big water. We have to flush ten times. That's what Donald Trump tells us. <laughs> that I don't even know. Me neither. How to wrap my mind around that rant? Yeah, I, I, it, you know, I, I heard about it and I saw a headline, and I said, not this one. I I'm, did the I, same. I was like, I can't, I can't I, delve into this yeah. nonsense. But here's. Look, I don't mean to get political. I know this is not a political no, podcast. No, we, we appeal to everybody. <laughs> this is, yeah. Um, but I, he doesn't bother me as much as the fact that people support him 
in, in droves. Like if you, if you, I stand by this. If you told me 11 people liked him and his leadership, I would be like, that's crazy. So the fact that it's, it's way more than 11 people, I, I can't even wrap my mind around it. And he may get reelected. You know what? Here's the thing. It looks real likely. Yeah. Here's the thing, and I'm being totally honest with you. For once. Yes. So the sink is overflowing, and I realize, okay, this is gonna, <laughs> this is gonna cost me money. This is not good. Yeah. This is, you know, water damage. And my first thought was, what would Donald Trump do? Oh. What did Brian say? Brian said counter sue. Counter sue. I like the way you're thinking. So that's the looking for blame of the under guy. Or it's the, the, is it the landlord's fault? For like the, the floors are too thin. I don't know. The water, I think I, water's too wet. I've complained about that before and you didn't do anything. <laughs> <laughs> I've, none of my complaints have been addressed. Mm-hmm. It's no problem. It's always, it's always the, the landlord's fault. Well, I guess that's why Donald Trump is going to get reelected, because in in many ways he is an inspiration. He gets away with everything. That's that's for sure. Yes. In those ways, 100 percent. Yes. In the the that terrible. It's so I can't even say terrible. I was going to because craftiness is great. And then, you know, it just obviously goes way over the line into. Okay. I want to ask Brian a question, but before we get off the topic of Donald Trump, I want you, I, this is truly incredible. Mm-hmm. Imagine, I want you to imagine this scenario today. I will. Okay. And then go back in time four years and imagine Ooh. this scenario. Donald Trump, okay, yeah. mm-hmm. Donald Trump loses both the popular vote and the Electoral College next November. Describe to me what the inauguration of Andrew Yang, Elizabeth Warren, or Joe Biden would look like. I believe it's January 20th or 21st when we inaugurate the new president. Tell me what you think. You know, we're supposed to be inaugurating a new president 53 weeks from now. If Donald yeah. Trump doesn't win, what what describe that inauguration to me? The word dignified comes to mind. What, what are you, what are you getting? <laughs> well, at? How do you, do you think Donald Trump would show up? Do you think he would welcome, uh, you know, traditionally the, the president? Oh, I yeah, I guess that's a real question that, um, I, that seems, that seems like a big point. Bill Maher has made many times that like he doesn't think he's going to leave, but I, I think he makes a big excuse as to why. He's not interested and then just doesn't do, I, I don't think he, I don't, I don't think he shows up to things that aren't about him. So I don't, he can't I don't sit feel like there. he would. I think he would be like, I've lost money on this job. You people don't deserve me. I feel like if he lost an election, I also think he would, he would drop out if it looked like he was going to lose. Like, I just think there's mm. any number of safeguards to, to save face. And then I think it would be, you know, if it was Sanders, Warren, Biden, 
et cetera. I, I just think it would, it would, I think it would seem like an inauguration from the 1950s. I feel like for several weeks, America, we would feel like we would drop back into like 1955 it, because things would just seem sweet and old timey suddenly with, with that. With him gone. With that dude gone. Yeah. I think, I feel like it's so stressful. His presence is so stressful that I feel like collectively we, you know, just a normal sort of marching band, yeah. and, you know, elector, you know, like inaugural ball would, would be like, it would seem so quaint and <laughs> like we've gone back in time. Right. That's what Joe Biden is selling. And, and one of the things that I fear that people like you, who I have tremendous respect for, and I'm saying that only because Brian is listening and I don't want to get punched. But you you know how I talk to you when Brian isn't there, right? Yeah, it's real punch talk. It's real. It's like totally disrespectful. But when your man is there, yeah, I tone it down. But yeah, try to imagine well, he's a puncher that, and you're very nearby. So it's uh-huh. a it's a uh, it's a huge problem. OK, I'm going to try to imagine this at 11. But I'll tell you this at two. On the volume meter. Uh, you can't go back. Yeah. Once, once you, now just pretend I'm screaming at this and you're, you're wondering that there's some kind of subtext underneath this all. So you're all caps screaming, you can't go back. Yeah. And it's about something else, really. And you can't figure out, like, like you're looking in my eyes and nobody's home. It's a lot of imagining. Yeah. But of course, this, can't happen because Brian's there. But you, you, Do you want this, me to ask him to look away? Nah, I'm, I, 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 no, I don't have the energy. Okay, all right, you're screaming at but me. But you can't go back once you. What's going on? I don't know why you're screaming. You can't go back. You can't go back. You can't. What we've had Trump. You can't pretend that it never happened. It's like it is like I'm being serious now. It's like. Uh, a husband cheating on his wife. You know, it's not the same again. She'll take you back, but it's different. And that's what I think America is going to find itself, if we're lucky. Yeah. Yeah, I get that. It would have to be, I mean, it has to evolve into something else. But I do think just from... From the simple exercise of asking me to imagine it, it does seem like, at least for half of us, it would seem like, uh, like just an exhale of like, thank God that dude is gone. Right, right. That, that even if, even if we can't go, that's not really like it's, like it was, it would feel, I just, I still feel like it would feel that way. Right. So. Let me ask you, because we have limited time, and I apologize. All right, and Brian has a story for you. Yeah, now I had told you. So We're talking with Brian. He is uh, Mr. Laura House. Is that how we should refer to you? Sure, I mean, no, his name is Brian Swartz, and he's a trumpet player. And a, very, he, a, a gifted trumpet player. He's a gifted. He's a, a world class trumpet player. He, ironically, does not toot his own horn. But I'm <laughs> glad to. I'm glad to brag about it. Brag about it. <laughs> he's played. 
<laughs> he, he doesn't toot his own. So, and he no. plays with Oingo Boingo and he, he plays with Oingo Boingo, which is super fun, but he's also in, uh, he's been on many Grammy nominated albums, nominated many times, and, um. He's an artist. He plays jazz festivals all around the world. He's an artist. He is, yeah. A gifted artist. I, I think so, yeah. He understands musical theory. He, yeah. He teaches, he, correct? He does, yeah. He teaches, he arranges and composes. He, so he has a skill that can actually be translated into something discernible. At the end uh, of the day, he can point to something and say, I did it. Sure, yeah. Okay. All right. That must be something. <laughs> that would that was that was that was where you were going. It just it must be nice. Went, it went just, right up to the curb and then stopped. No, no. It's just it must be nice to have a skill other than being told something happened in the news and trying to tie it into a blowjob. Like that's my <laughs> skill. It's like okay, we attack Suleimani, and uh, you know. How do I make that sound like a blowjob so people think I'm naughty and laugh? And, oh wow! Yeah. I I'm so bad at structure. I never actually realized that's that's what political jokes are. But I guess yeah. I guess yeah. Yeah, that's all jokes basically get down to either farting, pooping, or sex. <laughs> that's basically it. But, uh, you know, if you understand musical theory no, and you can play the trumpet and you, you have an actual skill set, you can. Uh, well, so what happened? I told you I, something. But he's, he's not the only musician. I play butt trumpet. You play the butt trumpet. <laughs> Remember that thing you said about jokes? Uh huh. The butt trumpet. <laughs> All right. Have you, did you release that? your spit valve? That's a that's a oh. fart joke. Yeah, almost almost never on purpose, but yes. Okay. It gets released. Okay. What? The butt trumpet. Okay. Butt trumpet. Did you play with Herb Alpert and the Tijuana ass? <laughs> <laughs> Look at that sound effect. <laughs> I'm not even touching. I'm so All right, so we we only have like 6 minutes. So I had said something about <laughs> Uh, actually, I'm kind of like patting. My, I'm kind of happy about the Tijuana ass joke. Uh, no, everybody's pretty. Look, you know, it's too bad we can't see the tweets in real time because everybody's going to be very excited about the, the Tijuana ass. My self esteem went down the crapper after I let the sink roll. Well, you know, so that makes sense. So thank you. I feel a little better about myself. Yeah. No. Now. It, you're on a you're on an upswing with Tijuana ass. Sure, I've caused millions of dollars in damage to my apartment millions? building. It's probably one hundred and fifty dollars. But I came up with Herb Alpert and the Tijuana ass, and I wouldn't trade that for anything. So I told you about. I'm so pathetic. I told you about lemons, right? You told me about lemons, and I told Brian. I was like. Um, if I eat a lemon in front of you, you're powerless. <laughs> and you didn't believe me. I still don't believe you. Here's Brian. Okay. Hey, Brian. Hey, how you doing? Hey, I, I don't normally talk to her that way, but, you know, sometimes. You understand, right? I, uh, <laughs> <laughs> so 
so what? what <laughs> if you so what? What? Tell us about the lemons. Uh, that's yeah. That's uh, that. I have uh, a different experience than that. Um, I was playing a uh, about twenty years ago. I was playing in a swing band, and. Um, you know, you because what you said was that if you eat lemons in front of a trumpet player, they can't play, mm-hmm. and that, that's not true. The uh, I was playing in a swing band. You know, this was a, before the turn of the century right. uh, in the nineties there, and uh, swing was really hot in Los Angeles. And so I was playing in a band that was doing an after party for the Golden Globes. Well, what did you play uh, in? Uh, what's his name's band? There was a rocker who went to swing. What's oh, uh, Brian Setzer. No, I haven't ever played with Brian. Okay. <clears throat> but, but your uh, name is Brian. Yeah, coincidentally. Okay. Yeah. Go I, ahead. I have, to- lot, I have a lot of friends that have played with Setzer. But um, anyway, this band was called Red and the Red Hots, and uh, we used to play around Los Angeles a lot uh, 20, 25 years ago. And... Um, we were playing in a, a Golden Globes after party, and Peter Fonda yes. came and sat down directly in front of me, about 10 feet away, and he said the same thing that you said. Hey, I heard that if you eat lemons in front of a trumpet player, they can't play. And he proceeded to eat lemons while I was playing. Wow. And it had no effect on my superpowers whatsoever. That's I was interesting. Fine. He played right through. I played right through it. Yuli's gold was a lemon. Wasn't that wasn't that why he was not to speak ill of the dead, but Yuli's that was overrated, wasn't yeah, nobody it? it? Nobody liked it. I think that's was why he was at the Golden Globes, right? Oh, maybe. Uh, Sounds right. Do you know I'll tell you something interesting. If you blow Don Are Lemon you admit you're wrong. I'm going to admit I'm wrong, but I'm also in the middle of a really bad joke. So hang on. Let me rewind for a second. If you blow Don Lemon in front of Anderson Cooper, <laughs> yes. he, he can't play the trumpet. <laughs> Did you know that? You should try that. Uh, okay. I'm just what? I'm throwing that out there. CNN, we, we'll, I'll get him on it. Yes. Well... I owe you a massive apology. I kept you waiting, and uh, there were many reasons for that. And I'm sorry you flooded your city. Yeah. Yeah. Can we do this again next week if I... I think if, so. If I'm on time? And, yeah, I think okay. so. Laura House can be followed on Twitter by going to... I'm what? Laura House. I'm Laura House. Mouth Punch is the name of her comedy CD. Everybody should buy it. Yeah. And would you like to promote anything else? Mm, I don't think so. Okay. You'll, you'll be on the David Feldman Show next Tuesday, right? Oh. Right. <laughs> oh, la, la. Trey Continental. <laughs> I got to jump off. Can you stand on the line? Thank you, Brian. <laughs> yeah, have a good one. Uh, is that was that sarcastic? <laughs> no. Stay dry. Oh, he didn't. I I get that you because you, you know about the the depends.
which nobody's supposed to know about. All right, stand wow. along for one second. Yes. That, okay. Hang on. I hang on for one second. Tonight, Joe Biden, Bernie Sanders, Pete Buttigieg, Amy Klomachar, Elizabeth Warren, and Tom Steyer face off for the seventh Democratic presidential debate. Here to give us a preview is Peabody Award-winning comedy writer Jim Earl. Welcome back, Jim Earl. Tom who? Tom Steyer. I don't even know who. What? Tom who? Billionaire activist. Jesus. Uh, you lost me. Okay. I have no idea who. Is that what's happening on the debate? What? I think this is going to be the most interesting debate so far because Bernie has been laying low. They've been going after Joe Biden. Every debate, there's some new front runner. You know, one yeah. one debate, it's... Elizabeth Warren, and then the next debate, it's Pete Buttigieg, and, you know, Amy Klobuchar gets into it with all of them. But they right. leave Bernie alone. Why do you think they leave Bernie alone? And now he is the front runner. So, because it's always been, he's always been the perceived non-front front one runner, yeah. even though he has been surging more than anybody else uh, consistently. And he has been the front runner, but the media doesn't want to admit that because then they'd have to admit the the, the great lie uh, of their existence, which is that uh, he's not relevant. And unelectable. Not, not unelectable, yes. Right. So, I, I don't think you've answered the question entirely. Yeah. And he, by the way, let me read the poll numbers because we do that on every show because they say Bernie's unelectable. The real clear politics polling averages. This is the average of all the polls taken in Iowa. Well, they show Bernie and Biden now tied in Iowa. I thought he was like five points ahead. I know. They must be finding some shit polls so Biden can get a bump. <laughs> but uh, they're in a statistical dead heat. Second place is Buddha Judge, followed by Warren, Klobuchar, Jesus. and Yang. Yeah. Buddha Judge. Yeah. New Hampshire, Sanders is leading 21% to Biden's 18%. Buddha judges in third place, 18 percent. And Elizabeth Warren all the way down to 14 percent. So it's uh, looking like Bernie is going into this debate for the first time, probably since the first debate. I think Bernie was kind of like the front runner in the first debate. This yeah. is the first time that he will be a target I don't think you answered the question entirely. I think the reason they don't go after Bernie is the same reason Iran isn't really going to fight the United States. You you can't win against Bernie. And if they get into it over Medicare for all tonight, if they start debating the policy of Medicare for all, he's going to expose 
Buttigieg is a fraud. Biden is a fraud. Yeah. And I'm sorry to say this, but I've been reading about her, her plan for Medicare for all and Elizabeth Warren. And I know the Bernie supporters are being attacked for going after her. Well, we're not going after her. We're just telling people what her policy is. Yes, it's all policy. And, and that's what the, the problem with the, the Democratic Party and the Clinton wing is that they can't stand being confronted with their own policy. They think that's dirty politics. Exactly. Instead of what Hillary Clinton has been and the Clinton family have been doing all their life, which is dirty politics, bringing race into it, bringing the uh, Robert Kennedy's assassination up during the uh, 2008 campaign. Uh, to target uh, Obama uh, and bringing up his middle name and all this kind of shit. The Clintons are dirty politicians, and they always have been. Yeah, the uh, the uh, but but to but to point out, you know, the, 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 if Warren's record is terrible. I mean, how often do you have to hear she was a Republican until age forty-seven? Before her, you know, her fans, what are they, how can they respond to that? Well, it's, you know, she, she's woke now. Oh, it's not relevant. That was then. This is now. Well, then wouldn't you rather have somebody who was, who was a progressive all his life, who never had, never went back and forth on, on campaign funding and, and uh, Medicare for all. And you brought up Medicare for all. No, she's not for Medicare for all. She lied about that. Just like she lied about not accepting any uh, corporate campaign funding. She has temporarily suspended corporate money, but she's gotten it in the past and she's not ruling it out for the general election. Right. And, you know, everybody claims to be for Medicare for all. And I hope this comes out in the debate tonight. Because all the candidates, except Bernie, have stopped talking about Medicare for all. All the candidates said they were for Medicare for all until they had to explain their policy. And sadly, the American people, and I've tried to educate some of my listeners and myself about the difference between health care and health insurance. And for somebody like Mayor Pete to say he's for Medicare for all, but you opt into it, give people a choice to opt in for Medicare for all, that's an insult to the American people's intelligence because you don't opt into Medicare for all. Medicare is free. It's not a health insurance policy. The public option is a health insurance policy that the government is selling to the American people. Medicare is free. So when you say, and I would love to hear somebody in the press ask this of Buttigieg. So when you say Americans should have a choice to opt in to Medicare for all. So that means they have a choice to get free health care, completely paid for, because that's what Medicare is. Is that what you're saying, Mayor Pete? Yeah. Well, you, you can't have, they can't exist side by side. But health insurance is a business. It's a greed-based capitalist business. Medicine 
is a science. And, you know, when, when I was growing up, doctors were well-respected and they made a fine living. And, uh, but it, it was a lot easier to see a doctor then and a lot of more affordable. It's not, it shouldn't be about profit. It should be about making a good living and serving people. And medicine is a scientific treatment profession. Health insurance is a scam. It's a pyramid scheme. Yes. It always has been. Yes. It's, it, it's Vegas, Las Vegas. Yes. It's a casino. And, and they make money. Their business model is, is denying service, denying health care to people. And that's the way it always is. And you ask if, there, if uh, that's going to be on the debate tonight. Well, I think it, who's hosting the debate? Because they're going, most likely, they're going to bring out this fake story uh, about uh, Bernie Sanders uh, giving his uh, underlings instructions to attack Warren. Yes. And to smear her. Yes. Uh, by so the way, he's sending out instruction I, to his volunteers. Yeah. And what's he telling? What's he telling them to say? To say that she's supported, uh, as the polls say, primarily by white college educated affluence people. Right. Like, OK, sorry. Sorry, lady. But that's the truth. Right. Supposedly, supposedly there is a script that has been handed out to some Bernie Sanders volunteers mm -hmm. to tell voters who might be on the fence when it comes to Elizabeth Warren, quote, that her supporters are highly educated, more affluent, who are going to show up and vote Democratic no matter what, and that she's bringing no new bases into the Democratic Party. So yes. is that an ad hominem attack? Is that mean-spirited? No, it's, it's the truth. And But the thing is, that the, that charge isn't even true itself. That that uh, that was a lone uh, campaign uh, worker who uh, put that out in a, into a blog or, or a, a letter, uh, an email um, thread, and it was taken off almost immediately, as it yeah. was seen by the people in charge of uh, that district. I but believe. it's true. Like, why are we bullies? I mean, I, you know, it, it's here. Here's what Senator State Senator Claire Selsey, Iowa State State Senator Claire Selsey, told The New York Times. This doesn't surprise me about Bernie supporters. She's a Warren supporter. She told mm -hmm. The New York Times he went straight to the gutter with Hillary. So it's just more of the same. What right. what did he do to Hillary? He didn't do anything. It, 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 Clinton, uh, one of Clinton's aides is coming out now, jumping on that bandwagon with the lie, the age-old lie that uh, Bernie did not support Clinton during the 2016 general election, that he didn't go out, you know, and, and that uh, the majority of Clinton, uh, Bernie supporters didn't vote for her, which is another fucking lie. And... <laughs> Didn't he say during the debates with Hillary, enough with the emails? Nobody cares about her emails. Yeah. Yeah. She doesn't care. Hillary fans don't care. And uh, they're bringing up the, the, that lie again about more 
Bernie supporters voted for Trump than uh, Hillary supporters voted uh, for Obama's uh, adversary in 2008, which is a complete reversal of the of reality. Right. 80% of Bernie supporters voted for Hillary. And how many Hillary supporters in 2008 voted for Obama? 60. Yeah. 60%. You, you brought it up earlier. You, you said the, the, the Clintons have such a sense of entitlement that if you just challenge them on policy, they take it as a personal affront. And it has to be sexism or it has to be you're in the gutter or it's Russians, Facebook, when in fact, and I want to bring this up because it kind of could tie us into Tulsi Gabbard. Uh, Hillary didn't campaign in Michigan or Wisconsin. She lost Pennsylvania. She lost Michigan, Wisconsin and Pennsylvania by about 77,000 votes. That's the margin. She ran a stupid campaign, a sense of entitlement. She ran a really bad campaign and blames it on Bernie and the Russians. And now we're discovering there's a new study of casualty rates state by state, county by county. And while some of us, including me, are dismissive of Tulsi Gabbard, because all she wants to do is put an end to these mindless wars, these senseless wars. Well, you know, fine, that's, you know, but there are other things that we should be talking about. But, you know, the endless wars thing, that's, you know. Yeah. Well, it turns out that Trump won, this new study shows that he won big in Democratic counties that suffered uh, from military casualties. That that had he had Hillary been less of a hawk, the she would have won in Michigan, Wisconsin, and Pennsylvania because they have borne the brunt of Iraq and Afghanistan. So that when you know it somehow it kind of registered with these voters when Trump said that he's an American. Firster and that he's going to put an end to reckless interventionist globalism. We dismiss that as poppycock, but the people whose kids are going off and fighting these wars, they believe Trump. But, you know, you failed to mention that the the poll also revealed that uh, families who are victims of war casualties also end up being really sexist. Oh, that's true. Yes. Yes. And, and, and they yeah. like Russian. They like Russia interference. I forgot about and, that. Yes. Yes. That, they're Putin's puppets. Yes. They're Putin's puppets. If you if you have a child serving in Afghanistan or Iraq, you automatically become a misogynist and a racist and a Putin puppet who would never vote for Clinton has nothing to do with Libya and the fact that had she been elected, we'd be in more wars than Trump. I, I know this is not going to please my listeners, but if you look at the assassination of Soleimani, and yes, it was botched, yes, it was illegal, we're not, and I said this when it happened, it's not World War Three. Trump 
should be impeached, but he's not getting us into a war. He just isn't. He doesn't have the credibility to lead us into war. No, but that's the beauty of having a moron as our commander in chief. Yeah, I don't know. I, I don't have that much faith in his being a moron. I think he's a moron who could get us into World War Three. No, uh, Kaiser, almost... Wilhelm was, Kaiser Wilhelm was a moron as well. And uh, but it how takes much... morons in charge of power with a lot of uh, entitlement and a lot of money to to screw things up. And I think he's doing just that. And also, I think he's been egged on by the Democratic uh establishment with all the red baiting and all the charges that he's weak and Putin's puppet. I think he's, uh, he's showing them how much he isn't and in five, at least five, six strategic areas of importance around the, the world. He's, he's uh, challenging and threatening Russia dangerously. Ooh, like where Syria, he pulled out of Syria, y- Ukraine, Syria, well, he's out of he's out he's out of hang on, he's out of Syria, he he's out of U- Ukraine. He held up the four hundred million dollars in assistance to fight the Russians in eastern no. Ukraine. No, he he held it up for a few weeks. Yeah, but you know yeah. he doesn't he's care. Still about sa- he's he's still sending lethal weapons, lethal assistance to Ukraine, and now he's threatening Iran. He bombed Iran. He bombed, uh, he killed an Iranian general, and that's war. That's a, he's a, bombing is war. Okay, Venezuela, but what? Uh, he's but, supporting a coup in Venezuela, uh, threatening Russia's uh, oil interests there. He's threatening Russia's gas uh, selling interests uh, with uh, be, by pressuring Merkel and uh, Germany to stop buying gas from Russia. So I'm not. I'm, okay, you're you're making the case that he's not a puppet of Putin. And, no, he's not. Okay, I'm making the case that he's not leading us into World War Three. Well, I think the possibility is very, very. I think we are at war right now. The legal definition here is you bomb a country. That that's war. Okay, and, but we're also seeing protesters in Iran who want the Ayatollah Khamenei to step down. There's internal strife in Iran. We yes. may actually see a Persian spring. And, and that and, would benefit uh, Donald Trump, unfortunately. Okay, but I'm not saying, and I've been wrong on everything, I'm not saying half a million troops being sent to Iraq to occupy Iran and this whole thing exploding. I'm just not saying it. And I said that right after Soleimani was shot. I think uh, not cooler heads are prevailing. I think just cowardice is mm-hmm. prevailing. Well, I think he'll keep bombing. I think Trump is the kind of person to keep bombing and stu- doing stupid things. I think that's even more dangerous than uh, instituting a draft in this country and drafting a, the minimum of a million soldiers it would take to even think about invading or going to war with Iran. I think that's much safer than what he's doing now, which is sending bombs, because you send bombs around the countries, 
and uh, Israel wants to get in, involved, and other countries with the nuclear warheads get involved. And that's the easy way out, the yeah. so-called strategic uh, nuclear bombing. And right. th- that is where we get into uh, the apocalyptic situation with nuclear war. Okay, let's go back to Chelsea Clinton and their sense of entitlement. What She's is a great yeah, what has Chelsea Clinton done with her life that merits well, she, these salaries? Well, she was born into a rich political family, for one thing. She right. married well. She married a, a Goldman Sachs leveraged buyout husband yep. whose who's dad has a lot of bona fides, convicted on 31 charges of bank fraud, wire fraud, mail fraud. So he's a triple threat there. No wonder Ivanka is friendly with... Chelsea. Yeah, but they're kind of keeping low now. They, they made a <laughs> Did you read the story where they they, uh, they decided to uh, keep their friendship on the a uh, little less uh, in the public eye at the moment. So, uh Mesvinsky or whatever his name is, she's married to this hedge fund manager who I think had to retire his hedge fund. I think he ran a failed hedge fund. And Chelsea is doing what? She was at NBC for a couple of years as a correspondent. Yeah. You don't want to give. 600 grand a year for that. On NBC. Yeah. But she's a trained journalist, right? She's uh, she's got a Peabody Award. No. Like Jenna Bush. She and Jenna Bush. She... she has all the qualifications that uh, Megan McCain does for of journal for journalism. She's a, a, a credit to her uh, white privilege. As is Abby Huntsman. Abby Huntsman, yes. Also on the View. Chelsea's also a great advocate of the poverty stricken, and uh, you know she just de- dedicated a. Clinton Foundation funded library in Chicago. Ah, yeah. Well, that's she donated, a, she donated a copy of what's what happened to the science fiction section. <laughs> you know, she also visited the Memphis Zoo to promote her new book about protecting endangered animals. David, did you know that? No, I did not. Yeah, she's been visiting zoos all around the country to remind herself of how good Palestinians could have it if they would just cooperate. Oh, interesting. Go on. Yeah, her book is called Don't Let Them Disappear, or the complete opposite of how she feels about Muslims. <laughs> You're talking about Chelsea Clinton's book. Yeah, she, Chelsea, she wrote this Chelsea with her, she wrote this with her mother, right? I guess somebody had to help her write it. Yeah, yeah. Interesting. Yeah, and she is a salaried employee of what big company? Barry Diller has a big media company, and she's on the board of directors, right? She, she knows a lot about about media. I can't wait until she goes into stand-up comedy <laughs> as her own, own Netflix special, because she's earned, she's earned that. I mean, I've, I used to go see her at the Holy City Zoo uh-huh. doing her time. Doing her tight five, and man, uh, 
those were tough and lean years for her, but she she developed a good 30 minutes out of it. So Barry Diller gave her how many millions of dollars to sit on the board of directors of his media conglomerate? I don't remember that. Something like nine million? Nine million. Wow. Yeah. That's chicken feed compared to what she gets for serving on the Bill and Hillary and Chelsea Clinton Foundation. Yeah. But you and I need to get on the board of directors of these companies. Because, like, Madeleine Albright sits on the board of directors of these companies. Colin Powell will sit. I think Colin Powell and... And Al Gore sit on the board of directors of Apple computers and they get paid hundreds of thousands of dollars just to show up to one meeting. It's a good wow. gig. Jeez. Yeah. That's better than having a writing job for the People's Choice Awards. Oh, yes. Like you and I had once. That I'm still collecting. Oh, no. I thought that was that Are for we, Mark Burnett. I think so. Yeah, I remember you'd you'd show up and, and sit in the writer's room with your uh, laptop. Yeah, do nothing for about three hours and then leave. That's my that's the way I roll. <laughs> I, see, I remember it, working working with a, a Whitney Brown at the uh, Air America Radio, and it was hilarious. He'd come in there and uh, like three hours late, sit down. Next to me, goes off into sleep for about an hour or so. Then he wake up and look at me and go, I can't work under these conditions. <laughs> <laughs> then, he's, then he's smoke a joint out in the elevator and leave. That's, you know, it, yeah. Well, all work, and there's a book about this, all work is bullshit. And I have to find the author <laughs> of this book, but most jobs are complete bullshit. Yes, yes. And And the the thing is, you know, Whitney, not to, you know, talk too much about him. He would would do that, and then he'd spend 20 minutes writing something. It would be the best thing written for the whole day, for for the whole freaking week. But I'm paying you X amount of money, and I need you to work a 12-hour day. Yes. And I need to keep rejecting your stuff so you can't work on what you really want to work on. And I need to control you because I can't write for, you know, I'm not a writer and I resent your ability to string together a a coherent sentence. So I will work on your self-esteem and make you just keep writing and writing because I need you and I resent the fact that I need you. So I have to beat you, you know, the way Iceberg Slim beat his bitches. Yeah, it's weird how, you know, some comedy writing jobs... Uh, the, the, a producer or a head writer prides themselves in hiring a team of about 10 or 12 writers who all have their own special talents and their own special way of writing, you know, and it's a very diverse group in that, that respect. And then when you it comes need to down capture to, the voice of my show. Yeah. Yeah. And then when it comes down to, okay, it's time to write, everything has to go through the same shitty filter. And yeah. so everything's homogenized and all that diverse talent, uh, writing talent, not uh, ethnic uh, talent. Or <laughs> yes, because you're pro-ethnic. Mostly, mostly white. But um, that, that 
during that period. But uh, you, you can't. So everybody's talent is just wasted, basically. Well, it's it's corporate thinking. And anybody who's ever worked for a corporation can tell you the same story. It's the same. It's layer upon layer of people who really can't do anything other than create mindless work for people who can. That's that's I mean, look at the L.A. Public schools, LAUSD, I think they spend more on administrators than on teachers. What do administrators do? Yeah. Well, it's just like a. It's like our healthcare system. We have more people denying health care than providing it. The LA County, to my knowledge, spends around $67 million a year on their own police system 67 million dollars a year the, the whole county of los angeles spends five billion dollars on their police force well and there are five hundred thousand people living in the streets of uh of the u.s and over a hundred thousand living in the streets of la county but we got to spend five billion dollars on a unregulated unsupervised paramilitary organization to get them troop movers and grenade launchers and and automatic weapons yes to shoot homeless people in the back basically all right jim earl we have to wrap it up on that funny note yeah how do how do people follow you on twitter uh i'm at jim earl 666 okay uh, you'll find a lot of hilarious things there all right, and and well, and go to your website, right? Yes. Okay. Well, uh, uh, morningremembrance dot com. Okay. Stay on the line for one quick second. Okay. You're listening to the David Feldman Show. You happy, self-actualized hump. Let us now go to New Hampshire, where Citizen Bacon is standing by. Hello, David Bacon. Hello, David Feldman. How are you this evening, this morning, whatever it is? Uh, I'm okay. I got a call from New Hampshire Public Radio. Oh, um, yeah. You know, I have to talk to you about that. Oh, yeah. You know... Last show, I think it was the first time I finally, you know, my daughter was like, hey, Dad, you got to get a get us email for people who want to contact you from the Feldman show. So I said my David Citizen Bacon Gmail address last time. And then I guess someone contacts you. And then do you send them to that email address? No, you send them my freaking personal one, which I don't understand that. Mm hmm. Some, somebody but, you know, from somebody from New Hampshire Public Radio. One of the executives over uh, there? Yeah, the head of the content, whatever. She mm. she wants some tape that I have. I have some tape that I have. They just want some tape. Uh, and they're offering you, and the, I, I understand she told me she's meeting with you tomorrow? Yeah, I have to. Yeah, I'm going to go talk with her tomorrow sometime. And, uh, uh-huh. you know, unlike you, where you make me wish to talk to you, invitation to go see her anytime tomorrow. Like, my choice. <laughs> 
Mm. You know, whenever I feel like going. I mean, that's pretty nice. But, I mean, they want something from me, so... But, you know, the, Goof, oddly, she told me that their new, their new Hampshire Public Radio, she told me they have a video of the event, but they don't have audio, which mm. I don't even understand that. Yeah, I'm just trying but to radio I'm just trying to figure out. We'll get to that in a second. So you're meeting with uh, New Hampshire Public Radio. Well, just just one person. I mean, not the whole station. Yeah, but I'm just wondering, yeah. did it ever occur to you that I deserve the courtesy of a phone call before you set up that meeting? Well, you sent me the email that said that she, you know, even though it was to my wrong address, you know, you were nice enough to send it to me. I so was, I assumed that you... That was a test of your loyalty. Oh, well, I, I, am I, I'm, I'm on your show right now. You're on and the show I, to answer for your sins. Well, you know, the other thing is I've also said to New Hampshire Public Radio that we have not aired that tape yet on your show, so I thought I would have to talk to you before I, you know, thought about letting them have it. You're jumping ahead. The so. mere fact that you're talking to New Hampshire Public Radio without clearing it first well, yeah, you know, there there was a, oh, what was that? Was it Malcolm in the Middle? There was a TV show. I think it was like they used a cool song. It was something like You're Not the Boss of Me, Man, or something like that. Hmm. I don't know. Hmm. I don't know how it goes. <laughs> I don't know how okay. it goes. Okay, interesting. So, I, you know, hey, what? I, I don't understand I, I think you're going to have to choose between the David Feldman Show and New Hampshire so Public they, Radio. I <laughs> I want exclusivity. <laughs> They only want one tape from me. You want all of my tapes. I, I want all of you. We never have time for it. I don't want you meeting with the competition. I don't want oh, you talking to the competition. You're on Team Feldman. And, and this was an act of disloyalty to me. Oh, I don't think so. Nothing. Everything is above board. I, I feel, I feel I betrayed. No, 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 And no, no, there no. are trade secrets that I don't want you sharing with New Hampshire Public Radio. I don't need Scott Simon suddenly injecting flatulence I believe jokes he's, into... I think he's NPR, not... Uh, I'm sorry? NHPR. I think he's NPR, not NHPR. And now you have to correct me on my own show. You correct well, me. Well, I'm just... I'm just trying to put the facts out, like I do with the candidates. If if they're going to speak on truths, I have to put the facts out. I mean, I'll do the same with anyone, really. You know, I'm getting a sense that you're in the David Bacon business and not on Team Feldman. That's what I'm beginning I'm to in, sense. I'm not in any business. We're we're a team Again, here. This is a team. Money. This is a this is a little echo system, a microclimate, and when there's a, a an angry storm with ambition. It dis oh, it disrupts you, it disrupts our haven't you heard micro haven't you heard about climate change? Well, that's we're trying to protect this this delicate little boutique show that I run here, and for you to come in and start breaking the China, I oh we're just broadening the horizons. I I find you to be ungrateful, menacing. You've been eyeing this show since. I put you on. You've you've looked at me and said, his time has passed. <laughs> I, I'm going to get his show. 
Oh, this is these are no. You you work too hard for your who would I would. That's too much. That's yeah. It's enough. Well, I have to run around and get the tape. You you do a different thing. But I mean, I have enough. You know, I can only do what I'm doing. I, I couldn't. I couldn't. Uh, I'm not the uh, technical. That stuff. You know, all that stuff. You you're just a. You know that you're just a kiss ass. You're like Uriah Heep. Uh-huh. I've never met anybody more obsequious. And David Bacon. Oh, Mr. Feldman, I love the way your liver spots match the color of your hair plugs. That's the liver. That's two liver spot uh, comments in, uh, I think, two shows in a row. I think you mentioned your liver spots uh, last time. No, my bed sores. Cleaning your bed sheets or something? My bed sores. Yeah, bed sores. Yeah, Yeah. I don't remember. Okay. All right, Bacon. All right, Bacon. So welcome to David Bacon's farewell appearance. Two last episode. This is. I'm going to do what Arthur Godfrey did to Julius LaRosa when he got a little too ambitious. I'm going to fire you on the air. Do you know about this? Yeah, I don't. I don't know. I've heard of Arthur Godfrey. I don't. I don't know the other name, and I couldn't tell you much about Arthur. Arthur Godfrey Godfrey was the most beloved right wing fascist on CBS in the fifties. He had a television show and a. Radio show, and he was a tool of like the... Like Carson or Tucker Carlson or something like that? He was like Tucker Carlson, but like a friendly version. He was like homespun. He was like Lonesome Roads. And okay. he loved the military-industrial complex and hated the hippies. And Julius LaRosa was like David Bacon. He was a singer on the Arthur Godfrey show. And I guess he got a little ambitious. He was like mm. thinking of spreading his wings and Arthur Godfrey felt threatened, felt he was betrayed, and he waited till they were on the air. And Julius wow. LaRosa was sitting there, and he didn't know what was coming. And Arthur Godfrey said, I have an announcement I want to make. Somebody who's been with us. that was a live show. Yeah. Somebody who's been with right. us for, for a while, who we've grown to love, is leaving. He's, he's decided to leave. He's... We've given him wings, and he's taking off, and we're going to miss him. And they cut to Julius LaRosa, and he was just crying. And it ended up backfiring for Arthur Godfrey. It was so sadistic. But I think I... That sounds Trumpian. Yeah, I think I can do this to you where it won't backfire. Well, sure. You know, I yeah, I'm just some guy in New Hampshire running around with a tape recorder. I mean, yeah. you know, like you've said many times, I can be easily replaced. If, you know, like by like Sam Irwin. Remember work. Sam Irwin and the Watergate <laughs> committee? But I'm just a small town country lawyer. Remember him? Uh, to, I, to be honest, I, I, I don't really. I was really and, small. And, and, and it turns out he went to Harvard like Law School. Yeah. That small town country law went to Harvard Law School. Oh, right, 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 right. We're so, going to have someone from Harvard Law School on the show today, actually. Okay. I mean, you know, who went there. Just to, Before we get aside. to that, do you understand that these references to Sam Irvin and Julius LaRosa and Arthur Godfrey, do you understand that nobody gets these references? And that my, oh. my time, <laughs> well, that well, I feel threatened because my time has passed? Well. And, and you're this again, young ingenue? With hip and happening references, and oh, I, I feel the world yeah. is just escaping me. I don't think you really feel that way, Dave. Um, you know, you're very relevant. You have an amazing show. A you condescending get all the time. prick. 
You're a condescending what? prick. No, this is, that's offensive. You just suck up to me, and then you build no, me no, no, up, no, and no, then stab me in the back. My, no, my comments are truthful and, and how I actually feel. Okay, and I think are, you, you hear that when I talk to candidates, too. Okay, are you grateful for all the exposure that I've given you? It's not. I'm not looking for exposure. I'm not looking for exposure. I'm just trying to get exposure to the candidates and their messages and that kind of stuff. And right. what, what the heck is happening up here in New Hampshire and all these people that happen to go to these things? Some of them with agendas and some of them not with agendas. If uh, if you if you respected me, if you respected me and you showed gratitude, you would cancel the meeting with. New Hampshire Public Radio, you wouldn't accept any money or opportunity from them. <laughs> yes. And, they and just, just want stay, some you, for a show of theirs. You would stay in the Feldman ghetto out of loyalty, and your, your family would suffer, and I will have been satisfied that I could still control you and that you're afraid of me. Well, you know, a rising isn't there something about the rising sea raises all boats? Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. Tell, well, yeah. And so that I guess the glaciers melting, that's a good thing. Right? <laughs> only in that analogy. Yeah. And only if you don't live on the, you know, on the edge of the, if you don't have like a beachfront property or something. Now, I'm telling or, you, New York City and, I'm telling you, this is, the, ca- I'm telling, I'm, I, telling, no, no, I'm telling you the God's honest truth. What I'm telling you yes. has been told to me. What the references or the no no the the stuff about oh about the loyalty and stuff yes, and all that thing yes I have oh I'm I can only imagine man yeah not not once yeah it's, right. this is this is how people think but including me and I don't want you to have that meeting tomorrow see the beautiful thing is because this is non monetary I'm doing this you're breaking like, up you're breaking you up oh. you're breaking up. Okay. Did you bring up money? Did you bring up money? Here, let me let me throw well, something at you. This is what I think you <laughs> Here, let me throw something at you. What happened? I don't know. It didn't oh. hurt. Oh, hang on, hang on. All right, let me try it again. Let me throw something at you. That's what you're worth to me. I couldn't tell what that was. It's a penny. Oh, sure. Okay. Um, All right. It sounded like it was rolling, you know, yeah. like it was spinning. Yeah. yeah. So from now on, when you do something good on this show, mm-hmm. that's all you are to me. Well, you know, there are some very valuable pennies. So depending on what penny it is, that could be actually a compliment. Okay. Now, I'm not... You're breaking up. You're breaking Uh-oh. up. Can, can, can uh, New Hampshire Public Radio pay for, like, some kind of hookup for They're us? Not... You're breaking up. You're breaking up. You're breaking up. Okay, I don't know what to do about that. Well, now you sound okay. Yeah. Okay, not, so you know, let's but, let's go to the clips. We have five clips. I've noticed they have numbers instead of letters. Have, we should have seven. Yes, that's right. And then I have two more on the iPad. Oh, okay. Okay, right. so clip number one. 
Tell us about clip number one. Clip number one is going to be part one of a two-part talk on impeachment with... um, What? You know... The, if the pennies are adding up, I mean, that's at least three or four already hey, by the I'm, end of the I, show. I'm showing that I'm happy with what you're doing. Oh, cool. Oh, hang um, on, hang on, hang on. Oh, hi. Oh, New Hampshire Public Radio? You're calling for permission? Want some tape? It's, no, no, it's, 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 it's New Hampshire Public Radio on the phone. Hang on. Yes, I know David Bacon. Oh, he's very easy to work with. Yes. Okay, his swastika collection is a little unsightly, but I think he just has that for money. And guns, yes. Sometimes he'll hold a gun to my head and force me to touch myself. Very easy to work with, really. And I'm not just saying that because he's holding my daughter hostage. No, he's never said anything anti-Semitic. Never. Never. Well, I mean, he said, I'm a self-hating Jew. I just think he said things that I actually believe are true. There's a police record with the wife, but uh, listen, <laughs> absolutely, I, I cannot recommend him enough. And yes, yes. And uh, between you and me, yeah. I would hire him, otherwise he's going to set fire to your station. Okay, nice talking to you. I I just gave a recommendation to... Uh, I You know, now I know why I had to wait, so you could find all these amazing sound effects. What are you talking about? I was just talking to the lady from New Hampshire Public Radio. I, I told her... You- it wasn't... It was almost as good as the Peanuts uh, t- school teacher uh, sound effect. But, I you know, said, you know what? You're so ungrateful. I actually said y- you should hire him because if you don't, he'll set fire. They, to that's not. It's just they want a tape that I made. You're, no, you're, you're, you must be confused by something. All right. All right. Clip, I don't know what it is. All right. Let's get to clip number one because we have a lot. A lot of show today. Yeah, we got a lot of stuff. So, so this is going to be uh, uh, John Gravy. He uh, is a, a, a constitutional law professor at a local uh, co- school, and we're going to talk about impeachment, and we're going to talk about it some more at the at, at, later on in the show. I just broke into two parts because I wasn't sure about the sound because there was some music and stuff. Uh, okay. Because we were at a little brewery, you know. Okay, John Gravy talking about Gravy? Gravy. Graby. G-R-E-A-B-E. And he's a constitutional scholar talking with David Bacon from New Hampshire Public Radio. Here we go. No, 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 no. Was that the wrong clip? I'm sorry. All right. Hang on. Did I lose you? I lost you. Are you there? Yes. What's up? Hang on. Come on, man. What are you wasting my time for? <laughs> I, I know not what you uh, what you speak of. And I got a show to run here, and you're you're hanging up on me and wasting my listeners' time. I, I mean, if anyone is wasting your listeners' time, it's clearly your sound effect uh, man, which would be you. That's like five cents. All right. This is clip number one, David Graby. John Graby. 
He'll give his name and stuff. Yeah, I mean, he could have just... It's not like anybody... Okay. Just, you know, if I make a mistake, tell me after the show and I'll issue a correction. Well, it's about someone's name. That seems kind of pertinent. Yeah, but it's also about my reputation as a truth teller that you're undermining. Oh, well, I mean, your reputation, you know. Uh, Yeah. Okay, let's go. (laughs) Clip number number one. Here we go. Yeah, this is David Bacon with the David Feldman Podcast. And um, the other day there was a Cory Booker event at... um, uh, UNH Law School it used to be called Franklin Pierce, and um, the gentleman who introduced him is here with me today. Um, why don't you just say your name and uh, who you work for and your title and that kind of stuff? Sure. I'm John Gravy, and I teach constitutional law at UNH School of Law, and I uh, direct the Warren B. Rudman Center for Justice, Leadership, and Public Service there. Right. And so my my plan or hope today was that maybe we could talk a bunch about um, the impeachment that's going on, because I thought someone like you would have a lot of maybe insights to that kind of thing. Um, So what exactly is impeachment? Well, it's a constitutional process. It's written into the Constitution, and it's it's one of the principal checks that Congress holds over not just the president, but other high-ranking executive branch officials. Um, Impeachment um, starts in the House of Representatives. Um, House has the sole power uh, to decide whether to issue articles of impeachment. Um, Impeachment is uh, is, uh, considered an appropriate remedy under the Constitution uh, if somebody engages in high crime, in, in treason, bribery, or high crimes and misdemeanors. Right. Um, and so the House will, uh, if, if by majority vote only in the House, uh, they can enact articles of impeachment. And if they do that, those articles get sent over to the Senate. And then the Senate tries those articles of impeachment. Um, conviction in the Senate requires two-thirds majority. Um, and the only penalty is removal from office and separately, if the Senate so chooses, to disable anybody who's been impeached and removed from office from further office holding, from holding office uh, under the Constitution, or I'm sorry, under under uh, holding federal office going forward. Right, right, right. And and uh, let's see, I think Nixon, he was not actually impeached. He resigned before the articles were even placed in, I believe. That's right. Clint, uh, Bill Clinton was impeached, he was. but he was not um, uh, convicted, or is that the right word? Convicted, convicted or removed. Right. Removed, yeah. And let's see, Andrew Johnson Johnson was the first. He was impeached. And I think it was he it was like one vote shy of getting him out. That's right. Yeah. And then I think there was another guy that they 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 wanted to put in the articles of impeachment, but then it didn't like go through or it didn't get the vote to even do that. I can't remember, but there was someone else in there. Yeah, the, the, no no public official, uh, no elected official has ever been impeached and removed from office in American okay. history. Uh, impeachment is also used what, for what, federal what, judges. What? What? Uh, what? And so what? A number of federal what did he say? He'll explain the, the judges, if that's what you're going to get okay. to. Okay. Right. Yeah, that, yeah right. don't worry. All right. The judges have been impeached and removed from office. Right. Um, but as you say, three presidents have now been impeached, right. but um, no president has ever been removed from office. There was a, 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 a cabinet secretary once who was impeached, also was not removed from office. There been some governors. There was a senator very early on who was impeached, but it's now come to be understood that impeachment isn't an appropriate remedy for members of Congress because there are other remedies for members of Congress. Right, right, right. That was in the 18, you know, in the 18th century, shortly after the country was formulated. And I think it was Benjamin Franklin who first said we, we should have impeachment at the 1787 
uh, was convention the, or something? Yeah, the Constitution the Convention was the summer of, of seventeen. Right. I think I think Ben Franklin was the one who came up with that. Well, um, I you know I don't know. I'm sure yeah. he was. Yes, I think there were a number of them who were involved and who thought that an impeachment power should be put into the Constitution right. as a check. Uh, I mean, you know, the whole idea uh, of this new Constitution was to set up a government that dispersed power right. horizontally among three branches of the new federal government and then vertically between the federal government and the states. Right. Um, and among the checks written into the Constitution, the checks and balances, was this impeachment power given to Congress, uh, and it's a power by which they can exercise oversight over some members of the executive branch and then also members of the federal judiciary. Right, 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 right. I'm getting distracted by the music yeah, in that's the background. Right. Yeah, yeah. Oh my gosh, it's throwing me off. Um, okay, so so far, right now, he has been impeached, although some people argue he hasn't because the, the actual papers haven't been sent, but I think the impeachment actually is just the first part of it. Well, yeah. um, the House has voted on two articles of impeachment, and two articles of impeachment passed the House. Right. They have not yet been transmitted to the Senate right. because uh, Nancy Pelosi, the Speaker of the House, says she wants to understand what the rules of the game are going to be in the Senate because in the Senate, um, members of the House act as prosecutors. They're the managers, and they will prosecute the articles of impeachment. And what she's saying is we need to know the lay of the land before we decide who's going to go in there and what they're going to do. Right, because McConnell has said, I'm just going to listen to the White House, and I'm not going to be an impartial juror. That's right. Right. So it kind of makes sense. He basically has said he's not going to call witnesses, or he's against calling witnesses, and he seems to have now um, a majority behind him for the proposition that witnesses won't at least be called right away. Right. Um, And yeah, as you said, he also said, I don't view myself as uh, anything other than a partisan here, and my goal is to to make this go away as fast as possible. And then there was the one guy, I think, just the other day, who said he would testify if he was called to. Right. John um, Bolton. John, yeah, that's right. Bolton. Um, which kind of puts a little monkey wrench into it. Like, hmm, like maybe some of the uh, uh, Republicans might feel like, oh, if he's willing to testify, maybe he should testify. But maybe whether or not that actually happens is a whole other. Well, all he said is he would testify at a Senate trial. And so there's a lot of talk now about the House actually calling him, subpoenaing him. I mean, they, he, you know, he had before resisted a House subpoena. Right. Um, he got a ruling from the federal court saying that the House is entitled to subpoena witnesses. And so he, you know, he, that, you know, that was something that he was, I won't say hiding behind, but he right. was saying deferring to. I want to see what the court says because the president is saying that there's to be non-cooperation. The president given an order that everybody who works for him or worked for him is not to cooperate with the House investigation. Right. Now that Bolton has said he would testify at the Senate, people are saying, well, then what, on what principle basis would he not testify if the House subpoenaed him again? Um, he has, you know, some of the firsthand knowledge about what happened right. that, you know, some Republicans point to and say, you know, all we've heard from our witnesses, you know, who it's, it's you know, these witnesses did testify to their firsthand knowledge, but they, they weren't at the top of the food chain. Right. Exactly. Exactly. And the, 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 the two articles of impeachment uh, that were that, that have passed, would they fall under that high crimes and misdemeanor? Well, they, yeah, they, they the first one charges abuse of office. Right. Okay. And the second one charges obstruction of Congress. Right. Right. The first one is is all about, you know, what he did with respect to or what he allegedly did with respect to soliciting interference by the Ukraine. The phone call. In our presidential election. Yeah. And, and, and holding up the, you know, holding up the appropriation that was to go to Ukraine. Right. The second one is simply about his order that nobody should cooperate. Right. You know, and 
it's totally stonewalling Congress. Right. Um, it's a rather unprecedented uh, claim of executive privilege and executive immunity that sits underneath what the president has claimed there. And so Congress, so that's the second article. Right. Actually, just coming out this weekend um, in, in the Concord Monitor is an op-ed where I point out one of the, one of the interesting things about um, this is that if you focus just on the second article of impeachment, the, the stonewalling of right. Congress, right. you know, one of the, the ideas behind our separation of powers is that, that, that politicians would have loyalty first and foremost to the institution or the branch of government to which they belong. Right. And so one would expect that if a president takes the position, I don't have to cooperate at all right. with an impeachment investigation, one would expect that there would be broad disagreement with that idea right. in Congress. But what's really interesting is that one member of the president's political party right. has broken ranks, even though they're in Congress. Right. Exactly. And so what it's showing, this is yet another example of something that the founders really didn't anticipate, at least not in, its, not the, in it, the form that it's taken and the force that it has, right. which is partisanship. Right. That partisanship really trumps separation of powers theories. And right. so it's interesting. It's, right. you know, um, it's, it's so far been a purely partisan um, um, uh, set of proceedings that have happened in Congress. I'm going to pause this for a second and see if we can hear if I'm going to go outside and see if I can hear this. Very interesting. So, yeah. So that's part one of uh, the talk with John, and we'll do part two later on in the show. Okay. You know, here at the David Feldman Show, I like to encourage good work and here. That's six cents. Okay. A penny saved is a penny earned. Ben Franklin. Yes, there we go. Who came up with impeachment. Yeah, that's what I read. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Letter number two. Do you know why he came up with that? You know, because of the alternative and back in the day would have been killing, beheading, you know, the man in charge. So it kind of seems like a pretty uh, nice way to let the guy off. You know, okay, you leave the office, but. Actually, I believe impeachment comes to us from Great Britain. I think Bacon. Actually, let me look. Can you look this up? I think the first person. I don't have the I don't have the Internet on me. I I think the idea of impeachment was invented by somebody named Bacon. Let me look this up. Bacon. Impeachment. There There were some good Bacons in the past. I think he was from. Parliament, uh, impeachment, bacon. Uh, Some say Shakespeare was really ba- a, b- a different bacon. Right. Yeah. Francis Bacon. Yeah. 1561. Once impeached, bacon is seen as one of the king's men stood little chance in front of the Lord. So he, I guess, was one of the first, uh, yeah, I guess he was one of the first people to be, what to, they be call, to be impeached, a guy named Francis Bacon. Hmm. Right. Yeah. He's so, an important guy. Kind of interesting. Oh, let me see. Why was he impeached? Disloyalty to the king, making deals behind the king's back. You're, you're with, not the king. You're not with, the king. With France, <laughs> wanting to work for both France and No, it's king not the work they did. Henry. Huh. Interesting. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. Interesting. He was impeached mm-hmm. for being a little too big for his britches. 
<laughs> Francis Bacon. Hmm. Hmm. Oh, but your name yeah. is David, not Francis. That's yes, right. yes. And I don't. What's know your What's your last name? It's uh, Bacon. Like the guy who got impeached for disloyalty. Yeah, I, I again, I can't look that up. I don't have the internet with me to see, you know, okay. what you're, which, which, which right. coming up with. But, All right, you know, uh, you know. Well, yeah, who knows? Maybe interesting. Maybe you're interesting. correct. Okay, maybe interesting. It's cool. Very, very. Bacon, bacon comes to us from a pig. Interesting. Yes, 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 yes. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, everyone loves bacon, so you know. Okay, Schweinhund. Uh, wow. You actually, a certain type of person loves bacon, but it's an exclusionary well, uh, name. It, it taunts the my halal listening listening audience. <laughs> People who keep halal, the right. people no, who keep kosher. No, hoof, no hooved animals. I know. Yeah. I don't eat them. Mm-hmm. Well, it would be cannibalism for you. Yeah. Because you're a pig. I understand. I, I understood. Yeah. Your last I, name, I Bacon, that. because you come from a long line of pigs who take... Yeah, you know, I've had this name since I was a little kid, so, I mean, you can say anything and it's you know i've probably heard it before sure so sure you know and, and that you shaped know. your personality and it made you mean as an adult i i am yeah you don't trust that's, anybody. that's what people call me mean that's exactly it yeah get them before they get you that's what being made fun of all your life taught you no not at all that's not true at all no 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 Okay. No, it teaches it teaches you that uh, you don't have to take you don't have to take that stuff seriously. That then people can say whatever they want and you don't worry about it. So that's why when you say things to me, it, it just rolls off me. I, it doesn't Good bother point. Me. Good I, point. Here you go. You know, seven cents. Here we got go. seven. Okay. So clip clipping letter two. Yes. Okay. So uh, January thirteenth, uh, which. To your listeners, was yesterday Cory Booker uh, withdrew from the race. Yes. Um, so we're going to play a bunch of Cory stuff um, that I had planned to play today anyway, actually, because um, some of this is from the second of January. So I just thought, and then wow, what a, a tribute! I mean, I, I'm going to miss him. He was a, he's a really nice guy, and and I, I I liked having him in the race, and I liked talking with him and seeing him and stuff like that. So and the vegan. So, I, and also a vegan, yeah, and 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 someone who was trying to bring people together and love and all this stuff into the thing. I mean, him and Marion Williamson could have had some stuff together, but they never, you know, they yeah. probably talked too much. Okay, we anyway. Clip letter so clip, two. Clipping clip two. It, clipping letter two. Clipping number clip number two is is Corey is known for telling these dad jokes. He told one at St. Anselm's College. So this is a tiny short clip of him telling a Christmas-related dad joke. And I figured it'd be good because we ha- we've had um, Tulsi Gabbard sing. We've had um, uh, Amy Klobuchar do the, uh, list all the states in a row. All right, all right, all right. Okay, this is number two? Too much, sorry. Yes, number two. Number two. It seems a little rude. <laughs> it's my show, baby. Seems, it's my show. I know, but you liked him. You liked him. It's my show. Don't you I, liked him, you said. Wh- whose show is this? 
Jersey boy, you know. I Whose show is this? Birthday. Whose show is it? Wish him a happy birthday. Okay, I mean, you know. Whose show is this? He's a nice guy. Bacon, who show? Obviously your show. It's obviously your show, Feldman. That's right. Ding, 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 ding. That is correct. All right. (laughs) Don't you ever forget that. Clipping letter two. (laughs) I happen to have uh, a skill that my staff hates which is I am in this race, I'm the angel wide computing this. Uh, I think I am the best bad joke teller uh, in, in race. And, and my staff challenged me on the on the on the on the bus to how many dad jokes, holiday themed dad jokes I can get in. He's not a dad though. Well uh, that's an interesting point. Yeah, I I'm offended. Think of that. I'm offended by that. Yeah, because he should be telling, like, bachelor jokes. Yeah. Yeah. Stick to the point. Yeah. Well, and, 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 and so I'm just going to give you one dad joke, holiday dad joke here. You put the bar pretty high. I, 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 these will guarantee to make people groan. Oh, here we go. <laughs> okay, so what, uh, we already talked about my music taste. So what does Chance um, have in common with uh, Santa's elves? Well, like the elves... They are both great rappers. I'm sorry. I just can't help myself. I just can't help myself. Okay. You know, it's a joke. So, okay. Uh, you're breaking up. I'm. Are you there? Yep. Now you say count to three. Two, three. Now you're still breaking up, unless you don't know how to count to three, which is conceivable. One, two, three. All right, that's better. Speaking of three, okay. what do you got? Yeah, Clipping letter so three. Clip, yes, this is going to be um, Dak. If you remember him from before, he is the guy who goes around asking Julia Assange questions to everyone. Right. So I... So this is going to be Dak asking the Julian Assange question to Corey. And then Corey talks a lot about, like, things against the journalists in general and stuff. So I thought it was pretty decent. So Okay. Here we go. That's interesting. Is Corey multilingual like Pete Buttigieg? I, you know, I don't know if he is. It wouldn't surprise me. Um, okay. but. You know he he you know he speaks a little bit of um 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 oh gosh like Hebrew, Cory Booker. You know, yeah. I mean, you heard a little bit of that that one a long time ago. I played a clip where he just said a little bit in Hebrew. I don't, get, like a, I don't get Jewish from him. Well, he because he I think he grew up with a lot of he had a lot of Jewish friends. Cory maybe maybe a book he has last name Book Booker. He books Booker. You know they book shows. My people. Hello. Well, that's that's yeah. That's great response. Yeah, and you're breaking up. You know, you would think. I don't. Know, I hope when you go to New Hampshire Public Radio, you'll take that gig a little more seriously than you do this. Well, it's your end. Yeah, it's my end. My end. Clip, I don't know. Clipping letter three. You are a multitasking guy. Yeah. You've got the camera, the filming. Is this some people would say that. What does your, your arm say, though? 
Uh, this one, uh, this one says, since we don't know the things in life that may come, it may be that one day I'll no longer be anyone. And that's uh, one of those things that you got to think about. <laughs> well, it actually pertains to what I'm about to ask you. Okay, please. Um, I'm uh, very concerned about the Trump administration's war on journalism, and uh, I'm really disturbed about what's happening to Julian Assange, who's being locked in solitary confinement and faces extradition to this country. Um, so I'm wondering, uh, as president, what are you going to do to defend this man who has done quite a bit to uh, inform us about what our government is doing in our name? Well, this is one legal case I don't know as much as clearly you do. Um, so I'm not going to comment on that because I just don't know all the facts in this case. I know if people have broken our laws, uh, that they should be held accountable. And if he has broken our laws, they should be due pro he should be afforded everything that people in my community, often or not, <laughs> is fair trials, due process, uh, 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 and the like. And we have a country, as Brian Stevenson says, that treats you better if you're rich and guilty than if you're poor and innocent. So um, this... Uh, 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 individuals, I, I, I'm going to make sure that we do justice by it. But I'm going to talk about the bigger question you had and my teasing of Cruz over there, which I hope you all tease as well. Um, <laughs> look, there, the, 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 the charge of fake news right now that, that we or our president make, other countries literally are imprisoning people now. We have an attack on journalism making journalists less safe. We are hearing things that authoritarian and totalitarian governments say all the time, coming out of the mouths of, our, of people in our highest offices. This is a crisis in our country, and equally challenging to me is the fact that, that, that the very strategies of, of the Russians is this misinformation idea, is to try to make America get to the point where they don't know who to trust anymore, where objective facts aren't facts anymore. And, 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 and by the way, we all have to take some responsibility. We're not to blame, but, but all of us take responsibility because God, we, we are creating a system of fractured media where what gets rewarded, and I saw the Star Ledger, my state's newspaper, now change where people are being... He's not answering the question. Well, no, he said he, he, said he didn't know much about it. Yeah, so, he, he, yeah he, so he's just rambling. Right. Compensated, if I have it correctly, and you can, you can fact check me instantly on this, by how many click-throughs they get on their stories. 20% of your salary. 20% oh. of your salary is based on click-throughs. So what behavior is that incentivizing in these new corporate media structures? And, and so we have a, 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 a real challenge with news information in our country that we need to take seriously now before it becomes even worse than it is. And, and, and I'm telling you right now, I worry because in the political context, what is that reward? If I were when Donald Trump is speaking at the State of the Union address on, I think it's February 5th, if I were to yell out at him while he was talking, you lie, I might have my best fundraising quarter as a presidential candidate. And I make that statement based upon a little bit of evidence, which is when Obama had that done to him, that guy went out and had one of his best fundraising quarters. And we reward that behavior. One of my friends uh, is a great guy uh, named Van Jones. He's an amazing guy, known since law school. And he was on a show with Newt Gingrich called Crossfire. And the two of them got to know each other as friends. Brene Brown says it's hard to hate up close, so pull people in. Now, these guys were paid to sit together, but they're great. They're human beings, I should say. And they started talking and realizing they had so much in common. And so they decided that the last segment of their show was going to be called Ceasefire. And they were going to talk about the things they agree on. Well, guess what the producers did? 
They stopped it because they were saying ratings go down. You want to hand off to the next show with high ratings. All of us have to take responsibility for what is happening to ideals of truth and information because we are not as divided as our media wants us to be. It's not like we're being. I, I'll tell you this because I know 90% of Americans believe on common sense gun safety, but we can't pass laws. Let me give you another one. Obamacare, you poll Republicans, significant amounts against it. You take Obama's name off of it and poll the individual policy pieces of Obamacare, people love it. We have become such a fractured society, tribalistic, we're, we're, we're benefiting some people, often many politicians who want us to be at war with ourselves. I don't buy into that. And so, sir, I, I'm gonna do everything I can, of course, for due process. The media plays a very important role. But this is in a larger context within our society where we have to start addressing the erosion of our institutions, the erosion of trusts, and the lurching we're doing towards sensationalism, towards half-truths, towards misinformation that is now polluting our, our, our public spheres and our, and our most sacred spaces, which are that, that civic discourse that is essential uh, for a thriving democracy. Well, very quickly, that's just claptrap. It's recognizing a problem, as all Democrats do, with no solution. That's what the Democrats do. The Republicans refuse to acknowledge that there's a problem, so they don't need to offer solution. Democrats are willing to recognize a problem, but they don't offer the real solution, which is government-sponsored news, the way Canada has the CBC, Great Britain has the BBC. You have government-sponsored news both sides done methodically the way the congressional budget office can score a bill and everybody trusts it the general accounting office yeah. the inspector general horowitz issues a report on the fbi and the fisa fisa warrant for carter page and it's the gospel now it's challenged and there are open hearings but the great thing about a democracy is you can gather news in Washington through committees and there's transparency and you can challenge what somebody is presenting as the truth, like the steel, the steel. Yeah, the steel right. dossier. Thanks to Horowitz over uh, the inspector general for the Justice Department. He claims it was a bunch of lies and. Because it's the federal government, he has enough manpower to find out the truth about the Steele dossier. And people can challenge the Horowitz report. What I'm saying is MSNBC is in the business of sensationalism. They have to make money. Sure, right. We need government. It didn't used to be that way with the news, though. Yeah, we, we well, yeah, it was, a, you know, it was a different. It was like time. a lost leader in the, back in the day, you know. Yes. And then I think with, with that, with that, when CNN came out, then it just became, oh, you have to perpetuate a constant 24-hour news cycle. Then it sort of changed things, I think. And then everyone, it just became, oh, the news unit can actually make a profit, not, not just break even. And then yeah. that changed everything, I think. So the government is where they argue out the truth. It's where the truth is litigated. Why not have a government-sponsored news organization? What's your next clip? Okay, so the next clip... Again, Al Jazeera is fantastic. That's sponsored by Qatar. 
Yep. Sometimes that's okay. Um, so the next is gonna we're gonna be we're gonna have some more Corey. This is the same date, Jan two. This is at St. Anselm's College, and this is a gaggle after his uh, speech. So you're gonna hear questions from a whole bunch of uh, different reporters, um, you know, asking Corey questions. But again, you know, it's just a sort of a sort of a sign off to Corey since yes, he's out of the uh, out of the thing. In right, memory, exactly. there we go. Hi everyone. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. You see what my team did? I gave bias towards New Jersey. Your primary is until June. Uh, what do you think? <laughs> yeah, come on. Because you've known him the longest. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right, can I bring you down right away, though? Uh, come on. Okay, go ahead. But you talking to him. You saw, you saw uh, Bernie huh? Sanders. You talked to him. You saw Biden. How do you compete with those kind of numbers, and what are you going to see yours? Oh, gosh. We can compete because right now, I just came out of Iowa. We are now up to number three in net favorability in terms of the most popular candidates. We're up to number three. Our surge is coming. We're the top campaign in the state for percentage of contributions from Iowa women. Online, we're seeing record numbers. We are now the number two or one, two or three, I can't remember exactly where, in endorsements from local leaders, local elected leaders. Everything that's happening in our campaign, peaking at the right moment, energy at the right moment, is what John Kerry did to go from 4% uh, in a month before the caucus is polling sixth to number one. Money does not buy elections in New Hampshire or in Iowa. These are smaller states where people want to get to know you, feel your spirit. Our message healing in this country, showing our strength, not by being like Donald Trump, but by showing the best of who we are as a country, energizing and exciting the fullness of that Obama coalition. And the best person, not just to be Donald Trump, but to, in states like Georgia and North Carolina, South Carolina, Arizona, where we need to get the full coalition out to beat Mitch McConnell, send him back to the back benches. People are now recognizing that my voice is urgently needed, and we are going to set ourselves up to win based upon people seeing that I'm the best electable person, pulling the whole party together, but also that I have the right spirit uh, for a country that needs to heal and bring folks together. And so our fundraising numbers, we've had the best fundraising quarter of our whole campaign. We'll announce our numbers very soon. Senator, you said several times today that um, warning Democrats against focusing too much on Donald Trump and their, and their dislike for Donald Trump. Do you think voters in New Hampshire and Iowa are focusing too much on who can beat Donald Trump when they take a look at a candidate such as yourself? Well, just as an American... The first and foremost thing is we got to beat them. And there's an urgency in that, and I think all of us feel. I think there's a fear. Four more years of Donald Trump, a climate denier, for example, in the White House. We have 10, 12 years to deal with this crisis where scientists are saying we're going to see um, unavoidable consequences or a devastating impact on our planet. So I understand that sense of urgency, but the question is how we win. Now, I took one on Political Machine in Newark. There's an Oscar nominated documentary, as I said, about called Street Fight. I know how to bring fights, but you don't bring fights by being like that person that you're trying to, uh, uh, like that, like this person you're trying to beat. We, we need someone who can inspire this nation to come together, inspire people. Because right now, think about this. If African-American voters had turned out the same level in 2016 as they did in 2012, we would have a President Hillary Clinton right now. We need somebody who's going to be able to draw out the fullness of the Obama coalition to beat Donald Trump. And, and that's what I know I can do. But more than that, beating Donald Trump is a floor, it's not a casino. I'm in this race not just to beat Donald Trump, but we have big problems to solve. We need the person who can best create the kind of national movement and coalitions to deal with health care, climate change, gun violence, an economy that is twisted against uh, 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 most Americans and benefiting uh, uh, the wealthy. 
Julian Castro read a left place today. What are your thoughts on it? I talked to Julian Castro. Julian is a friend, but he's an extraordinary leader and ran a campaign that challenged the conscience of this country, brought issues to bear that were urgently needed. And so I'm frustrated that we've seen another person drop out before the people actually even vote because he doesn't have the money that some of the billionaires in the race do. And, and yet he's one of the few diverse voices we have at my this, we cannot win this campaign without the full Obama coalition. Black and brown voters are essential. And to see people dropping out before the people have even spoken, that's a problem. And so I'm fighting not just not, I'm going to stay in this race, but I'm fighting to show people uh, that we can elect leaders, not based upon their bank account, but based upon their connections with folks. And I hope people will support me and go to CoreyBooker.com. Senator, just to follow up on that, why do you think it is that candidates of color have been dropping out early? Andrew Yang mentioned on the debate stage, perhaps um, voters Voters of color cannot contribute at the same levels. Look, I think there, there's a lot of analysis that should be done about a DNC system being created that can be basically hacked by billionaires to get on the stage more easily than people like Kamala Harris, one of the one of the the first second black woman ever in the Senate who was elected by a state of over 40 million people, twice statewide, who has an extraordinary record, who petered out because she didn't have the resources. And that sent a signal, I had black women in my life say to me, they were supporting me, but really angry and frustrated uh, that she didn't even get a chance to make it to Iowa where people could actually vote one way or the other or caucus one way or the other. This is a problem for our party that incredibly talented people like Julian Castro are dropping out because of money, because we're basing a... a we should all talk about the fact that we are in a nation where money is corrupting our politics. So why should the Democratic Party design a system that can be so easily hacked by billionaires? And so I'm in this race. And, and I'm fighting to be the one that keeps wants to say over and over again, we need the full Rainbow Coalition, the full Obama Coalition, in order to beat Donald Trump and send Mitch McConnell back to the back benches. We need people through their lived experiences that can connect to all Americans. And so I'm fighting to make sure uh, that uh, um, that we not I not only stay in the race, but that to show, like Obama did, that you can win in Iowa, that you can do well here in New Hampshire, and that you can actually energize this country uh, to have a record elections, a record turn. I believe I'm the best person to do that. I hope folks will help me. And you've, you've been so outspoken on climate change. I just wanted to ask the other day, uh, former Vice President Joe Biden said that coal miners should learn programming and that that's a solution to them losing jobs. I'm wondering if you believe in government retraining programs. You've been in the Senate for a while. And what alternatives there are for folks who are losing their jobs because of the green economy? I believe in a just transition. And if our party can't talk directly to people in coal mining, fracking, and the oil industries, if we don't have a message for them, that inspires them, creates hope for them and their children. I talked to somebody in one of my town halls who had three generations of people in the oil business and said, what are you going to say to my brothers and sisters? These are their jobs. We have got to find exciting options for everybody as we transition off fossil fuels. We don't do that. Our party is, I think, betraying the working class people that should be at the core of our party. So yeah, my, pol my policies support a just transition. That we should not be turning our back on people who literally have been providing the energy that we've needed to run our our country for generations. And so my, my vision for that is, is fundamentally about finding ways to make sure that we have apprenticeship programs, training programs that don't put your salaries down to minimum wage, but keep you on a just level and help you transition into uh, a clean energy economy.
Yes, so even now, so even now, a lot of the questions now are about money. So, how hard is it to get your message out there when so many of the questions are, how much longer can you keep in the race? I mean, that's the unfortunate thing that the metrics that the often we see people paying attention to, like national polling. I mean, the amount of time we spend talking about national polling when it's never been predictive, never been November, December of this year. The people who've been leading in the polls at that point have never gone on to the White House one party. Bill Clinton, single digits. Jimmy Carter, single digits. Barack Obama, 15, 20 points behind Hillary Clinton. Our presidents are always seeing underdogs come from behind, peak late, and win. That's exactly what our campaigns do. The surge we're seeing in online contributions, the surge we're seeing uh, in a rises in net favorability, uh, popularity, it's all happening right now, which is the time that past presidents have, have seen the takeoff of their numbers. So I'm frustrated that a lot of the issues that I think are important to our core base voters aren't even getting the fair share of discussion. Uh, and we're focusing on metrics that really have never been really that determinative. And so I'm going to stay in this race. I'm going to keep bringing up the issues of marginalized communities. I'm going to keep bringing up issues of the people who are often overlooked or left behind in our politics and keep bringing them to the center of the consciousness of our country. Because whether you're a black transgender and fearful because of the outrageous numbers of murders last year, whether you're a mother raising a child and one of presidential candidates talk about the outrageously high levels of child poverty, whether you are a person that fears for your child's life just by driving cars because of the high levels of police involved shootings of unarmed people in our country. These are issues that we should be talking about because this is a nation at the end of the day we're all interwoven in one destiny and injustice anywhere has been said by greater people than me is a threat to justice everywhere. We need leaders through their lived experience that can talk to the fullness of the concerns of all the people in the, in the Democratic Party coalition and our nation. Senator, you, question, just sell, you yourself just said that now is the important time to get out there, grow, and peak. Pretty soon, it looks like there may be a Senate impeachment trial that will be keeping senators off the trail. Are you concerned that the media focus on impeachment will make it difficult for a candidate like yourself to break through? And how specifically are you going to try to make up for that? You have a lot of endorsements in New Hampshire. So does that look like surrogates? Is that like weekend travel? Look, let's just put aside this idea. Trial. I'm a, I'm a senator. I do my job. I'm, I, it is a sacred obligation. I'll be there. The question is about what the impact of my campaign is. It's clear. The, the biggest persuasion we have, and we saw it in this room when people are coming up to us, supporting candidate X, now I'm clearly supporting you, is for me to be out there on the campaign trail. It's how I beat a machine in Newark. It's how we're going to win this election in places like Iowa and Hampshire. And so it's critically important. And if I have to be in Washington, D.C., that's when we become more reliant on surrogates. And yes, we are one of the top two or three campaigns in the whole field in endorsements in New Hampshire and Iowa. It means that we have to find ways to raise money so we have digital and TV ads. That's why online contributions right now for our campaign are really critical for us to compete with people that don't have to be in the Senate or that have billions of dollars to spend on this campaign. The only way I'm going to win this, and I knew this from the beginning, is going to be by relying on Americans to support my campaign. We've been seeing a surge in that. I'm excited about it, but now, obviously, if I'm down in Washington for a week or two uh, during this critical period going into the early caucuses, and primaries, uh, we're just going to have to get, do it like I did back in the days when I put a call out for $1.7 million, and people helped me raise uh, significantly more than that. If you want me in this race, if you want my voice in this race, uh, please, if this is the most important election of our lifetime, we've got to start acting like it's what the candidates you believe in, and I'm hoping that the American people will understand that I have to do my job, but we'll still find ways to support. Great. Thank you, everybody. Thanks for being so positive. Thank you. For, thank you, sir. Yeah. Thank you for I appreciate it. Mm. <clears throat> Thank you for being so positive. Okay, let's let's move on. Right. 
Good job. Yeah. Uh, okay. So we have a, a tiny little short clip. This is going to be our last Corey one. And this, right after that gaggle, there was a tiny little gaggle with three probably middle school students. One of them asks a question to him. So it's just the last question we're going to have with Corey Booker. Okay. Here we go. Yeah. Clip number five. Five. I love that we're doing this, guys. Yes, I'm sorry. I'll go right ahead. Give me a quote on what your main passion is with this campaign. My main passion is showing people that that we're not going to be hate with more hate. That that the way we inspire more people to get out, more people to participate, is by not abandoning our values in order to beat Donald Trump, but doubling down on our values. That what America's yearning for right now, I think, is healing and bringing people together. And that is actually a great strategy to beat bullies, demagogues, uh, uh, fear mongers. We beat Bull Connor not by bringing bigger dogs and bigger fire hoses, but by activists, artists of activism that, that brought out the moral imagination of others and got more people involved. I want this to be the highest turnout election in American history. If we do that, I, we will we will win back the Senate Democrats. We will beat Donald Trump. But more importantly, because of a positive message, we will be able to govern from a place that brings more Americans together, regardless of party, to accomplish big things. Awesome. Can I take a quick picture? Yeah, sure. I mean, as a guy running for office, I'm opposed to pictures. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Very good on talking about getting along with others. Because yeah. I tell people, why do you like him? I said, because he plays nice with others. He's got the most positive, positive message, without a doubt. Yeah. Okay, let's do okay. clip. Great job. Let's do clip uh, number six. What do you got? Clip number six is the rest of the John Graby uh, impeachment interview. Okay. All right. So, more clip. impeachment talk. Okay, yeah. clip number six. One of the things I have, uh, like, I, there was a great show uh, with um, um, Ralph Nader uh, about, I think he came up with, and he was with, I can't remember who it was with, but there was like 12 or 13 different things that they thought could have been used to impeach uh, the president. And, and they stuck with only two to maybe focus it on a little bit too, so people wouldn't be confused by it, but to try to maybe get the, the, the public behind it, I guess. Right. Um, because... It, the congressman and the senator should all know about what the heck. Like, they wouldn't be worried about if there were more or anything like that. Right, yeah. I mean, I, again, and that's sort of beyond my yeah, expertise, yeah, yeah. but right. I mean, I gather that it was a political decision made to keep it simple that most people could understand right. that, you know, especially after what, you know, all the Russia allegations and the Mueller report, the idea that he then went and solicited foreign interference in right. the upcoming election, right. you know, that that's not something that's a sustainable model for American democracy. Right, right, right. I mean, you know, what happens... Next, now, you, you know, if, if Joe Biden becomes the nominee, does he go and make a deal with China, right. saying, you know, I'll, you know, we'll ha we'll reach a nice, favorable settlement of the tariff issue right, if, you, right, right. if you turn your intelligence agencies loose on uh, Trump and Trump Enterprises? Right. I mean, is that how we want our elections to be run? Right, right, because right. I think one thing we can expect is that neither side is going to unilaterally disarm over right. time. Right. If this just right. becomes par for the course, um, you know, interestingly, you know that. The whole um, America first and make America great uh -huh. again. You know what? But what's happening here is really, if you think down the road, it's 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 actually a threat to American democracy, right. to the integrity right. of it. Um, right. Because if you're involving foreign powers in this way, both sides are going to do it. Um, 
you know, where right. does it end? Right. Well, to, add, to, to take anything that he says seriously is like almost impossible because he will, you know, even though that was like his, uh, his, uh, I mean, it's like a rallying cry, though, just right. to get the people. It's not anything necessarily that he even believes in, obviously, because I assume those hats are made in China. Right. <laughs> I mean, right. well, you know, I, I forget who it was said consistency is a hot goblin of, of little minds. Uh-huh. Yeah, maybe he's, he's taken that to an extreme, but right, right, right. So the next part of this process, once or if even uh, the House Nancy sends that over to, to the Senate, right. they they first have to like determine the rules of the road. Yes, there are rules already that uh, they've written before from other impeachments, oh, okay. right? Um, but. But they are always, you know, going to tailor those rules to, the, you know, the circumstances that are presented to them. Right. Um, the, you know, in the past, witnesses have been called. Um, McConnell is pointing to the fact that there were no, there was no decision initially made about calling witnesses during the Clinton impeachment trial. Eventually, witnesses were called, um, and he's saying we shouldn't commit to it right away. Democrats are saying there's obviously people, you know, in that situation there was a there was an independent investigation right. of Clinton. You know, we, everybody was heard from right. with information. Right. It's different now. The president has not made his close aides available. Right. There are lots of people we haven't heard from. Yet, exactly. You know, and that's. Uh, you know, um, it's important that those people be heard from. Right. I, there was just something in one of the newspapers the other day about they got some redacted uh, uh, transcripts or something where all the things that were crossed out were like regarding to Trump saying Trump, right. ca- Trump, you know. And well, see, that's the thing. More evidence is coming out. So right. People are saying the House could reopen it or they could. Right. They could also. There's nothing to stop them from uh, issuing additional articles. Right. Impeachment exactly. As that evidence emerges. And, the, you know, and as you pointed out before, you know, the articles of impeachment don't get into emoluments and, you know, his 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 use of his own properties. Right. They don't get into anything about his, um, you know, his financial dealings. You know, right. And, right. And yet there are more other more legal more. proceedings and investigations taking place, you know, at the federal level and even at the state level right. that could, over the next year, yield evidence. I mean, you know, the Supreme Court actually sure. has is going to hear arguments on whether or not uh, third parties who have who have documents his, his financials right exactly right. when they need to February I think but it's actually March third is that that case I think that comes up then I'm not positive up, yeah something I don't like know, that I don't yeah. know the exact date right right, right. Be, they rule it'll be argued in the next month or so right 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 a month and a half um, yeah but yeah they, you know whether or not you know his bank the banks oh. have to hand over these records pursuant to a subpoena and right he's, he's inter, you know intervened there to seek to to, to quash those subpoenas. And right. So even the Supreme Court's going to be involved. I mean, there's there's a lot. There's just so right. many fronts right. uh, on which this these battles are being waged right now. I always this is maybe slightly obtuse or whatever. It's, this is not exactly on point, but it's something I've always been uh, not fascinated, but just I'm curious about. It's always strange to me that like okay, so the White House has their own lawyers, and they will advise him, and they will often advise him. That like, oh, this is okay to do. And it will be so, like, I think there was the guy with the, like, the torture stuff that we did, you know, under, under previous president. Like, how does that work? I don't know. Well, I mean, there are, yes, there is a white, there are, there are different lawyers involved. First of all, the president has his own lawyers. And, right. their, and their job is to represent the 
President Donald Trump. Okay. okay. There's also the White House Counsel. Right. It's always historically been understood that that the White House Counsel doesn't represent the human being who is president. Right. But yeah. that, that the represents office. the office. Right. And then you know you may mention the, the torture memo. Right. They're known. That was actually the Office of Legal Counsel, which is part of the Justice Department. Oh. And so okay. the Justice Department is a federal agency. It's right. Under the authority of the president. Right. But the understanding has always been that it's it's independent right. of the president. Many yeah. people have questioned whether the current attorney general is honoring the tradition of the Justice Department or is acting more, you know, in, in terms of total loyalty to this particular president. Right. But that they formulate policy as well. And, you know, so these poli- you know, some of these policies and these claims of, of executive privilege and immunity and stuff, right. they're coming they're coming from different sources in different contexts. Okay, right, right, right. Yeah. It sometimes though seems like they're just made up, like that there is no but you know, well, I mean, we're seeing yeah. it now with respect. I mean, the, you know, the news has shifted in the last week with the you know the the killing of the Iranian yes. general, yes. and then of course the response. And there's another major unsettled separation of powers question: is you know the extent of the president's power with war, right. exactly, uh, without authorization of Congress, right. or and or in defiance of congressional wishes. Right. You and know, that's been that ongoing over so many presidents. It seems like I don't think I don't know the last time Congress actually, like even the, it was the Korean conflict, you it know. Was, it's right, they haven't declared war since Pearl Harbor. Right. It was the last declaration of war. I mean, I think everyone would agree we've been engaged in hostilities since then. Right. There's also a war, there's a statute known as the War Powers Act of 1973 that was enacted, you know, based on the experience in Vietnam. Right. Many people have, you know, many people take the position that it's, that its provisions are unconstitutional, they intrude too much on presidential prerogative. Right. Um, courts have stayed out of that. You right. know, there have been laws suits that have been brought, you know, saying president can't, you know, I remember before the invasion of Iraq, when I was, when I was a new law clerk at the federal court, there was actually a case filed with us. This was in 91 before, um, is it 90, 91, 91, the Operation Desert Storm, yep. the invasion of Iraq. Somebody brought a lawsuit to say president, first President Bush doesn't have the power to do this because Congress hasn't declared right. war. Right. The courts apply the political question doctrine yep. in those cases to say that's not something that we adjudicate, right? It's something that we, that, that we leave that to the political branches to work out among these Right, right, right. So there's, you know, lots of these separation of powers questions. Um, um, I, there's not a lot of judicial precedent, right, because the courts don't often get involved in disputes between the executive branch and Congress. Right. And when the courts don't get involved, it's, it's worked out in our political process. Right, right. Wow. So that's another one. So we've got impeachment. We've got the Iran situation. Um, I mean, these present profound, a number of profound separation of powers questions right now. Right. Um, it'll be interesting to see whether and to what extent the Supreme Court involves itself. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Because yeah. And the arguments, you know, the court has agreed to hear, you know, it's reviewing lower court decisions saying that these third parties have to hand over the president's subpoenas. Right. But one of the arguments in those cases from government officials to the court says, you shouldn't even be involved in this. And so the Supreme Court could say, we're not out of this. Right, right, right. You know, and I, I imagine there will be some votes for that proposition, uh, especially from more conservative members of the court. Right, right, right. And now that it's a majority conservative that has right. a possible that's a possible outcome. Yeah, but there's there's there are differences among the conservative. Of course, that, oh, of yeah, course, of course. Yeah. Especially uh, uh, the. the, the 
the chief. The, yeah, chief justice. Jack yes, Roberts. because he's no. he's having to take a different role because of how important he he wants the court to remain uh, uh, viable and, yeah. and and stuff. Because really, there is no. We have to follow them because we kind of think that's the rule. Like, I think yeah, I think he's the one of that conservative block who's probably most concerned with the court and the court's reputation and the court's role and the court's prestige. Right. You know, and he has been one to break from the conservatives. He broke with them on the the Affordable Care Act case a few years ago. Right. Just this last year, he broke with them on the census case. Right. Um, so, again, all eyes are on him. He's also, by the way, he's, he will preside at the trial of the Articles of Impeachment in the right. Senate because the Constitution says when the president is the one who's impeached, the right. Chief Justice of the Supreme Court right, um, presides over the trial. Usually, right. it's the president of the Senate who's okay. the vice president, but right. because there's an inherent conflict of interest right. there, because right. if the president removed, vice president becomes president. Right. So the Constitution and what, wrote in that provision. What is that role presiding over it? D- different from Mitch McConnell's role as being the head of the Senate. Well, he, he presumably would be, I mean, again, it's not it's not a judicial trial. Right. Um, it's different in many ways, but there are also similarities to a judicial trial. And at a trial, you need a judge to issue rulings on, you know, on procedural matters. So that's what he will be doing. That's what. Yes. To the extent that that there are disputes that call for adjudication, ah. he will be the one making wow. those decisions. Although, you know, sometimes those rulings could simply be we put it to a vote of the senators. Oh. The majority, you know, so right. He's not necessarily going to decide the merits, and it's okay. It's, it, you know, again, it's all he can delegate it back on, to the senate, yes, or whatever. Gonna, that's right. He's going to he's going to apply though. He'll be um, he'll be presiding. And he will be enforcing the rules of the trial. Right, right, right. Whatever, right. whatever that means. Right. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Okay. I think I'm going to stop because of the sound and stuff. Just, we, I think we have a good uh, chunk for this. Okay. Very good. Very so, good. Yeah. Let's go to yeah. clip, if, clip letter seven. What do you got? Yeah. If if you like to, if you like John and stuff, then I can have him back and we can talk about some of the constitutional <clears throat> cases sure. with, the, with the thing. Okay. Okay. So I know you want to hurt. Okay, so the last one, okay, now we've, we've eaten our dinner, and now we're going to have a little dessert. Good. So this is going to be from that uh, college convention 2020, and this was the last day, and this was like an add-on. This is going to be Vermin Supreme. Now, he runs for president every four years in New Hampshire. I don't think he's on the ballot this time because he wants to g- g- go on as an independent okay. or as a, um, okay, whatever. So you're going to just hear him talk. He's a performance artist. He's done this for a long time. He's going to talk all about stuff. It's going to be fascinating. He's going to tell us a little bit like George. What? Hang on. We're going to call him back. Is what's. Did I lose you again? Yes, you did. So this is going to be dessert. We just ate our dinner, right? Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I have to go plug in my phone. I, I'm going to run out of power. Okay, let's play clip number seven. Ready? Yeah, just go start it. I got to plug in my phone. Okay. Uh, yes, yeah, a very interesting and exciting thing to happening on the Lord Buckethead front. Um, Todd Dunham, uh, the creator of Lord Buckethead uh, in Southern North Carolina, 
Um, and of course, I'm not sure if you heard, but uh, he, it, he made the movie uh, that Lord Muckethead was a character in, and then uh, the people took over the character and started running for office in, uh, in Great Britain. And uh, recently, um, the creator of Lord Buckethead wanted to um, exercise more editorial control over his character, and so he told the actor who was uh, it, who was portraying Lord Buckethead uh, that he would could no longer portray Lord Buckethead because he was going to hire some other guy to be Lord Buckethead. And the guy who was playing Lord Buckethead got really peeved. And he created his own character, Lord Binface. I don't know if you've seen that. And now Lord Binface is taunting Lord Buckethead, and they have this big crazy crutch match thing going on. Um, so there is that. <laughs> Inside pool, perhaps. But yeah. Any other questions? Yes. Yeah. Um, I remember you from, I believe it was the 2008 election. Um, you stayed with me and some other people at the uh, Monastery Artist Collective. Yes. Yeah. And um, you seem to have a larger entourage uh, at that time. Has something happened with your candidacy to get uh, less people following you around now? Uh, uh, not at all. Not at all. Uh, that, that, was, uh, that time was certainly right up uh, close to the Hampshire uh, primary. Right. Uh, in the past, uh, I've usually only come up uh, you know, a week or two before the event itself. And that's when uh, all of my people start. Right, right, right. That's when it's the full circus, full tilt, uh, crazy stuff happens. And yes, I will have a, a, a much larger entourage. Right. And if I could have a follow-up. Yes, I mean, this um, thing I, I just drove up this morning. so. Right, exactly. No, and I also, I remember seeing you out in front of um, the Capitol building for the... Uh, uh, Elizabeth Warren event, yes. and you were first in line to get your photo taken with her, but I believe the Capitol Police came out and maybe talked to you, and then when I came out, you were no longer there, so I, I'm not sure if you well, got your photo or not. Again, I mean, uh, Elizabeth Warren didn't want a picture taken with me, but we, also, we still had free reign of the State House. Right. Um, essentially, we've been doing this silly thing for so long that we've uh, cultivated relationships, and we're very uh, efficient about uh, demanding our rights. And uh, so, for example, um, uh, we have. Oh, you, you know, I, I want to get into this. Actually, come to think of it, uh, I, I was here four years ago, and I, I called out uh, Donald Trump's security goons uh, who threw my friend uh, Rod Weber over a table at a No Labels event. This is Rod Weber. Give it up to him. You may recognize Mr. Weber uh, from the recent uh, Art Basel Gallery in Miami Beach. They had the $120,000 banana. Remember that? Yeah. And the guy ate the banana. And then some other crazy dude went and wrote Epstein uh, didn't kill himself in lipstick. Do you remember that? Yeah. Well, this is Rod. He did that. <laughs> and um, so anyway, uh, it's because... Uh, Rod got thrown over this table uh, four years ago. He uh, ended up filing a lawsuit against Donald Trump's security team. And uh, it's been a, a, over a year that he's been filing these motions and he's been up against, personally, he's, he's representing himself, he's doing all the research himself. Um, he's been up against, uh, what, nine or 10 Trump lawyers you've been up against? Uh, altogether, it's over a dozen. Over a dozen lawyers that he's been uh, filing motions against and they've been filing motions against him trying to get this uh, suit thrown out. Um, and just the other day, um, he found out, that, well, the, the most interesting, exciting thing, I mean, the, the suit is being allowed to proceed, so there is that. But during his research, 
Rod discovered that there is a law on the book here in New Hampshire uh, that gives candidates who have security, not even licensed security, the right to ultimately kill you. There is a, in this law, in the state of New Hampshire, it gives random people acting in the capacity of security to use lethal force against uh, any civilian or other person that will violate decorum. So if, if I had my security team here and you were acting in an indecorous way, my security person could have you killed. In the state of, in the state of New Hampshire here. And so that was an amazing revelation. Uh, and when we realized this, um, uh, Rod reached out to, uh, what, what's the name of the representative? Desiree? Uh, no, the, the rep who's filing the uh, bill against it. Oh, uh, Chris Balch. Chris Balch? Yes. Chris Balch. I want to uh, give a shout out to Chris Balch, uh, a state representative who is uh, filing uh, uh, an amendment to this law that will uh, remove the language for lethalness. So at least no longer will your life be in danger by violating decorum. <laughs> Yes. Uh, I heard a story once uh, a few years ago. Lies. <laughs> <laughs> that um, during a debate, you threw glitter on one of your fellow candidates. Um, that is absolutely incorrect. Uh, it's a lie, but no, it actually happened um, in 2012. Uh, it was December 2012, actually, the moment in time where I became a viral. And uh, it became a meme as, as a result of, of those two things. And uh, it was less known candidate debate uh, over at St. Anselm College. And the gentleman that I ended up glitter bombing uh, was Randall Terry. And uh, Randall Terry was the founder Operation of Operation Rescue, Rescue a very yeah. uh, militant uh, anti-abortion group that uh, shut down the city of Chicago like story. Uh, back in the 80s. Uh, he's a, a terrible, rabid uh, homophobe. Uh, he disowned his own gay son. Um, and he's just a, a really nasty piece of work. I mean, nice enough guy, but, you know, it's really a quiet. Uh, and um, so, yes, uh, it is very strange because he ran as a Democrat that, that year uh, just to screw with Obama and uh, get, try and get his graphic uh, abortion uh, mangled fetus ads on the Super Bowl. That was one of his motivations. And uh, so, and alphabetically, I was sitting right next to him. And um, I knew, knew that I wanted to do something for him and to him. Um, it, it was very strange because I actually met him uh, uh, in 04 at the uh, Boston uh, Democratic National Convention. I was doing this bit that I do at uh, checkpoints where I'll, I'll make these announcements. Uh, welcome to checkpoint. Welcome to checkpoint. Please have your uh, dental records ready for immediate inspection. Please have your security credentials ready for uh, casual perusal. Please remove your shoes for national safety. Uh, please uh, loosen your belt and drop your drawers and spread your cheeks and get ready for your full body cavity rectal search. It will uh, it, it will keep you safe from terrorists and it is part of Obamacare. And so so I, I was doing that and uh, and then uh, this gentleman came up and was uh, checking me out because he was rather interested uh, in what I was doing. I was wearing a devil mask at the time. And uh, my wife was with me, and we recognized that it was Randall Terry. And so my wife started hissing, literally hissing at this guy, because he's such a piece of work. And so she's like, Sss. and I'm like, and I start looking at him, it's like, I know. And I start experiencing cognitive dissonance. It's like, I know this guy's horrible. I hate this guy. But we started getting drawn to each other's Christmas beer. Like, oh, I hate this guy, but I really like him. And so I had this little weird chemical bromance uh, for a moment. And uh, I think you went before fellatio. I mean, I can't be sure. 
anyway, uh, then, then he came to the, uh, uh, the lesser known candidate debate, and he was wearing this uh, full length raccoon coat, and it was all pretty crazy. And I go up to him and I say, Hey, Randall, it's a mixed pleasure as always, and gave a little chit chat on the campaign trail, because that's what candidates do. And uh, then before the, the debate, uh, before you go up on stage, you always want to piss. You always want to, you don't want to be up on stage for an hour having a full ladder. And so the, all the, de all a dozen of us, all the Democratic candidates went to the restroom and I'm like, hey, Randall Terry, hey, want to go have some fun in the restroom? <laughs> and he's like, oh yeah, I'll get the whiskey and the cards. And, and I'm like, ha ha ha. And then we're in the, in the, in the bathroom, all the candidates are like, hey, Randall Terry, want to go have some gay homosexual sex in that there stall? And uh, he, he, he declined. Um, anyway, uh, during the debate, I was uh, given the stink eye, and, uh, and, and of course, during the last few minutes of the debate, my closing uh, statements included the phrase, uh, Jesus told me to turn Randall Terry gay, and I jumped a shit ton of <laughs> All right. All right. Excellent yep. job, David Bacon. Thank you. Oh. Eight cents. Here. How do people, uh, what do you have, like an email now? I do. I do. Yes, you can email me if you so desire. DavidCitizenBacon at gmail.com. Excellent job, sir. I will yes. stay on the line for one quick second. You're listening to The David Feldman Show, you happy, self-actualized hump. 